Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Anne, read by Arielle Lipshaw. Mrs. Rachel Lind, read by Amy Graymore. Marilla Cuthbert. Anthony Pye. Benji Sloan. Read by Elizabeth Clatt. Diana, read by Sally McConnell. Jane Andrews, read by Elizabeth Barr. Gilbert Blythe, read by M.B. Paul Irving, read by Angie Liu. Dora Keith, read by Miss Avarice. Davy Keith, read by Tricia G. Charlotte the Fourth, read by Anka. Miss Lavender, read by Rashada. Lottie Wright, Gertie Pye. Ginger the Parrot, read by Gabrielle C. Mr. Shearer, Lorenzo White, read by Peter Bishop. Mrs. H. B. Donnell, Mrs. Peter Sloan, Priscilla Grant, read by E. Lee. Miss Eliza Andrews. Mrs. Bell, read by Melaine. Miss Catherine Andrews. Mrs. Allen, read by Sarah Jennings. Mrs. Andrews. Mrs. White, read by Janet Carl. Loretta White. Barbara Shaw. Carrie Sloan. Julia Bell. Sarah Kopp. Annetta Bell, read by Sherry Gardner. Peter Sloan. Mr. Barry. Mr. Irving. Jimmy Andrews. Oliver Stone. Willie White. Joe Sloan, read by David Lawrence. Ned Clay, John Henry Carter, St. Clair Donnell, Fred Wright, read by Levi Throckmorton. Harmon Andrews, Judson Parker, read by Algie Pug. Jerry Corcoran, Thomas Lind, read by John Steigerwald. Narrated by Ariel Lipshaw. Chapter 1. An Irate Neighbor. A tall, slim girl, half-past sixteen, with serious gray eyes and hair which her friends called auburn, had sat down on the broad red sandstone doorstep of a Prince Edward Island farmhouse one ripe afternoon in August, firmly resolved to construe so many lines of Virgil. But an August afternoon, with blue hazes scarfing the harvest slopes, little winds whispering elfishly in the poplars, and a dancing slender of red poppies outflaming against the dark coppice of young firs in a corner of the cherry orchard, was fitter for dreams than dead languages. The Virgil soon slipped unheeded to the ground, and Anne, her chin propped on her clasped hands, 
and her eyes on the splendid mass of fluffy clouds that were heaping up just over Mr. J. A. Harrison's house like a great white mountain, was far away in a delicious world where a certain schoolteacher was doing a wonderful work, shaping the destinies of future statesmen, and inspiring youthful minds and hearts with high and lofty ambitions. To be sure, if you came down to harsh facts, which, it must be confessed, Anne seldom did until she had to, it did not seem likely that there was much promising material for celebrities in Avonlea School, but you could never tell what might happen if a teacher used her influence for good. Anne had certain rose-tinted ideals of what a teacher might accomplish if she only went the right way about it, and she was in the midst of a delightful scene, forty years hence, with a famous personage. Just exactly what he was to be famous for was left in convenient haziness, but Anne thought it would be rather nice to have him a college president or a Canadian premier, bowing low over her wrinkled hand and assuring her that it was she who had first kindled his ambition, and that all his success in life was due to the lessons she had instilled so long ago in Avonlea School. This pleasant vision was shattered by a most unpleasant interruption. A demure little Jersey cow came scuttling down the lane, and five seconds later Mr. Harrison arrived. If arrived be not too mild a term to describe the manner of his eruption into the yard. He bounced over the fence without waiting to open the gate, and angrily confronted astonished Anne, who had risen to her feet and stood looking at him in some bewilderment. Mr. Harrison was their new right-hand neighbor, and she had never met him before, although she had seen him once or twice. In early April, before Anne had come home from Queens, Mr. Robert Bell, whose farm adjoined the Cuthbert Place on the west, had sold out and moved to Charlottetown. His farm had been bought by a certain Mr. J. A. Harrison, whose name, and the fact that he was a New Brunswick man, were all that was known about him. But before he had been a month in Avonlea, he had won the reputation of being an odd person. A crank, Mrs. Rachel Lynde said. Mrs. Rachel was an outspoken lady, as those of you who may have already made her acquaintance will remember. Mr. Harrison was certainly different from other people, and that is the essential characteristic of a crank, as everybody knows. In the first place he kept house for himself, and had publicly stated that he wanted no fools of women around his diggings. Feminine Avonlea took its revenge by the gruesome tales it related about his housekeeping and cooking. He had hired little John Henry Carter of White Sands, and John Henry started the stories. For one thing, there was never any stated time for meals in the Harrison establishment. Mr. Harrison got a bite when he felt hungry, and if John Henry were around at the time he came in for a share, but if he were not, he had to wait until Mr. Harrison's next hungry spell. John Henry mournfully averred that he would have starved to death if it wasn't that he got home on Sundays and got a good filling up, and that his mother always gave him a basket of grub to take back with him on Monday mornings. As for washing dishes, Mr. Harrison never made any pretense of doing it unless a rainy Sunday came. Then he went to work and washed them all at once in the rainwater hogshead, and left them to drain dry. Again, Mr. Harrison was close. When he was asked to subscribe to the Reverend Mr. Allen's salary, he said he'd wait and see how many dollars' worth of good he got out of his preaching first. He didn't believe in buying a pig in a poke. And when Mrs. Lynde went to ask for a contribution to missions, and incidentally to see the inside of the house, he told her there were more heathens among the old woman gossips in Avonlea than anywhere else he knew of, and he'd cheerfully contribute to a mission for Christianizing them if she'd undertake it. Mrs. Rachel got herself away, and said it was a mercy poor Mrs. Robert Bell was safe in her grave, 
for it would have broken her heart to see the state of her house, in which she used to take so much pride. Why she scrubbed the kitchen floor every second day, Mrs. Lynde told Marilla Cuthbert indignantly. And if you could see it now, I had to hold up my skirts as I walked across it. Finally, Mr. Harrison kept a parrot called Ginger. Nobody in Avonlea had ever kept a parrot before. Consequently, that proceeding was considered barely respectable. And such a parrot. If you took John Henry Carter's word for it, never was such an unholy bird. It swore terribly. Mrs. Carter would have taken John Henry away at once if she had been sure she could get another place for him. Besides, Ginger had bitten a piece right out of the back of John Henry's neck one day when he had stooped down too near the cage. Mrs. Carter showed everybody the mark when the luckless John Henry went home on Sundays. All these things flashed through Anne's mind as Mr. Harrison stood, quite speechless with wrath apparently, before her. In his most amiable mood Mr. Harrison could not have been considered a handsome man. He was short and fat and bald. And now, with his round face purple with rage, and his prominent blue eyes almost sticking out of his head, Anne thought he was really the ugliest person she had ever seen. All at once Mr. Harrison found his voice. "'I'm not going to put up with this,' he spluttered. "'Not a day longer, do you hear, miss? Bless my soul, this is the third time, miss. The third time. Patience has ceased to be a virtue, miss. I warned your aunt last time not to let it occur again. And she's let it. She's done it. What does she mean by it? That is what I want to know. That is what I'm here about, miss.' "'Will you explain what the trouble is?' asked Anne in her most dignified manner. She had been practicing it considerably of late to have it in good working order when school began, but it had no apparent effect on the irate J. A. Harrison. "'Trouble, is it? Bless my soul, trouble enough, I should think. The trouble is, miss, that I found that Jersey cow of your aunt's in my oats again, not half an hour ago. The third time, mark you. I found her in last Tuesday, and I found her in yesterday. I came here and told your aunt not to let it occur again. She has let it occur again. Where's your aunt, miss?' I just want to see her for a minute and give her a piece of my mind. A piece of J. A. Harrison's mind, miss." "'If you mean Miss Marilla Cuthbert, she is not my aunt, and she has gone down to East Grafton to see a distant relative of hers who is very ill,' said Anne, with due increase of dignity at every word. "'I am very sorry that my cow should have broken into your oats. She is my cow, and not Miss Cuthbert's. Matthew gave her to me three years ago when she was a little calf, and he bought her from Mr. Bell. Sorry, miss. Sorry isn't going to help matters any. You'd better go and look at the havoc that animal has made in my oats. Trouble them from center to circumference, miss. I am very sorry, repeated Anne firmly. But perhaps if you kept your fences in better repair, Dolly might not have broken in. It is your part of the line fence that separates your oat field from our pasture, and I noticed the other day that it was not in very good condition. My fence is all right, snapped Mr. Harrison angrier than ever at this carrying of the war into the enemy's country. The jail fence couldn't keep a demon of a cow like that out. And I can tell you, you red-headed snippet, that if the cow is yours, as you say, you'd be better employed in watching her out of other people's grain than in sitting round reading yellow-covered novels." With a scathing glance at the innocent tan-colored Virgil by Anne's feet. Something at that moment was red beside Anne's hair, which had always been a tender point with her. I'd rather have red hair than none at all, except a little fringe round my ears," she flashed. The shot told, for Mr. Harrison was really very sensitive about his bald head. His anger choked him up again, and he could only glare speechlessly at Anne, who recovered her temper and followed up her advantage. 
I can make allowance for you, Mr. Harrison, because I have an imagination. I can easily imagine how very trying it must be to find a cow in your oats, and I shall not cherish any hard feelings against you for the things you've said. I promise you that Dolly shall never break into your oats again. I give you my word of honor on that point. Well, mind you, she doesn't, muttered Mr. Harrison in a somewhat subdued tone, but he stamped off angrily enough, and Anne heard him growling to himself until he was out of earshot. Grievously disturbed in mind, Anne marched across the yard and shut the naughty jersey up in the milking pen. She can't possibly get out of that unless she tears the fence down, she reflected. She looks pretty quiet now. I dare say she has sickened herself on those oats. I wish I'd sold her to Mr. Shearer when he wanted her last week, but I thought it was just as well to wait until we had the auction of the stock and let them all go together. I believe it is true about Mr. Harrison being a crank. Certainly there's nothing of the kindred spirit about him. Anne had always a weather eye open for kindred spirits. Marilla Cuthbert was driving into the yard as Anne returned from the house, and the latter flew to get tea ready. They discussed the matter at the tea-table. "'I'll be glad when the auction is over,' said Marilla. "'It is too much responsibility having so much stock about the place, and nobody but that unreliable Martin to look after them. He has never come back yet, and he promised that he would certainly be back last night if I'd give him the day off to go to his aunt's funeral. I don't know how many aunts he has got, I am sure. That's the fourth that's died since he hired here a year ago.' I'll be more than thankful when the crop is in and Mr. Barry takes over the farm. We'll have to keep Dolly shut up in the pen till Martin comes, for she must be put in the back pasture and the fences there have to be fixed. I declare, it is a world of trouble, as Rachel says. Here's poor Mary Keith dying, and what is to become of those two children of hers is more than I know. She has a brother in British Columbia, and she has written to him about them, but she hasn't heard from him yet. What are the children like? How old are they? Mm, six past. They're twins. Oh, I've always been especially interested in twins ever since Mrs. Hammond had so many, said Anne eagerly. Are they pretty? Goodness, you couldn't tell. They were too dirty. Davy had been out making mud pies, and Dora went out to call him in. Davy pushed her head first into the biggest pie, and then, because she cried, he got into it himself and wallowed in it to show her it was nothing to cry about. Mary said Dora was really a very good child, but that Davy was full of mischief. He has never had any bringing up, you might say. His father died when he was a baby, and Mary has been sick almost ever since. "'I'm always sorry for children that have no bringing up,' said Anne soberly. "'You know I hadn't any till you took me in hand. I hope their uncle will look after them. Just what relation is Mrs. Keith to you?' "'Mary? None in the world. It was her husband. He was our third cousin.' There's Mrs. Lynde coming through the yard. I thought she'd be up to hear about Mary. Don't tell her about Mr. Harrison and the cow, implored Anne. Marilla promised, but the promise was quite unnecessary, for Mrs. Lynde was no sooner fairly seated than she said, I saw Mr. Harrison chasing your jersey out of his oats today when I was coming home from Carmody. I thought he looked pretty mad. Did he make much of a rumpus? Anne and Marilla furtively exchanged amused smiles. Few things in Avonlea ever escaped Mrs. Lynde. It was only that morning Anne had said, "'If you went to your own room at midnight, locked the door, pulled down the blind, and sneezed, Mrs. Lynde would ask you the next day how your cold was.' "'I believe he did,' admitted Marilla. "'I was away. He gave Anne a piece of his mind.' "'I think he is a very disagreeable man,' said Anne, 
with a resentful toss of her ruddy head. "'You never said a truer word,' said Mrs. Rachel solemnly. "'I knew there'd be trouble when Robert Bell sold his place to a New Brunswick man, that's what. "'I don't know what Avonlea is coming to, with so many strange people rushing into it. "'It'll soon not be safe to go to sleep in our beds.' "'Why, what other strangers are coming in?' asked Marilla. "'Haven't you heard?' Well, there's a family of Donalds, for one thing. They have rented Peter Sloane's old house. Peter has hired the man to run his mill. They belong down east, and nobody knows anything about them. Then that shiftless Timothy Cotton family are going to move up from White Sands, and they'll simply be a burden on the public. He is in consumption, when he isn't stealing, and his wife is a slack-twisted creature that can't turn her hand to a thing. She washes her dishes sitting down. Mrs. George Pye has taken her husband's orphan nephew, Anthony Pye. He'll be going to school to you, Anne, so you may expect trouble, that's what. And you'll have another strange pupil, too. Paul Irving is coming from the States to live with his grandmother. You remember his father, Marilla, Stephen Irving? Him that jilted Lavender Lewis over at Grafton? I don't think he jilted her. There was a quarrel. I suppose there was blame on both sides. Well, anyway, he didn't marry her, and she's been as queer as possible ever since, they say, living all by herself in that little stone house she calls Echo Lodge. Stephen went off to the States and went into business with his uncle and married a Yankee. He's never been home since, though his mother has been up to see him once or twice. His wife died two years ago, and he's sending the boy home to his mother for a spell. He's ten years old, and I don't know if he'll be a very desirable pupil. You can never tell about those Yankees. Mrs. Lynde looked upon all people who had the misfortune to be born or brought up elsewhere than in Prince Edward Island with the decided can-any-good-thing-come-out-of-Nazareth air. They might be good people, of course, but you were on the safe side in doubting it. She had a special prejudice against Yankees. Her husband had been cheated out of ten dollars by an employer for whom he had once worked in Boston and neither angels nor principalities nor powers could have convinced Mrs. Rachel that the whole United States was not responsible for it. "'Avonlea school won't be the worse for a little new blood,' said Marilla dryly. "'And if this boy is anything like his father, he'll be all right. Steve Irving was the nicest boy that was ever raised in these parts, though some people did call him proud. I should think Mrs. Irving would be very glad to have the child. She has been very lonesome since her husband died.' "'Oh, the boy may be well enough.' "'But he'll be different from Avonlea children,' said Mrs. Rachel, as if that clinched the matter. Mrs. Rachel's opinions concerning any person, place, or thing were always warranted to wear. "'What's this I hear about your going to start up a village improvement society, Anne?' "'I was just talking it over with some of the girls and boys at the last debating club,' said Anne, flushing. "'They thought it would be rather nice, and so do Mr. and Mrs. Allen. Lots of villages have them now.' "'Well, you'll get into no end of hot water if you do.' Better leave it alone, Anne, that's what. People don't like being improved. Oh, we are not going to try to improve the people. It is Avonlea itself. There are lots of things which might be done to make it prettier. For instance, if we could coax Mr. Levi Bolter to pull down that dreadful old house on his upper farm, wouldn't that be an improvement? It certainly would, admitted Mrs. Rachel. That old ruin has been an eyesore to the settlement for years. But if you improvers can coax Levi Bolter to do anything for the public that he isn't to be paid for doing, may I be there to see and hear the process, that's what. I don't want to discourage you, Anne, for there may be something in your idea. 
though I suppose you did get it out of some rubbishy Yankee magazine. But you'll have your hands full with your school, and I advise you as a friend not to bother with your improvements, that's what. But there, I know you'll go ahead with it if you've set your mind on it. You were always one to carry a thing through, somehow. Something about the firm outlines of Anne's lips told that Mrs. Rachel was not far astray in this estimate. Anne's heart was bent on forming the Improvement Society. Gilbert Blythe, who was to teach in White Sands but would always be home from Friday night to Monday morning, was enthusiastic about it, and most of the other folks were willing to go in for anything that meant occasional meetings and consequently some fun. As for what the improvements were to be, nobody had any very clear idea except Anne and Gilbert. They had talked them over and planned them out until an ideal Avonlea existed in their minds if nowhere else. Mrs. Rachel had still another item of news. They've given the Carmody School to a Priscilla Grant. Didn't you go to Queen's with a girl of that name, Anne? Yes, indeed. Priscilla to teach at Carmody. How perfectly lovely! exclaimed Anne, her gray eyes lighting up until they looked like evening stars, causing Mrs. Lynde to wonder anew if she would ever get it settled to her satisfaction whether Anne Shirley were really a pretty girl or not. End of chapter 1《Chapter Two of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Two Selling in Haste and Repenting at Leisure. Anne drove over to Carmody on a shopping expedition the next afternoon and took Diana Barry with her. Diana was, of course, a pledged member of the Improvement Society, and the two girls talked about little else all the way to Carmody and back. "'The very first thing we ought to do when we get started is to have that hall painted,' said Diana, as they drove past the Avonlea Hall, a rather shabby building set down in a wooded hollow, with spruce trees hooding it about on all sides. "'It's a disgraceful-looking place.' and we must attend to it even before we try to get mr levi bolter to pull his house down father says we'll never succeed in doing that levi bolter is too mean to spend the time it would take perhaps he'll let the boys take it down if they promise to haul the boards and split them up for him for kindling wood said anne hopefully we must do our best and be content to go slowly at first we can't expect to improve everything all at once we'll have to educate public sentiment first of course Diana wasn't exactly sure what educating public sentiment meant, but it sounded fine, and she felt rather proud that she was going to belong to a society with such an aim in view. "'I thought of something last night that we could do, Anne. You know that three-cornered piece of ground where the roads from Carmody and Newbridge and White Sands meet? It's all grown over with young spruce, but wouldn't it be nice to have them all cleared out?' and just leave the two or three birch trees that are on it. Splendid, agreed Anne gaily, and have a rustic seat put under the birches, and when spring comes we'll have a flower bed made in the middle of it and plant geraniums. Yes, only we'll have to devise some way of getting old Mrs. Hiram Sloane to keep her car off the road, or she'll eat our geraniums up, laughed Diana. I begin to see what you mean by educating public sentiment, Anne. There's the old Bolter house now. Did you ever see such a rookery? And perched right close to the road, too. 
an old house with its windows gone always makes me think of something dead with its eyes picked out i think an old deserted house is such a sad sight said anne dreamily it always seems to me to be thinking about its past and mourning for its old-time joys marilla says that a large family was raised in that old house long ago and that it was a real pretty place with a lovely garden and roses climbing all over it it was full of little children and laughter and songs and now it is empty and nothing ever wanders through it but the wind how lonely and sorrowful it must feel perhaps they all come back on moonlit nights the ghosts of the little children of long ago and the roses and the songs and for a little while the old house can dream it is young and joyous again diana shook her head i never imagined things like that about places now anne don't you remember how cross mother and marilla were when we imagined ghosts into the haunted wood to this day i can't go through that bush comfortably after dark and if i begin imagining such things about the old boulter house i'd be frightened to pass it too besides those children aren't dead they're all grown up and doing well and one of them is a butcher and flowers and songs couldn't have ghosts anyhow anne smothered a little sigh she loved diana dearly and they had always been good comrades but she had long ago learned that when she wandered into the realm of fancy she must go alone the way to it was by an enchanted path where not even her dearest might follow her a thunder shower came up while the girls were at carmody it did not last long however and the drive home through lanes where the raindrops sparkled on the boughs and little leafy valleys where the drenched ferns gave out spicy odors was delightful but just as they turned into the cuthbert lane anne saw something that spoiled the beauty of the landscape for her before them on the right extended mr harrison's broad gray-green field of late oats wet and luxuriant and there standing squarely in the middle of it up to her sleek sides in the lush growth and blinking at them calmly over the intervening tassels was a jersey cow anne dropped the reins and stood up with a tightening of the lips that boded no good to the predatory quadruped not a word said she but she climbed nimbly down over the wheels and whisked across the fence before diana understood what had happened anne come back shrieked the latter as soon as she found her voice you'll ruin your dress in that wet grain ruin it she doesn't hear me well she'll never get that cow out by herself i must go and help her of course anne was charging through the grain like a mad thing diana hopped briskly down tied the horse securely to a post turned the skirt of her pretty gingham dress over her shoulders mounted the fence and started in pursuit of her frantic friend she could run faster than anne who was hampered by her clinging and drenched skirt and soon overtook her behind them they left a trail that would break mr harrison's heart when he should see it anne for mercy's sake stop panted poor diana i'm right out of breath and you are wet to the skin i must get that cow out before mr harrison sees her gasped anne i don't care if i'm drowned if we can only do that but the jersey cow appeared to see no good reason for being hustled out of her luscious browsing ground no sooner had the two breathless girls got near her than she turned and bolted squarely for the opposite corner of the field head her off screamed anne run diana run diana did run anne tried to and the wicked jersey went around the field as if she were possessed 
privately Diana thought she was. It was fully ten minutes before they headed her off and drove her through the corner gap into the Cuthbert Lane. There is no denying that Anne was in anything but an angelic temper at that present moment. Nor did it soothe her in the least to behold a buggy halted just outside the lane, wherein sat Mr. Shearer of Carmody and his son, both of whom wore a broad smile. "'I guess you'd better have sold me that cow when I wanted to buy her last week, Anne,' chuckled Mr. Shearer. "'I'll sell her to you now if you want her,' said her flushed and disheveled owner. "'You may have her this very minute.' "'Done. I'll give you twenty for her, as I offered before, and Jim here can drive her right over to Carmody. She'll go to town with the rest of the shipment this evening. Mr. Reed of Brighton wants a Jersey cow.' Five minutes later Jim Shearer and the Jersey cow were marching up the road, and impulsive Anne was driving along the Green Gables Lane with her twenty dollars. "'What will Marilla say?' asked Diana. "'Oh, she won't care. Dolly was my own cow, and it isn't likely she'd bring more than twenty dollars at the auction. But, oh dear, if Mr. Harrison sees that grain he will know she has been in again, and after my giving him my word of honor that I'd never let it happen. Well, it has taught me a lesson not to give my word of honor about cows.' A cow that could jump over or break through our milk-pen fence couldn't be trusted anywhere. Marilla had gone down to Mrs. Lynde's, and when she returned knew all about Dolly's sale and transfer, for Mrs. Lynde had seen most of the transaction from her window and guessed the rest. "'I suppose it's just as well she's gone, though you do do things in a dreadful headlong fashion, Anne. I don't see how she got out of the pen, though. She must have broken some of the boards off.' "'I didn't think of looking,' said Anne. But I'll go and see now. Martin has never come back yet. Perhaps some more of his aunts have died. I think it's something like Mr. Peter Sloane and the Octogenarians. The other evening Mrs. Sloane was reading a newspaper, and she said to Mr. Sloane, I see here that another Octogenarian has just died. What is an Octogenarian, Peter? And Mr. Sloane said he didn't know, but they must be very sickly creatures, for you never heard tell of them, but they were dying. That's the way with Martin's aunts. Martin's just like all the rest of those French said Marilla in disgust. "'You can't depend on them for a day.' Marilla was looking over Anne's Carmody purchases when she heard a shrill shriek in the barnyard. A minute later Anne dashed into the kitchen, wringing her hands. "'Anne Shirley, what's the matter now?' "'Oh, Marilla, whatever shall I do? This is terrible. And it's all my fault. Oh, will I ever learn to stop and reflect a little before doing reckless things? Mrs. Lynde always told me I would do something dreadful some day, and now I've done it.' Anne, you are the most exasperating girl. What is it you've done? Sold Mr. Harrison's Jersey cow, the one he bought from Mr. Bell to Mr. Shearer. Dolly is out in the milking pen this very minute. Anne Shirley, are you dreaming? I only wish I were. There's no dream about it, though it's very like a nightmare. And Mr. Harrison's cow is in Charlottetown by this time. Oh, Marilla, I thought I'd finished getting into scrapes, and here I am in the very worst one I ever was in in my life. What can I do? Do? There's nothing to do, child, except go and see Mr. Harrison about it. We can offer him our jersey in exchange if he doesn't want to take the money. She is just as good as his. I'm sure he'll be awfully cross and disagreeable about it, though, moaned Anne. I dare say he will. He seems to be an irritable sort of a man. I'll go and explain to him, if you like. "'No, indeed, I'm not as mean as that,' exclaimed Anne. "'This is all my fault, and I'm certainly not going to let you take my punishment. I'll go myself, and I'll go at once. The sooner it's over the better, for it will be terribly humiliating.' Poor Anne got her hat and her twenty dollars and was passing out, when she happened to glance through the open pantry door. 
On the table reposed a nut-cake, which she had baked that morning, a particularly toothsome concoction, iced with pink icing and adorned with walnuts. Anne had intended it for Friday evening, when the youth of Avonlea were to meet at Green Gables to organize the Improvement Society. But what were they compared to the justly offended Mr. Harrison? Anne thought that cake ought to soften the heart of any man, especially one who had to do his own cooking, and she promptly popped it into a box. She would take it to Mr. Harrison as a peace-offering. That is, if he gives me a chance to say anything at all, she thought ruefully, as she climbed the lane fence and started on a shortcut across the fields, golden in the light of the dreamy August evening. I know now just how people feel who are being led to execution. End of chapter 2《Chapter Three of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Three Mr. Harrison at Home. Mr. Harrison's house was an old fashioned, low eaved, whitewashed structure set against a thick spruce grove. Mr. Harrison himself was sitting on his vine-shaded veranda, in his shirt-sleeves, enjoying his evening pipe. When he realized who was coming up the path, he sprang suddenly to his feet, bolted into the house, and shut the door. This was merely the uncomfortable result of his surprise, mingled with a good deal of shame over his outburst of temper the day before, but it nearly swept the remnant of her courage from Anne's heart. "'If he's so cross now, what will he be when he hears what I've done?' she reflected miserably, as she rapped at the door. But Mr. Harrison opened it, smiling sheepishly, and invited her to enter in a tone quite mild and friendly, if somewhat nervous. He had laid aside his pipe and donned his coat. He offered Anne a very dusty chair very politely, and her reception would have passed off pleasantly enough if it had not been for the tell-tale of a parrot who was peering through the bars of his cage with wicked golden eyes. No sooner had Anne seated herself than Ginger exclaimed, "'Bless my soul, what's that red-headed snippet come here for?' It would be hard to say whose face was the redder, Mr. Harrison's or Anne's. "'Don't you mind that parrot,' said Mr. Harrison, casting a furious glance at Ginger. "'He's—he's he's always talking nonsense. I got him from my brother who was a sailor. Sailors don't always use the choicest language. And parrots are very imitative birds.' "'So I should think,' said poor Anne, the remembrance of her errand quelling her resentment. She couldn't afford to snub Mr. Harrison under the circumstances, that was certain. When you had just sold a man's Jersey cow offhand, without his knowledge or consent, you must not mind if his parrot repeated uncomplimentary things. Nevertheless, the red-headed snippet was not quite so meek as she might otherwise have been. "'I've come to confess something to you, Mr. Harrison,' she said resolutely. "'It's—it's about—that Jersey cow.' "'Bless my soul!' exclaimed Mr. Harrison nervously. "'Has she gone and broken into my oats again? Well, never mind, never mind if she has. It's no difference, not at all. I, I was too hasty yesterday, that's a fact. Never mind if she has.' "'Oh, if it were only that,' sighed Anne. "'But it's ten times worse. I don't—' "'Bless my soul! Do you mean she has gone into my wheat?' "'No, no, not the wheat, but—' "'Then it's the cabbages. She's broken into my cabbages that I was raising for exhibition, eh?' "'It's not the cabbages, Mr. Harrison. I'll tell you everything. That is what I came for. But please don't interrupt me. It makes me so nervous. 
Just let me tell my story and don't say anything till I get through. And then no doubt you'll say plenty. Anne concluded, but in thought only. I won't say another word, said Mr. Harrison, and he didn't. But Ginger was not bound by any contract of silence, and kept ejaculating, Redhead snippet, at intervals until Anne felt quite wild. I shut my Jersey cow up in our pen yesterday. This morning I went to Carmody, and when I came back I saw a Jersey cow in your oats. Diana and I chased her out, and you can't imagine what a hard time we had. I was so dreadfully wet and tired and vexed, and Mr. Shearer came by that very minute and offered to buy the cow. I sold her to him on the spot for twenty dollars. It was wrong of me. I should have waited and consulted Marilla, of course. But I'm dreadfully given to doing things without thinking. Everybody who knows me will tell you that. Mr. Shearer took the cow right away to ship her on the afternoon train. Red-headed snippet, quoted Ginger in a tone of profound contempt. At this point Mr. Harrison arose, and, with an expression that would have struck terror into any bird but a parrot, carried Ginger's cage into an adjoining room and shut the door. Ginger shrieked, swore, and otherwise conducted himself in keeping with his reputation, but finding himself left alone, relapsed into sulky silence. Excuse me and go on said Mr. Harrison, sitting down again. My brother the sailor never taught that burn any matters. I went home, and after tea I went out to the milking pen. Mr. Harrison. Anne leaned forward, clasping her hands with her old childish gesture, while her big gray eyes gazed imploringly into Mr. Harrison's embarrassed face. I found my cow still shut up in the pen. It was your cow I had sold to Mr. Shearer. Bless my soul exclaimed Mr. Harrison, in blank amazement at this unlooked-for conclusion. What a very extraordinary thing! Oh, it isn't in the least extraordinary that I should be getting myself and other people into scrapes, said Anne mournfully. I'm noted for that. You might suppose I'd have grown out of it by this time. I'll be seventeen next March. But it seems that I haven't. Mr. Harrison, is it too much to hope that you'll forgive me? I'm afraid it's too late to get your cow back, but here is the money for her or you can have mine in exchange if you'd rather. She's a very good cow, and I can't express how sorry I am for it all." "'Tut-tut,' said Mr. Harrison briskly. "'Don't say another word about it, miss. It's of no consequence, no consequence whatever. Accidents will happen. I'm too hasty myself sometimes, miss. Far too hasty. But I can't help speaking out just what I think, and folks must take me as they find me. If that cow had been in my cabbages now, but never mind, she wasn't, so it's all right. I think I'd rather have your cow in exchange, since you want to be rid of her." Oh, thank you, Mr. Harrison. I'm so glad you are not vexed. I was afraid you would be. And I suppose you were scared to death to come here and tell me after the fuss I made yesterday, eh? But you mustn't mind me. I'm a terrible outspoken old fellow, that's all. Awful apt to tell the truth, no matter if it is a bit plain. So is Mrs. Lynde, said Anne, before she could prevent herself. Who? Miss Lynde? Don't you tell me I'm like that old gossip said Mr. Harrison irritably. I'm not, not a bit. What have you got in that box? A cake, said Anne archly. In her relief at Mr. Harrison's unexpected amiability, her spirit soared upward feather light. I brought it over for you. I thought perhaps you didn't have cake very often. I don't, that's a fact, and I'm mighty fond of it too. I'm much obliged to you. It looks good on top. I hope it's good all the way through. It is, said Anne, gaily confident. I have made cakes in my time that were not, as Mrs. Allen could tell you, but this one is all right. I made it for the Improvement Society, but I can make another for them. Well, I'll tell you what, miss. You must help me eat it. I'll put the kettle on, and we'll have a cup of tea. How will that do? 
"'Will you let me make the tea?' said Anne dubiously. Mr. Harrison chuckled. <laughs> "'I see you haven't much confidence in my ability to make tea. You're wrong. I can brew up as good a germ of tea as you ever drank. But go ahead yourself. Fortunately, it rained last Sunday, so there's plenty of clean dishes.' Anne hopped briskly up and went to work. She washed the teapot in several waters before she put the tea to steep. Then she swept the stove and set the table, bringing the dishes out of the pantry. The state of that pantry horrified Anne, but she wisely said nothing. Mr. Harrison told her where to find the bread and butter and a can of peaches. Anne adorned the table with a bouquet from the garden and shut her eyes to the stains on the tablecloth. Soon the tea was ready, and Anne found herself sitting opposite Mr. Harrison at his own table, pouring his tea for him, and chatting freely to him about her school and friends and plans. She could hardly believe the evidence of her senses. Mr. Harrison had brought Ginger back, averring that the poor bird would be lonesome, and Anne, feeling that she could forgive everybody and everything, offered him a walnut. But Ginger's feelings had been grievously hurt, and he rejected all overtures of friendship. He sat moodily on his perch and ruffled his feathers up until he looked like a mere ball of green and gold. "'Why do you call him Ginger?' asked Anne, who liked appropriate names, and thought Ginger accorded not at all with such gorgeous plumage. "'My brother the sailor named him. Maybe it had some reference to his temper. I think a lot of that bird, though, you'd be surprised if you knew how much. He has his faults, of course. That bird has cost me a good deal one way and another. Some people object to his swearing habits, but he can't be broken of them. I've tried. Other people have tried. Some folks have prejudices against parrots. Silly, ain't it? I like them myself. Ginger's a lot of company to me. Nothing would induce me to give up that bird. Nothing in the world, miss. Mr. Harrison flung the last sentence at Anne as explosively as if he suspected her of some latent design of persuading him to give Ginger up. Anne, however, was beginning to like the queer, fussy, fidgety little man, and before the meal was over they were quite good friends. Mr. Harrison found out about the Improvement Society and was disposed to approve of it. That's right, go ahead. There's lots of room for improvement in this settlement. And in the people, too. Oh, I don't know, flashed Anne. To herself or to her particular cronies, she might admit that there were some small imperfections, easily removable, in Avonlea and its inhabitants. But to hear a practical outsider like Mr. Harrison saying it was an entirely different thing. I think Avonlea is a lovely place, and the people in it are very nice, too. I guess you've got a spice of temper commented Mr. Harrison, surveying the flushed cheeks and indignant eyes opposite him. It goes with hair like yours, I reckon. Avonlea is a pretty decent place, or I wouldn't have located here. But I suppose even you will admit that it has some faults. I like it all the better for them, said loyal Anne. I don't like places or people either that haven't any faults. I think a truly perfect person would be very uninteresting. Mrs. Milton White says she never met a perfect person, but she's heard enough about one her husband's first wife. Don't you think it must be very uncomfortable to be married to a man whose first wife was perfect? It would be more uncomfortable to be married to the perfect wife, declared Mr. Harrison, with a sudden and inexplicable warmth. When tea was over, Anne insisted on washing the dishes, although Mr. Harrison assured her that there were enough in the house to do for weeks yet. She would dearly have loved to sweep the floor also, but no broom was visible and she did not like to ask where it was, for fear there wasn't one at all. You might run across and talk to me once in a while, suggested Mr. Harrison when she was leaving. Tisn't far, and folks ought to be neighborly. I'm kind of interested in that society of yours. Seems to me there'll be some fun in it. 
Who are you going to tackle first? We are not going to meddle with people. It is only places we mean to improve, said Anne in a dignified tone. She rather suspected that Mr. Harrison was making fun of the project. When she had gone, Mr. Harrison watched her from the window, a lithe, girlish shape, tripping light-heartedly across the fields in the sunset afterglow. I'm a crusty, lonesome, crabbed old chap, he said aloud. But there's something about that little girl makes me feel young again. And it's such a pleasant sensation I'd like to have it repeated once in a while. Fred Harrison a bit, croaked Ginger mockingly. Mr. Harrison shook his fist at the parrot. You ornery bird, he muttered. I almost wish I'd wrung your neck when my brother the sailor brought you home. Will you never be done getting me into trouble? Anne ran home blithely and recounted her adventures to Marilla, who had been not a little alarmed by her long absence and was on the point of starting out to look for her. It's a pretty good world after all, isn't it, Marilla? concluded Anne happily. Mrs. Lynde was complaining the other day that it wasn't much of a world. She said whenever you looked forward to anything pleasant you were sure to be more or less disappointed. Perhaps that is true. But there is a good side to it, too. The bad things don't always come up to your expectations, either. They nearly always turn out ever so much better than you think. I looked forward to a dreadfully unpleasant experience when I went over to Mr. Harrison's tonight, and instead he was quite kind, and I had almost a nice time. I think we're going to be real good friends if we make plenty of allowances for each other, and everything has turned out for the best. But all the same, Marilla, I shall certainly never again sell a cow before making sure to whom she belongs. And I do not like parrots. End of chapter 3《Chapter Four of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Four Different Opinions. One evening at sunset, Jane Andrews, Gilbert Blythe, and Anne Shirley were lingering by a fence in the shadow of gently swaying spruce boughs where a woodcut known as the Birch Path joined the main road. Jane had been up to spend the afternoon with Anne, who walked part of the way home with her. At the fence they met Gilbert, and all three were now talking about the fateful morrow, for that morrow was the first of September, and the schools would open. Jane would go to Newbridge, and Gilbert to White Sands. "'You both have the advantage of me,' sighed Anne. You're going to teach children who don't know you, but I have to teach my own old schoolmates, and Mrs. Lynde says she's afraid they won't respect me as they would a stranger unless I'm very cross from the first. But I don't believe a teacher should be cross. Oh, it seems to me such a responsibility. I guess we'll get on all right, said Jane comfortably. Jane was not troubled by any aspirations to be an influence for good. She meant to earn her salary fairly, please the trustees, and get her name on the school inspector's roll of honor. Further ambitions Jane had none. The main thing will be to keep order, and a teacher has to be a little cross to do that. If my pupils won't do as I tell them, I shall punish them. How? Give them a good whipping, of course. Oh, Jane, you wouldn't, cried Anne, shocked. Jane, you couldn't. Indeed, I could and would if they deserved it, said Jane decidedly. I could never whip a child, said Anne with equal decision. I don't believe in it at all. Miss Stacy never whipped any of us, and she had perfect order. 
and Mr. Phillips was always whipping and he had no order at all. No, if I can't get along without whipping I shall not try to teach school. There are better ways of managing. I shall try to win my pupils' affections, and then they will want to do what I tell them." "'But suppose they don't,' said practical Jane. "'I wouldn't whip them anyhow. I'm sure it wouldn't do any good. Oh, don't whip your pupils, Jane, dear, no matter what they do.' "'What do you think about it, Gilbert?' demanded Jane. "'Don't you think there are some children who really need a whipping now and then?' "'Don't you think it's a cruel, barbarous thing to whip a child, any child?' exclaimed Anne, her face flushing with earnestness. "'Well,' said Gilbert slowly, torn between his real convictions and his wish to measure up to Anne's ideal. "'There's something to be said on both sides. I don't believe in whipping children much. I think, as you say, Anne, that there are better ways of managing as a rule, and that corporal punishment should be a last resort. But on the other hand, as Jane says, I believe there is an occasional child who can't be influenced in any other way, and who in short needs a whipping and would be improved by it. Corporal punishment is a last resort, is to be my rule." Gilbert, having tried to please both sides, succeeded, as is usual and eminently right, in pleasing neither. Jane tossed her head. "'I'll whip my pupils when they're naughty. It's the shortest and easiest way of convincing them.' Anne gave Gilbert a disappointed glance. "'I shall never whip a child,' she repeated firmly. "'I feel sure it isn't either right or necessary.' "'Suppose a boy sauced you back when you told him to do something,' said Jane. "'I'd keep him in after school, and talk kindly and firmly to him,' said Anne. "'There is some good in every person if you can find it. It is a teacher's duty to find and develop it. That is what our school management professor at Queen's told us, you know. Do you suppose you could find any good in a child by whipping him? It's far more important to influence the children aright than it is even to teach them the three R's, Professor Rennie says. But the inspector examines them in the three R's, mind you, and he won't give you a good report if they don't come up to his standard," protested Jane. I'd rather have my pupils love me and look back to me in after years as a real helper than be on the roll of honor," asserted Anne decidedly. Wouldn't you punish children at all when they misbehaved? asked Gilbert. Oh, yes, I suppose I shall have to, although I know I'll hate to do it. But you can keep them in at recess, or stand them on the floor, or give them lines to write." "'I suppose you won't punish the girls by making them sit with the boys,' said Jane slyly. Gilbert and Anne looked at each other and smiled rather foolishly. Once upon a time Anne had been made to sit with Gilbert for punishment, and sad and bitter had been the consequences thereof. "'Well, time will tell which is the best way,' said Jane philosophically as they parted. Anne went back to Green Gables by way of Birch Path, shadowy, rustling, fern-scented, through Violet Vale and past Willowmere, where dark and light kissed each other under the firs, and down through Lover's Lane, spots she and Diana had so named long ago. She walked slowly, enjoying the sweetness of wood and field and the starry summer twilight, and thinking soberly about the new duties she was to take up on the morrow. When she reached the yard at Green Gables, Mrs. Lynde's loud, decided tones floated out through the open kitchen window. "'Mrs. Lynde has come up to give me good advice about tomorrow,' thought Anne with a grimace. "'But I don't believe I'll go in. Her advice is much like pepper, I think. Excellent in small quantities, but rather scorching in her doses. I'll run over and have a chat with Mr. Harrison instead.' 
This was not the first time Anne had run over and chatted with Mr. Harrison since the notable affair of the Jersey cow. She had been there several evenings, and Mr. Harrison and she were very good friends, although there were times and seasons when Anne found the outspokenness on which he prided himself rather trying. Ginger still continued to regard her with suspicion, and never failed to greet her sarcastically as red-headed snippet. Mr. Harrison had tried vainly to break him of the habit by jumping excitedly up whenever he saw Anne coming and exclaiming, "'Bless my soul, here's that pretty girl again!' or something equally flattering. But Ginger saw through the scheme and scorned it. Anne was never to know how many compliments Mr. Harrison paid her behind her back. He certainly never paid her any to her face. "'Well, I suppose you've been back in the woods laying in a supply of switches for tomorrow?' was his greeting as Anne came up the veranda steps. "'No, indeed,' said Anne indignantly. She was an excellent target for teasing because she always took things so seriously. "'I shall never have a switch in my school, Mr. Harrison. Of course, I shall have to have a pointer, but I shall use it for pointing only.' "'So you mean to strap them instead? Well, I don't know, but you're right. A switch stings more at the time, but the strap smarts longer. That's a fact.' "'I shall not use anything of the sort. I'm not going to whip my pupils.' "'Bless my soul!' exclaimed Mr. Harrison in genuine astonishment. "'How do you lay out to keep order, then?' "'I shall govern by affection, Mr. Harrison.' "'It won't do,' said Mr. Harrison. "'Won't do at all, Anne. Spare the rod and spoil the child. When I went to school, the master whipped me regular, every day, because he said if I wasn't in mischief just then, I was plotting it.' "'Methods have changed since your school days, Mr. Harrison.' "'But human nature hasn't. Mark my words, you'll never manage the young fry unless you keep a rod and pickle for them. The thing is impossible." "'Well, I'm going to try my way first, said Anne, who had a fairly strong will of her own and was apt to cling very tenaciously to her theories. "'You're pretty stubborn, I reckon,' was Mr. Harrison's way of putting it. "'Well, well, we'll see. Some day when you get riled up, and people with hair like yours are desperate apt to get riled, you'll forget all your pretty little notions and give some of them a wailing. You're too young to be teaching anyhow, far too young, and childish." Altogether Anne went to bed that night in a rather pessimistic mood. She slept poorly, and was so pale and tragic at breakfast next morning that Marilla was alarmed and insisted on making her take a cup of scorching ginger tea. Anne sipped it patiently, although she could not imagine what good ginger tea would do. Had it been some magic brew, potent to confer age and experience, Anne would have swallowed a quart of it without flinching. "'Marilla, what if I fail?' "'You'll hardly fail completely in one day, and there's plenty more days coming,' said Marilla. "'The trouble with you, Anne, is that you'll expect to teach those children everything and reform all their faults right off, and if you can't, you'll think you've failed.'" End of chapter 4《Chapter Five of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Five A Full Fledged Schoolma'am. When Anne reached the school that morning, for the first time in her life she had traversed the birch path deaf and blind to its beauties. All was quiet and still. The preceding teacher had trained the children to be in their places at her arrival, and when Anne entered the schoolroom 
she was confronted by prim rows of shining morning faces and bright inquisitive eyes. She hung up her hat and faced her pupils, hoping that she did not look as frightened and foolish as she felt, and that they would not perceive how she was trembling. She had sat up until nearly twelve the preceding night, composing a speech she meant to make to her pupils upon opening the school. She had revised and improved it painstakingly, and then she had learned it off by heart. It was a very good speech, and had some very fine ideas in it, especially about mutual help and earnest striving after knowledge. The only trouble was that she could not now remember a word of it. After what seemed to her a year, about ten seconds in reality, she said faintly, "'Take your testaments, please,' and sank breathlessly into her chair under cover of the rustle and clatter of desk lids that followed. While the children read their verses, Anne marshaled her shaky wits into order and looked over the array of little pilgrims to the grown-up land. Most of them were, of course, quite well known to her. Her own classmates had passed out in the preceding year, but the rest had all gone to school with her, excepting the primer class and ten newcomers to Avonlea. Anne secretly felt more interest in these ten than in those whose possibilities were already fairly well mapped out to her. To be sure, they might be just as commonplace as the rest, but on the other hand there might be a genius among them. It was a thrilling idea. Sitting by himself at a corner desk was Anthony Pye. He had a dark, sullen little face, and was staring at Anne with a hostile expression in his black eyes. Anne instantly made up her mind that she would win that boy's affection and discomfit the Pyes utterly. In the other corner another strange boy was sitting with Artie Sloane, a jolly-looking little chap with a snub nose, freckled face, and big light blue eyes fringed with whitish lashes. Probably the Donnell boy, and if resemblance went for anything, his sister was sitting across the aisle with Mary Bell. Anne wondered what sort of mother the child had to send her to school dressed as she was. She wore a faded pink silk dress trimmed with a great deal of cotton lace, soiled white kid slippers and silk stockings. Her sandy hair was tortured into innumerable kinky and unnatural curls, surmounted by a flamboyant bow of pink ribbon bigger than her head. Judging from her expression, she was very well satisfied with herself. A pale little thing, with smooth ripples of fine, silky, fawn-colored hair flowing over her shoulders, must, Anne thought, be Annetta Bell, whose parents had formerly lived in the Newbridge school district, but by reason of hauling their house fifty yards north of its old site were now in Avonlea. Three pallid little girls crowded into one seat were certainly cottons, and there was no doubt that the small beauty with the long brown curls and hazel eyes, who was casting coquettish looks at Jack Gillis over the edge of her testament, was Prilly Rogerson, whose father had recently married a second wife and brought Prilly home from her grandmother's in Grafton. A tall, awkward girl in a back seat, who seemed to have too many feet and hands, and could not place at all but later on discovered that her name was Barbara Shaw and that she had come to live with an Avonlea aunt. She was also to find that if Barbara ever managed to walk down the aisle without falling over her own or somebody else's feet, the Avonlea scholars wrote the unusual fact up on the porch wall to commemorate it. But when Anne's eyes met those of the boy at the front desk facing her own, a queer little thrill went over her, as if she had found her genius. She knew this must be Paul Irving and that Mrs. Rachel Lynde had been right for once when she prophesied that he would be unlike the Avonlea children. More than that, Anne realized that he was unlike other children anywhere, and that there was a soul subtly akin to her own gazing at her out of the very dark blue eyes that were watching her so intently. She knew Paul was ten, but he looked no more than eight. 
He had the most beautiful little face she had ever seen in a child. Features of exquisite delicacy and refinement, framed in a halo of chestnut curls. His mouth was delicious, being full without pouting, the crimson lips just softly touching and curving into finely finished little corners that narrowly escaped being dimpled. He had a sober, grave, meditative expression, as if his spirit was much older than his body, but when Anne smiled softly at him it vanished in a sudden answering smile, which seemed an illumination of his whole being, as if some lamp had suddenly kindled into flame inside of him, irradiating him from top to toe. Best of all it was involuntary, born of no external effort or motive, but simply the outflashing of a hidden personality, rare and fine and sweet. With a quick interchange of smiles Anne and Paul were fast friends forever before a word had passed between them. The day went by like a dream. Anne could never clearly recall it afterwards. It almost seemed as if it were not she who was teaching but somebody else. She heard classes and worked sums and set copies mechanically. The children behaved quite well. Only two cases of discipline occurred. Morley Andrews was caught driving a pair of trained crickets in the aisle. Anne stood Morley on the platform for an hour and, which Morley felt much more keenly, confiscated his crickets. She put them in a box and on the way from school set them free in Violet Vale, but Morley believed, then and ever afterwards, that she took them home and kept them for her own amusement. The other culprit was Anthony Pye, who poured the last drops of water from his slate bottle down the back of Aurelia Clay's neck. Anne kept Anthony in at recess and talked to him about what was expected of gentlemen, admonishing him that they never poured water down ladies' necks. She wanted all her boys to be gentlemen, she said. Her little lecture was quite kind and touching, but unfortunately Anthony remained absolutely untouched. He listened to her in silence, with the same sullen expression, and whistled scornfully as he went out. Anne sighed, and then cheered herself up by remembering that winning a pie's affections, like the building of Rome, wasn't the work of a day. In fact, it was doubtful whether some of the pies had any affections to win, but Anne hoped better things of Anthony who looked as if he might be a rather nice boy if one ever got behind his sullenness. When school was dismissed and the children had gone, Anne dropped wearily into her chair. Her head ached and she felt woefully discouraged. There was no real reason for discouragement, since nothing very dreadful had occurred, but Anne was very tired and inclined to believe that she would never learn to like teaching. And how terrible it would be to be doing something you didn't like every day for, well, say forty years. Anne was of two minds whether to have her cry out then and there, or wait till she was safely in her own white room at home. Before she could decide there was a click of heels and a silken swish on the porch floor, and Anne found herself confronted by a lady whose appearance made her recall a recent criticism of Mr. Harrison's on an overdressed female he had seen in a Charlottetown store. She looked like a head-on collision between a fashion plate and a nightmare. The newcomer was gorgeously arrayed in a pale blue summer silk puffed, frilled, and shirred wherever puff, frill, or shirring could possibly be placed. Her head was surmounted by a huge white chiffon hat, bedecked with three long but rather stringy ostrich feathers. A veil of pink chiffon, lavishly sprinkled with huge black dots, hung like a flounce from the hat brim to her shoulders, and floated off in two airy streamers behind her. She wore all the jewelry that could be crowded on one small woman, and a very strong odor of perfume attended her. I am Mrs. Donnell, Mrs. H. B. Donnell, announced this vision. 
and i have come in to see you about something clarissa myra told me when she came home to dinner to-day it annoyed me excessively i'm sorry faltered anne vainly trying to recollect any incident of the morning connected with the donnell children clarissa myra told me that you pronounced our name donnell now miss shirley the correct pronunciation of our name is donnell accent on the last syllable i hope you'll remember this in the future i'll try to gasped anne choking back a wild desire to laugh i know by experience that it's very unpleasant to have one's name spelled wrong and i suppose it must be even worse to have it pronounced wrong certainly it is and clarice elmira also informed me that you call my son jacob he told me his name was jacob protested anne i might well have expected that said mrs h b donnell in a tone which implied that gratitude in children was not to be looked for in this degenerate age that boy has such plebeian tastes miss shirley when he was born i wanted to call him st clair it sounds so aristocratic doesn't it but his father insisted he should be called jacob after his uncle i yielded because uncle jacob was a rich old bachelor and what do you think miss shirley when our innocent boy was five years old uncle jacob actually went and got married and now he has three boys of his own did you ever hear of such ingratitude the moment the invitation to the wedding for he had the impertinence to send us an invitation miss shirley came to the house i said no more jacobs for me thank you from that day i called my son st clair and st clair i am determined he shall be called his father obstinately continues to call him jacob and the boy himself has a perfectly unaccountable preference for the vulgar name but st clair he is and st clair he shall remain you will kindly remember this miss shirley will you not thank you i told clarice almira that i was sure it was only a misunderstanding and that a word would set it right donnell accent on the last syllable and st clair on no account jacob you remember thank you when mrs h b donnell had skimmed away anne locked the school door and went home at the foot of the hill she found paul irving by the birch path he held out to her a cluster of the dainty little wild orchids which avonlea children called rice lilies please teacher i found these in mr wright's field he said shyly and i came back to give them to you because i thought you were the kind of lady that would like them and because he lifted his big beautiful eyes i like you teacher you darling said anne taking the fragrant spikes as if paul's words had been a spell of magic discouragement and weariness passed from her spirit and hope upwelled in her heart like a dancing fountain she went through the birch path light-footedly attended by the sweetness of her orchids as by a benediction well how did you get along marilla wanted to know ask me that a month later and i may be able to tell you i can't now i don't know myself i'm too near it 
My thoughts feel as if they had been all stirred up until they were thick and muddy. The only thing I feel really sure of having accomplished today is that I taught Cliffy Wright that A is A. He never knew it before. Isn't it something to have started a soul along a path that may end in Shakespeare and Paradise Lost? Mrs. Lynde came up later on with more encouragement. That good lady had waylaid the schoolchildren at her gate and demanded of them how they liked their new teacher. And every one of them said they liked you splendid, Anne, except Anthony Pye. I must admit he didn't. He said you weren't any good, just like all girl teachers. There's the pie leaven for you. But never mind. I'm not going to mind, said Anne quietly, and I'm going to make Anthony Pye like me yet. Patience and kindness will surely win him. Well, you never can tell about a pie, said Mrs. Rachel cautiously. They go by contraries, like dreams, often as not. As for that Donnell woman, she'll get no Donnelling from me, I can assure you. The name is Donnell, and always has been. The woman is crazy, that's what. She has a pug dog she calls Queenie, and it has its meals at the table along with the family, eating off a china plate. I'd be afraid of a judgment if I was her. Thomas says Donnell himself is a sensible, hard-working man. But he hadn't much gumption when he picked out a wife, that's what. End of chapter 5「Chapter Six of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Six All Sorts of Conditions of Men and Women. A September day on Prince Edward Island Hills, a crisp wind blowing up over the sand dunes from the sea a long red road, winding through fields and woods, now looping itself about a corner of thick-set spruces, now threading a plantation of young maples with great feathery sheets of ferns beneath them, now dipping down into a hollow where a brook flashed out of the woods and into them again, now basking in open sunshine between ribbons of goldenrod and smoke-blue asters, air a-thrill with the pipings of myriads of crickets, those glad little pensioners of the summer hills, a plump brown pony ambling along the road, two girls behind him, full to the lips with the simple, priceless joy of youth and life. "'Oh, this is a day left over from Eden, isn't it, Diana?' and Anne sighed for sheer happiness. "'The air has magic in it. Look at the purple in the cup of the Harvest Valley, Diana. And, oh, do smell the dying fir. It's coming up from that little sunny hollow where Mr. Eben Wright has been cutting fence poles.' Bliss is it on such a day to be alive, but to smell dying fur is very heaven. That's two-thirds Wordsworth and one-third Anne Shirley. It doesn't seem possible that there should be dying fur in heaven, does it? And yet it doesn't seem to me that heaven would be quite perfect if you couldn't get a whiff of dead fur as you went through its woods. Perhaps we'll have the odor there without the death. Yes, I think that will be the way. That delicious aroma must be the souls of the furs. And of course it will be just souls in heaven. "'Trees haven't souls,' said practical Diana. "'But the smell of dead fur is certainly lovely. I'm going to make a cushion and fill it with fur needles. You'd better make one too, Anne.' "'I think I shall, and use it for my naps. I'd be certain to dream I was a dryad or a wood-nymph then. But just this minute I'm well content to be Anne Shirley, Avonlea schoolma'am, driving over a road like this on such a sweet, friendly day.' "'It's a lovely day.' 
but we have anything but a lovely task before us sighed diana why on earth did you offer to canvass this road anne almost all the cranks in avonlea live along it and we'll probably be treated as if we were begging for ourselves it's the very worst road of all that is why i chose it of course gilbert and fred would have taken this road if we had asked them but you see diana i feel myself responsible for the a v i s since i was the first to suggest it and it seems to me that i ought to do the most disagreeable things i'm sorry on your account but you needn't say a word at the cranky places i'll do all the talking mrs lynde would say i was well able to mrs lynde doesn't know whether to approve of our enterprise or not she inclines to when she remembers that mr and mrs allen are in favor of it but the fact that village improvement societies first originated in the states is account against it so she is halting between two opinions and only success will justify us in mrs lynde's eyes priscilla is going to write a paper for our next improvement meeting and i expect it will be good for her aunt is such a clever writer and no doubt it runs in the family i shall never forget the thrill it gave me when i found out that mrs charlotte e morgan was priscilla's aunt it seemed so wonderful that i was a friend of the girl whose aunt wrote edgewood days and the rosebud garden where does mrs morgan live in toronto and priscilla says she is coming to the island for a visit next summer and if it is possible priscilla is going to arrange to have us meet her that seems almost too good to be true but it's something pleasant to imagine after you go to bed the avonlea village improvement society was an organized fact gilbert blythe was president fred wright vice-president anne shirley secretary and diana barry treasurer the improvers as they were promptly christened were to meet once a fortnight at the homes of the members it was admitted that they could not expect to effect many improvements so late in the season but they meant to plan the next summer's campaign collect and discuss ideas write and read papers and as anne said educate the public sentiment generally there was some disapproval of course and which the improvers felt much more keenly a good deal of ridicule mr elisha wright was reported to have said that a more appropriate name for the organization would be courting club mrs hiram sloane declared she had heard the improvers meant to plough up all the roadsides and set them out with geraniums mr levi bolter warned his neighbors that the improvers would insist that everybody pull down his house and rebuild it after plans approved by the society mr james spencer sent them word that he wished they would kindly shovel down the church hill even wright told anne that he wished the improvers could induce old josiah sloane to keep his whiskers trimmed mr lawrence bell said he would whitewash his barns if nothing else would please them but he would not hang lace curtains in the cow stable windows mr major spencer asked clifton sloane an improver who drove the milk to the carmody cheese factory if it was true that everybody would have to have his milk stand hand-painted next summer and keep an embroidered centerpiece on it in spite of or perhaps human nature being what it is because of this the society went gamely to work at the only improvement they could hope to bring about that fall at the second meeting in the berry parlor oliver sloane moved that they start a subscription to re-shingle and paint the hall julia bell seconded it with an uneasy feeling that she was doing something not exactly ladylike gilbert put the motion it was carried unanimously and anne gravely recorded it in her minutes the next thing was to appoint a committee and gertie pye determined not to let julia bell carry off all the laurels boldly moved that miss jane andrews be chairman of said committee this motion being also duly seconded and carried 
Jane returned the compliment by appointing Gertie on the committee, along with Gilbert, Anne, Diana, and Fred Wright. The committee chose their routes in private conclave. Anne and Diana were told off for the Newbridge Road, Gilbert and Fred for the White Sands Road, and Jane and Gertie for the Carmody Road. Because, explained Gilbert to Anne, as they walked home together through the haunted wood, the pies all live along that road, and they won't give a cent unless one of themselves canvasses them. The next Saturday Anne and Diana started out. They drove to the end of the road and canvassed homeward, calling first on the Andrews girls. If Catherine is alone, we may get something, said Diana. But if Eliza is there, we won't. Eliza was there, very much so, and looked even grimmer than usual. Miss Eliza was one of those people who give you the impression that life is indeed a veil of tears, and that a smile, never to speak of a laugh, is a waste of nervous energy truly reprehensible. The Andrews girls had been girls for fifty-odd years, and seemed likely to remain girls to the end of their earthly pilgrimage. Catherine, it was said, had not entirely given up hope, but Eliza, who was born a pessimist, had never had any. They lived in a little brown house built in a sunny corner scooped out of Mark Andrews's beech woods. Eliza complained that it was terrible hot in summer, but Catherine was wont to say it was lovely and warm in winter. Eliza was sewing patchwork, not because it was needed, but simply as a protest against the frivolous lace Catherine was crocheting. Eliza listened with a frown and Catherine with a smile, as the girls explained their errand. To be sure, whenever Catherine caught Eliza's eye she discarded the smile in guilty confusion, but it crept back the next moment. "'If I had money to waste,' said Eliza grimly, "'I'd burn it up and have the fun of seeing a blaze, maybe. But I wouldn't give it to that hall. Not a cent. It's no benefit to the settlement. Just a place for young folks to meet and carry on when they's better be home in their beds.' "'Oh, Eliza, young folks must have some amusement,' protested Catherine. "'I don't see the necessity. We didn't gad about to halls and places when we were young, Catherine Andrews. This world is getting worse every day.' "'I think it's getting better,' said Catherine firmly. "'You think?' Miss Eliza's voice expressed the utmost contempt. "'It doesn't signify what you think, Catherine Andrews.' facts is facts well i always like to look on the bright side eliza there isn't any bright side oh indeed there is cried anne who couldn't endure such heresy in silence why there are ever so many bright sides miss andrews it's really a beautiful world you won't have such a high opinion of it when you've lived as long in it as i have retorted miss eliza sourly and you won't be so enthusiastic about improving it either how is your mother diana dear me but she has failed of late she looks terrible run down and how long is it before marilla expects to be stone blind anne the doctor thinks her eyes will not get any worse if she is very careful faltered anne eliza shook her head doctors always talk like that just to keep people cheered up I wouldn't have much hope if I was her. It's best to be prepared for the worst. But oughtn't we be prepared for the best, too? pleaded Anne. It's just as likely to happen as the worst. Not in my experience, and I've fifty-seven years to set against your sixteen, 
retorted Eliza. Going, are you? Well, I hope this new society of yours will be able to keep Avonlea from running any further downhill, but I haven't much hope of it. Anne and Diana got themselves thankfully out, and drove away as fast as the fat pony could go. As they rounded the curve below the beechwood, a plump figure came speeding over Mr. Andrews' pasture, waving to them excitedly. It was Catherine Andrews, and she was so out of breath that she could hardly speak, but she thrust a couple of quarters into Anne's hand. "'That's my contribution to painting the hall,' she gasped. "'I'd like to give you a dollar, but I don't dare take more for my egg money, for Eliza would find out if I did. I'm real interested in your society, and I believe you're going to do a lot of good. I'm an optimist. I have to be living with Eliza.' I must hurry back before she misses me. She thinks I'm feeding the hens. I hope you'll have good luck canvassing. And don't be cast down over what Eliza said. The world is getting better. It certainly is. The next house was Daniel Blair's. Now, it all depends on whether his wife is home or not, said Diana as they jolted along a deep-rutted lane. If she is, we won't get a cent. Everybody says Dan Blair doesn't dare have his hair cut without asking her permission, and it's certain she's very close, to state it moderately. She says she has to be just before she's generous, but Mrs. Lynde says she's so much before that generosity never catches up with her at all. Anne related their experience at the Blair place to Marilla that evening. We tied the horse and then rapped at the kitchen door, Nobody came, but the door was open, and we could hear somebody in the pantry going on dreadfully. We couldn't make out the words, but Diana says she knows they were swearing by the sound of them. I can't believe that of Mr. Blair, for he is always so quiet and meek. But at least he had great provocation. For, Marilla, when that poor man came to the door, red as a beet, with perspiration streaming down his face, he had on one of his wife's big gingham aprons. "'I can't get this derned thing off,' he said for the strings are tied in a hard knot and I can't bust them, so you'll have to excuse me, ladies. We begged him not to mention it, and went in and sat down. Mr. Blair sat down, too. He twisted the apron around to his back and rolled it up, but he did look so ashamed and worried that I felt sorry for him, and Diana said she feared we had called at an inconvenient time. Oh, not at all, said Mr. Blair, trying to smile. You know he is always very polite. I'm a little busy, getting ready to bake a cake, as it were, my wife got a telegram today that her sister from Montreal is coming tonight, and she's gone to the train to meet her and left orders for me to make a cake for tea. She writ out the recipe and told me what to do, but I've clean forgot half the directions already. And it says, flavor according to taste. What does that mean? How can you tell? And what if my taste doesn't happen to be other people's taste? Would a tablespoon of vanilla be enough for a small layer cake? I felt sorrier than ever for the poor man. He didn't seem to be in his proper sphere at all. I had heard of henpecked husbands, and now I felt that I saw one. It was on my lips to say, Mr. Blair, if you'll give us a subscription for the hall, I'll mix up your cake for you. But I suddenly thought it wouldn't be neighborly to drive too sharp a bargain with a fellow creature in distress. So I offered to mix the cake for him without any conditions at all. He just jumped at my offer. He said he'd been used to making his own bread before he was married, but he feared cake was beyond him and yet he hated to disappoint his wife. He got me another apron, and Diana beat the eggs and I mixed the cake. 
Mr. Blair ran about and got us the materials. He had forgotten all about his apron, and when he ran it streamed out behind him, and Diana said she thought she would die to see it. He said he could bake the cake all right. He was used to that. And then he asked for our list and he put down four dollars. So you see we were rewarded. But even if he hadn't given a cent, I'd always feel that we had done a truly Christian act in helping him. Theodore White's was the next stopping place. Neither Anne nor Diana had ever been there before, and they had only a very slight acquaintance with Mrs. Theodore, who was not given to hospitality. Should they go to the back or front door? While they held a whispered consultation, Mrs. Theodore appeared at the front door with an armful of newspapers. Deliberately she laid them down one by one on the porch floor and the porch steps, and then down the path to the very feet of her mystified callers. "'Will you please wipe your feet carefully on the grass, and then walk on these papers?' she said anxiously. "'I've just swept the house all over, and I can't have any more dust tracked in. The path's been real muddy since the rain yesterday.' "'Don't you dare laugh,' warned Anne in a whisper, as they marched along the newspapers. "'And I implore you, Diana, not to look at me, no matter what she says, or I shall not be able to keep a sober face.' The papers extended across the hall and into a prim, fleckless parlor. Anne and Diana sat down gingerly on the nearest chairs and explained their errand. Mrs. White heard them politely, interrupting only twice, once to chase out an adventurous fly, and once to pick up a tiny wisp of grass that had fallen on the carpet from Anne's dress. Anne felt wretchedly guilty, but Mrs. White subscribed two dollars and paid the money down. "'To prevent us from having to go back for it.' Diana said when they got away. Mrs. White had the newspapers gathered up before they had their horse untied, and as they drove out of the yard they saw her busily wielding a broom in the hall. "'I've always heard that Mrs. Theodore White was the neatest woman alive, and I'll believe it after this,' said Diana, giving way to her suppressed laughter as soon as it was safe. "'I am glad she has no children,' said Anne solemnly. "'It would be dreadful beyond words for them if she had.' At the Spencers, Mrs. Isabella Spencer made them miserable by saying something ill-natured about everyone in Avonlea. Mr. Thomas Bolter refused to give anything, because the hall, when it had been built, twenty years before, hadn't been built on the site he recommended. Mrs. Esther Bell, who was the picture of health, took half an hour to detail all her aches and pains, and sadly put down fifty cents because she wouldn't be there that time next year to do it. No, she would be in her grave. The worst reception, however, was at Simon Fletcher's. When they drove into the yard they saw two faces peering at them through the porch window. But although they rapped and waited patiently and persistently nobody came to the door. Two decidedly ruffled and indignant girls drove away from Simon Fletcher's. Even Anne admitted that she was beginning to feel discouraged. But the tide turned after that. Several Sloan homesteads came next, where they got liberal subscriptions, and from that to the end they fared well, with only an occasional snub. Their last place of call was at Robert Dixon's by the Pond Bridge. They stayed to tea here, although they were nearly home, rather than risk offending Mrs. Dixon, who had the reputation of being a very touchy woman. While they were there, old Mrs. James White called in. "'I've just been down to Lorenzo's,' she announced. "'He's the proudest man in Avonlea this minute. What do you think? There's a brand new boy there.' and after seven girls that's quite an event i can tell you anne pricked up her ears and when they drove away she said i'm going straight to lorenzo white's but he lives on the white sands road and it's quite a distance out of our way 
protested Diana. Gilbert and Fred will canvass him. They are not going around until next Saturday, and it will be too late by then, said Anne firmly. The novelty will be worn off. Lorenzo White is dreadfully mean, but he will subscribe to anything just now. We mustn't let such a golden opportunity slip, Diana. The result justified Anne's foresight. Mr. White met them in the yard, beaming like the sun upon an Easter day. When Anne asked for a subscription, he agreed enthusiastically. Certain, certain. Just put me down for a dollar more than the highest subscription you've got. That will be five dollars. Mr. Daniel Blair put down four, said Anne, half afraid. But Lorenzo did not flinch. Five it is. And here's the money on the spot. Now I want you to come into the house. There's something in there worth seeing. Something very few people have seen as yet. Just come in and pass your opinion. What will we say if the baby isn't pretty? whispered Diana in trepidation as they followed the excited Lorenzo into the house. Oh, there will certainly be something nice to say about it, said Anne easily. There always is about a baby. The baby was pretty, however, and Mr. White felt that he got his five dollars' worth of the girl's honest delight over the plump little newcomer. But that was the first, last, and only time that Lorenzo White ever subscribed to anything. Anne, tired as she was, made one more effort for the public wheel that night, slipping over the fields to interview Mr. Harrison, who was, as usual, smoking his pipe on the veranda with Ginger beside him. Strictly speaking, he was on the Carmody Road, but Jane and Gertie, who were not acquainted with him save by doubtful report, had nervously begged Anne to canvass him. Mr. Harrison, however, flatly refused to subscribe a cent, and all Anne's wiles were in vain. "'But I thought you approved of our society, Mr. Harrison,' she mourned. "'So I do, so I do. But my approval doesn't go as deep as my pocket, Anne.' "'A few more experiences such as I have had today would make me as much of a pessimist as Miss Eliza Andrews,' Anne told her reflection in the East Gable Mirror at bedtime. End of chapter 6《Chapter Seven of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Seven The Pointing of Duty. Anne leaned back in her chair one mild October evening and sighed. She was sitting at a table covered with textbooks and exercises but the closely written sheets of paper before her had no apparent connection with studies or schoolwork. "'What is the matter?' asked Gilbert, who had arrived at the open kitchen door just in time to hear the sigh. Anne colored and thrust her writing out of sight under some school compositions. "'Nothing very dreadful. I was just trying to write out some of my thoughts, as Professor Hamilton advised me, but I couldn't get them to please me. They seem so still and foolish directly they're written down on white paper with black ink.' Fancies are like shadows. You can't cage them. They're such wayward, dancing things. But perhaps I'll learn the secret some day if I keep on trying. I haven't a great many spare moments, you know. By the time I finish correcting school exercises and compositions, I don't always feel like writing any of my own. You're getting on splendidly in school, Anne. All the children like you, said Gilbert, sitting down on the stone step. No, not all. Anthony Pye doesn't and won't like me. What is worse, he doesn't respect me. No, he doesn't. He simply holds me in contempt, and I don't mind confessing to you that it worries me miserably. It isn't that he is so very bad. 
He is only rather mischievous, but no worse than some of the others. He seldom disobeys me, but he obeys with a scornful air of toleration, as if it wasn't worth while disputing the point or he would, and it has a bad effect on the others. I've tried every way to win him, but I'm beginning to feel I never shall. I want to, for he's rather a cute little lad, if he is a pie, and I could like him if he'd let me. Uh, probably it's merely the effect of what he hears at home. Not altogether. Anthony is an independent little chap and makes up his own mind about things. He has always gone to men before, and he says girl teachers are no good. Well, we'll see what patience and kindness will do. I like overcoming difficulties, and teaching is really very interesting work. Paul Irving makes up for all that is lacking in the others. That child is a perfect darling, Gilbert, and a genius into the bargain. I'm persuaded the world will hear of him some day," concluded Anne in a tone of conviction. I like teaching, too," said Gilbert. It's good training, for one thing. Why, Anne, I've learned more in the weeks I've been teaching the young ideas of White Sands than I learned in all the years I went to school myself. We all seem to be getting on pretty well. The Newbridge people like Jane, I hear. And I think White Sands is tolerably satisfied with your humble servant. All except Mr. Andrew Spencer. I met Mrs. Peter Blewett on my way home last night, and she told me she thought it her duty to inform me that Mr. Spencer didn't approve of my methods. Have you ever noticed, asked Anne reflectively, that when people say it is their duty to tell you a certain thing you may prepare for something disagreeable, why is it that they never seem to think it a duty to tell you the pleasant things they hear about you? Mrs. H. B. Donnell called at the school again yesterday and told me she thought it her duty to inform me that Mrs. Harmon Andrew didn't approve of my reading fairy tales to the children, and that Mr. Rogerson thought Prilly wasn't coming on fast enough in arithmetic. If Prilly would spend less time making eyes at the boys over her slate she might do better. I feel quite sure that Jack Gillis works her class sums for her, though I've never been able to catch him red-handed. Have you succeeded in reconciling Mrs. Donnell's hopeful son to his saintly name? Yes, laughed Anne, but it was really a difficult task. At first, when I called him Sinclair, he would not take the least notice until I had spoken two or three times, and then, when the other boys nudged him, he would look up with such an aggrieved air, as if I called him John or Charlie and he couldn't be expected to know I meant him. So I kept him in after school one night and talked kindly to him. I told him his mother wished me to call him St. Clair, and I couldn't go against her wishes. He saw it when it was all explained out. He's really a very reasonable little fellow. And he said I could call him St. Clair, but that he'd lick the stuffing out of any of the boys that tried it. Of course, I had to rebuke him again for using such shocking language. Since then, I call him St. Clair, and the boys call him Jake, and all goes smoothly. He informs me that he means to be a carpenter, but Mrs. Donnell says I am to make a college professor out of him. The mention of college gave a new direction to Gilbert's thoughts, and they talked for a time of their plans and wishes, gravely, earnestly, hopefully, as youth loves to talk, while the future is yet an untrodden path full of wonderful possibilities. Gilbert had finally made up his mind that he was going to be a doctor. "'It's a splendid profession,' he said enthusiastically. "'A fellow has to fight something all through life. Didn't somebody once define man as a fighting animal?' And I want to fight disease and pain and ignorance, which are all members one of another. I want to do my share of honest, real work in the world, Anne. Add a little to the sum of human knowledge that all the good men have been accumulating since it began. The folks who lived before me have done so much for me that I want to show my gratitude by doing something for the folks who will live after me. 
seems to me that is the only way a fellow can get square with his obligations to the race i'd like to add some beauty to life said anne dreamily i don't exactly want to make people know more though i know that is the noblest ambition but i'd love to make them have a pleasanter time because of me to have some little joy or happy thought that would never have existed if i hadn't been born i think you're fulfilling that ambition every day said gilbert admiringly and he was right anne was one of the children of light by birthright after she had passed through a life with a smile or a word thrown across it like a gleam of sunshine the owner of that life saw it for the time being at least as hopeful and lovely and of good report finally gilbert rose regretfully well i must run up to macpherson's moody spurgeon came home from queen's to-day for sunday and he was to bring me out a book professor boyd is lending me and i must get marilla's tea she went to see mrs keith this evening and she will soon be back anne had tea ready when marilla came home the fire was crackling cheerily a vase of frost-bleached ferns and ruby-red maple leaves adorned the table and delectable odors of ham and toast pervaded the air but marilla sank into her chair with a deep sigh are your eyes troubling you does your headache queried anne anxiously no i'm only tired and worried it's about mary and those children mary is worse and she can't last much longer and as for the twins i don't know what is to become of them hasn't their uncle been heard from yes mary had a letter from him he's working in a lumber camp and shacking it whatever that means anyway he says he can't possibly take the children till the spring he expects to be married then and will have a home to take them to but he says she must get some of the neighbors to keep them for the winter she says she can't bear to ask any of them mary never got on any too well with the east grafton people and that's a fact and the long and short of it is anne that i'm sure mary wants me to take those children she didn't say so but she looked it oh anne clasped her hands all athrill with excitement and of course you will marilla won't you i haven't made up my mind said marilla rather tartly i don't rush into things in your headlong way anne third cousinship is a pretty slim claim and it will be a fearful responsibility to have two children of six years to look after twins at that marilla had an idea that twins were just twice as bad as single children twins are very interesting at least one pair of them said anne it's only when there are two or three pairs that it gets monotonous and i think it would be real nice for you to have something to amuse you when i'm away in school i don't reckon there'd be much amusement in it more worry and bother than anything else i should say it wouldn't be so risky if they were even as old as you were when i took you i wouldn't mind dora so much she seems good and quiet but that davy is a limb anne was fond of children and her heart yearned over the keith twins the remembrance of her own neglected childhood was very vivid with her still she knew that marilla's only vulnerable point was her stern devotion to what she believed to be her duty and anne skillfully marshalled her arguments along this line if davy is naughty it's all the more reason why he should have good training isn't it marilla if we don't take them we don't know who will nor what kind of influences may surround them suppose mrs keith's next-door neighbors the sprots were to take them mrs lynde says henry sprott is the most profane man that ever lived and you can't believe a word his children say wouldn't it be dreadful to have the twins learn anything like that or suppose they went to the wiggins mrs lynde says that mr wiggins sells everything off the place that can be sold and brings his family up on skim milk you wouldn't like your relations to be starved even if they were only third cousins would you 
It seems to me, Marilla, that it is our duty to take them. I suppose it is, assented Marilla gloomily. I dare say I'll tell Mary I'll take them. You needn't look so delighted, Anne. It will mean a good deal of extra work for you. I can't sew a stitch on account of my eyes, so you'll have to see to the making and mending of their clothes. And you don't like sewing. I hate it, said Anne calmly. But if you are willing to take those children from a sense of duty, surely I can do their sewing from a sense of duty. It does people good to have to do things they don't like, in moderation. End of chapter 7「Chapter Eight of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Eight Marilla Adopts Twins. Mrs. Rachel Lynde was sitting at her kitchen window, knitting a quilt just as she had been sitting one evening several years previously, when Matthew Cuthbert had driven down over the hill with what Mrs. Rachel called his imported orphan. But that had been in springtime, and this was late autumn, and all the woods were leafless and the fields sere and brown. The sun was just setting with a great deal of purple and golden pomp beyond the dark woods west of Avonlea, when a buggy, drawn by a comfortable brown nag, came down the hill. Mrs. Rachel peered at it eagerly. There's Marilla getting home from the funeral," she said to her husband, who was lying on the kitchen lounge. Thomas Lynde lay more on the lounge nowadays than he had been used to do, but Mrs. Rachel, who was so sharp at noticing anything beyond her own household, had not as yet noticed this. And she's got the twins with her. Yes, there's Davy leaning over the dashboard, grabbing at the pony's tail, and Marilla jerking him back. Dora's sitting up on the seat as prim as you please. She always looks as if she'd just been starched and ironed. Well, poor Marilla is going to have her hands full this winter, and no mistake. Still, I don't see that she could do anything less than take them, under the circumstances, and she'll have Anne to help her. Anne's tickled to death over the whole business, and she has a real knacky way with children, I must say. Dear me, it doesn't seem a day since poor Matthew brought Anne herself home, and everybody laughed at the idea of Marilla bringing up a child. And now she has adopted twins. You're never safe from being surprised till you're dead. The fat pony jogged over the bridge in Lynn's Hollow and along the Green Gables Lane. Marilla's face was rather grim. It was ten miles from East Grafton, and Davy Keith seemed to be possessed with a passion for perpetual motion. It was beyond Marilla's power to make him sit still, and she had been in an agony the whole way lest he fall over the back of the wagon and break his neck or tumble over the dashboard under the pony's heels. In despair she finally threatened to whip him soundly when she got him home. Whereupon Davy climbed into her lap, regardless of the reins, flung his chubby arms about her neck, and gave her a bear-like hug. "'I don't believe you mean it,' he said, smacking her wrinkled cheek affectionately. "'You don't look like a lady who'd whip a little boy just cause he couldn't keep still. Didn't you find it awful hard to keep still when you was only as old as me?' No. I always kept still when I was told," said Marilla, trying to speak sternly, albeit she felt her heart waxing soft within her under Davy's impulsive caresses. "'Well, I suppose that was cause you was a girl,' said Davy, squirming back to his place after another hug. "'You was a girl once, I suppose, though it's awful funny to think of it. 
Dora can sit still, but there ain't much fun in it, I don't think. Seems to me it must be slow to be a girl. Here, Dora, let me liven you up a bit. Davy's method of livening up was to grasp Dora's curls in his fingers and give them a tug. Dora shrieked and then cried. How can you be such a naughty boy, and your poor mother just laid in her grave this very day? Demanded Marilla despairingly. But she was glad to die, said Davy confidentially. I know, cause she told me so. She was awful tired of being sick. We'd a long talk the night before she died. She told me you was going to take me and Dora for the winter, and I was to be a good boy. I'm going to be good, but can't you be good running round just as well as sitting still? And she said I was always to be kind to Dora and stand up for her, and I'm going to. Do you call pulling her hair being kind to her? Well, I ain't going to let anybody else pull it, said Davy, doubling up his fists and frowning. They'd just better try it. I didn't hurt her much. She just cried cause she's a girl. I'm glad I'm a boy, but I'm sorry I'm a twin. When Jimmy Sprott's sister contradicts him, he just says, I'm older'n you, so of course I know better. And that settles her. But I can't tell Dora that, and she just goes on thinking different from me. You might let me drive the Gigi for a spell since I'm a man. Altogether, Marilla was a thankful woman when she drove into her own yard, where the wind of the autumn night was dancing with the brown leaves. Anne was at the gate to meet them and lift the twins out. Dora submitted calmly to be kissed, but Davy responded to Anne's welcome with one of his hearty hugs and the cheerful announcement, I'm Mr. Davy Keith. At the supper table, Dora behaved like a little lady, but Davy's manners left much to be desired. I'm so hungry I ain't got time to eat politely, he said when Marilla reproved him. Dora ain't half as hungry as I am. Look at all the excise I got on the road here. That cake's awful nice and plummy. We haven't had any cake at home for ever and ever so long, cause mother was too sick to make it, and Mrs. Sprott said it was just as much as she could do to bake our bread for us. And Mrs. Wiggins never puts any plums in her cakes. Catch her. Can I have another piece? Marilla would have refused, but Anne cut a generous second slice. However, she reminded Davy that he ought to say thank you for it. Davy merely grinned at her and took a huge bite. When he had finished the slice, he said, If you'll give me another piece, I'll say thank you for it. No, you have had plenty of cake, said Marilla in a tone which Anne knew and Davy was to learn to be final. Davy winked at Anne, and then, leaning over the table, snatched Dora's first piece of cake, from which she had just taken one dainty little bite, out of her very fingers, and opening his mouth to the fullest extent, crammed the whole slice in. Dora's lip trembled, and Marilla was speechless with horror. Anne promptly exclaimed, with her best schoolma'am air, "'Oh, Davy, gentlemen don't do things like that!' "'I know they don't,' said Davy, as soon as he could speak. "'But I ain't a gemplum.' "'But don't you want to be?' said shocked Anne. "'Course I do. But you can't be a gemplum till you grow up.' "'Oh, indeed you can,' Anne hastened to say, thinking she saw a chance to sow good seed betimes. "'You can begin to be a gentleman when you are a little boy, and gentlemen never snatch things from ladies, or forget to say thank you, or pull anybody's hair.' "'They don't have much fun, that's a fact,' 
said Davy frankly. I guess I'll wait till I'm grown up to be one. Marilla, with a resigned air, had cut another piece of cake for Dora. She did not feel able to cope with Davy just then. It had been a hard day for her, what with the funeral and the long drive. At that moment she looked forward to the future with a pessimism that would have done credit to Eliza Andrews herself. The twins were not noticeably alike, although both were fair. Dora had long, sleek curls that never got out of order. Davy had a crop of fuzzy little yellow ringlets all over his round head. Dora's hazel eyes were gentle and mild. Davy's were as roguish and dancing as an elf's. Dora's nose was straight, Davy's a positive snub. Dora had a prunes and prisms mouth. Davy's was all smiles, and besides he had a dimple in one cheek and none in the other, which gave him a dear, comical, lopsided look when he laughed. Mirth and mischief lurked in every corner of his little face. "'They'd better go to bed,' said Marilla, who thought it was the easiest way to dispose of them. "'Dora will sleep with me, and you can put Davy in the west gable. You're not afraid to sleep alone, are you, Davy?' "'No, but I ain't going to bed for ever so long yet,' said Davy comfortably. "'Oh, yes, you are.' That was all the much-tried Marilla said, but something in her tone squelched even Davy. He trotted obediently upstairs with Anne. "'When I'm grown up, the very first thing I'm going to do is stay up all night just to see what it would be like,' he told her confidentially. In after years Marilla never thought of that first week of the twins' sojourn at Green Gables without a shiver. Not that it really was so much worse than the weeks that followed it, but it seemed so by reason of its novelty. There was seldom a waking minute of any day when Davy was not in mischief or devising it, but his first notable exploit occurred two days after his arrival, on Sunday morning, a fine warm day, as hazy and mild as September. Anne dressed him for church while Marilla attended to Dora. Davy at first objected strongly to having his face washed. "'Marilla washed it yesterday, and Mrs. Wiggins scoured me with hard soap the day of the funeral. That's enough for one week. I don't see the good of being so awful clean. It's lots more comfortable being dirty.' "'Paul Irving washes his face every day of his own accord,' said Anne astutely. Davy had been an inmate of Green Gables for little over forty-eight hours, but he already worshipped Anne and hated Paul Irving, whom he had heard Anne praising enthusiastically the day after his arrival. If Paul Irving washed his face every day, that settled it. He, Davy Keith, would do it too, if it killed him. The same consideration induced him to submit meekly to the other details of his toilet, and he was really a handsome little lad when all was done. Anne felt an almost maternal pride in him as she led him into the old Cuthbert pew. Davy behaved quite well at first, being occupied in casting covert glances at all the small boys within view, and wondering which was Paul Irving. The first two hymns and the scripture reading passed off uneventfully. Mr. Allen was praying when the sensation came. Loretta White was sitting in front of Davy, her head slightly bent and her fair hair hanging in two long braids, between which a tempting expanse of white neck showed, encased in a loose lace frill. Loretta was a fat, placid-looking child of eight, who had conducted herself irreproachably in church from the very first day her mother carried her there, an infant of six months. Davy thrust his hand into his pocket and produced a caterpillar, a furry, squirming caterpillar. Marilla saw and clutched at him, but she was too late. Davy dropped the caterpillar down Loretta's neck. 
Right into the middle of Mr. Allen's prayer burst a series of piercing shrieks. The minister stopped, appalled, and opened his eyes. Every head in the congregation flew up. Loretta White was dancing up and down in her pew, clutching frantically at the back of her dress. Al! Mommer! Mommer! Al! Take it off! Al! Get it out! Al! That bad boy put it down my neck! Al! Mommer! It's going further down! Al! 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 Mrs. White rose and with a set face carried the hysterical, writhing Loretta out of church. Her shrieks died away in the distance, and Mr. Allen proceeded with the service. But everybody felt that it was a failure that day. For the first time in her life Marilla took no notice of the text, and Anne sat with scarlet cheeks of mortification. When they got home Marilla put Davy to bed and made him stay there for the rest of the day. She would not give him any dinner but allowed him a plain tea of bread and milk. Anne carried it to him and sat sorrowfully by him while he ate it with an unrepentant relish. But Anne's mournful eyes troubled him. "'I suppose,' he said reflectively, "'that Paul Irving wouldn't have dropped a caterpillar down a girl's neck in church, would he?' "'Indeed he wouldn't,' said Anne sadly. "'Well, I'm kind of sorry I did it then,' conceded Davy. "'But it was such a jolly big caterpillar. I picked him up on the church steps just as we went in. It seemed a pity to waste him. And say, wasn't it fun to hear that girl yell? Tuesday afternoon the Aid Society met at Green Gables. Anne hurried home from school, for she knew that Marilla would need all the assistance she could give. Dora, neat and proper, in her nicely starched white dress and black sash, was sitting with the members of the Aid in the parlor, speaking demurely when spoken to, keeping silence when not, and in every way comporting herself as a model child. Davy, blissfully dirty, was making mud pies in the barnyard. "'I told him he might,' said Marilla wearily. "'I thought it would keep him out of worse mischief. He can only get dirty at that. We'll have our teas over before we call him to his. Dora can have hers with us, but I would never dare to let Davy sit down at the table with all the aides here.' When Anne went to call the aides to tea, she found that Dora was not in the parlor. Mrs. Jasper Bell said Davy had come to the front door and called her out. A hasty consultation with Marilla in the pantry resulted in a decision to let both children have their teas together later on. Tea was half over when the dining room was invaded by a forlorn figure. Marilla and Anne stared in dismay, the aides in amazement. Could that be Dora? that sobbing nondescript in a drenched, dripping dress, and hair from which the water was streaming on Marilla's new coin-spot rug? "'Dora, what has happened to you?' cried Anne, with a guilty glance at Mrs. Jasper Bell, whose family was said to be the only one in the world in which accidents never occurred. "'Davy made me walk the big pen fence,' <laughs> wailed Dora. "'I didn't want to, but he called me a fraid cat.' And I fell off into the pig pen, and my dress got all dirty, and the pig runned right over me. My dress was just awful, but Davy said if I'd stand under the pump, he'd wash it clean. And I did, and he pumped water all over me. <laughs> but my dress ain't a bit cleaner, and my pretty sash and shoes is all spoiled. Anne did the honors of the table alone for the rest of the meal, while Marilla went upstairs and redressed Dora in her old clothes. Davy was caught and sent to bed without any supper. Anne went to his room at twilight and talked to him seriously, a method in which she had great faith, not altogether unjustified by results. 
she told him she felt very badly over his conduct. I feel sorry now myself, admitted Davy. But the trouble is I never feel sorry for doing things till after I've did them. Dora wouldn't help me make pies cause she was afraid of messing her clothes and that made me hopping mad. I suppose Paul Irving wouldn't have made his sister walk a pig pen fence if he knew she'd fall in? No, he would never dream of such a thing. Paul is a perfect little gentleman. Davy screwed his eyes tight shut and seemed to meditate on this for a time. Then he crawled up and put his arms about Anne's neck, snuggling his flushed little face down on her shoulder. Anne, don't you like me a little bit, even if I ain't a good boy like Paul? Indeed I do, said Anne sincerely. Somehow it was impossible to help liking Davy. But I'd like you better still if you weren't so naughty. I did something else today, went on Davy in a muffled voice. I'm sorry now, but I'm awful scared to tell you. You won't be very cross, will you? And you won't tell Marilla, will you? I don't know, Davy. Perhaps I ought to tell her. But I think I can promise you I won't if you promise me that you will never do it again, whatever it is. No, I never will. Anyhow, it's not likely I'd find any more of them this year. I found this one on the cellar steps. Davy, what is it you've done? I put a toad in Marilla's bed. You can go and take it out if you like. But say, Anne, wouldn't it be fun to leave it there? Davy Keith! Anne sprang from Davy's clinging arms and flew across the hall to Marilla's room. The bed was slightly rumpled. She threw back the blankets in nervous haste, and there, in very truth, was the toad, blinking at her from under a pillow. "'How can I carry that awful thing out?' moaned Anne with a shudder. The fire shovel suggested itself to her, and she crept down to get it while Marilla was busy in the pantry. Anne had her own troubles carrying that toad downstairs, for it hopped off the shovel three times, and once she thought she had lost it in the hall. When she finally deposited it in the cherry orchard, she drew a long breath of relief. If Marilla knew she'd never feel safe getting into bed again in her life, I'm so glad that little sinner repented in time. There's Diana signaling to me from her window. I'm glad. I really feel the need of some diversion, for what with Anthony Pye in school and Davy Keith at home, my nerves have had about all they can endure for one day. End of chapter 8《Chapter Nine of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Nine A Question of Color. That old nuisance of a Rachel Lynde was here again today, pestering me for a subscription towards buying a carpet for the vestry room said Mr. Harrison wrathfully. I detest that woman more than anybody I know. She can put a whole sermon, text, comment, and application into six words, and throw it back at you like a brick. Anne, who was perched on the edge of the veranda, enjoying the charm of a mild west wind blowing across a newly ploughed field on a grey November twilight, and piping a quaint little melody among the twisted firs below the garden, turned her dreamy face over her shoulder. The trouble is, you and Mrs. Lynde don't understand one another, she explained. That is always what is wrong when people don't like each other. I didn't like Mrs. Lynde at first either, but as soon as I came to understand her I learned to. Miss Lynde may be in a quiet taste with some folks, 
but I didn't keep on eating bananas because I was told I'd learn to like them if I did, growled Mr. Harrison. And as for understanding her, I understand that she is a confirmed busybody, and I told her so. Oh, that must have hurt her feelings very much, said Anne reproachfully. How could you say such a thing? I said some dreadful things to Mrs. Lynde long ago, but it was when I had lost my temper. I couldn't say them deliberately. It was the truth, and I believe in telling the truth to everybody. But you don't tell the whole truth, objected Anne. You only tell the disagreeable part of the truth. Now, you've told me a dozen times that my hair was red, but you've never once told me that I had a nice nose. I dare say you know it without any telling, chuckled Mr. Harrison. I know I have red hair, too, although it's much darker than it used to be, so there's no need of telling me that, either. Well, well, I'll try not to mention it again, since you're so sensitive. You must excuse me, Anne. I've got a habit of being outspoken, and folks mustn't mind it. But they can't help minding it, and I don't think it's any help that it's your habit. What would you think of a person who went about sticking pins and needles into people and saying, Excuse me, you mustn't mind it, it's just a habit I've got. You'd think he was crazy, wouldn't you? And as for Mrs. Lynde being a busybody, perhaps she is. But did you tell her she had a very kind heart and always helped the poor, and never said a word when Timothy Cotton stole a crock of butter out of her dairy and told his wife he'd bought it from her? Mrs. Cotton cast it up to her the next time they met that it tasted of turnips, and Mrs. Lynde just said she was sorry it had turned out so poorly. I suppose she has some good qualities, conceded Mr. Harrison grudgingly. Most folks have. I have some myself, though you might never suspect it. But anyhow, I ain't going to give anything to that carpet. Folks are everlasting begging for money here, it seems to me. How's your project of painting the hall coming on? Splendidly. We had a meeting of the AVIS last Friday night and found that we had plenty of money subscribed to paint the hall and shingle the roof, too. Most people gave very liberally, Mr. Harrison. Anne was a sweet-souled lass, but she could instill some venom into innocent italics when occasion required. What color are you going to have it? We have decided on a very pretty green. The roof will be dark red, of course. Mr. Roger Pye is going to get the paint in town today. Who's got the job? Mr. Joshua Pye of Carmody. He has nearly finished the shingling. We had to give him the contract for every one of the pies, and there are four families, you know. Said they wouldn't give a cent unless Joshua got it. They had subscribed twelve dollars between them, and we thought that was too much to lose, although some people think we shouldn't have given in to the pies. Mrs. Lynde says they try to run everything. The main question is, will this Joshua do his work well? If he does, I don't see that it matters whether his name is Pye or Pudding. He has the reputation of being a good workman, though they say he's a very peculiar man. He hardly ever talks. He's peculiar enough all right, then, said Mr. Harrison dryly. Or at least folks here will call him so. I never was much of a talker till I came to Avonlea, and then I had to begin in self-defense or Miss Lynde would have said I was dumb and started a subscription to have me taught sign language. You're not going yet, Anne. I must. I have some sewing to do for Dora this evening. Besides, Davy is probably breaking Marilla's heart with some new mischief by this time. This morning, the first thing he said was, Where does the dark go, Anne? I want to know. I told him it went around to the other side of the world, but after breakfast he declared it didn't, that it went down the well. Marilla says she caught him hanging over the well box four times today, trying to reach down to the dark. He's a limb, declared Mr. Harrison. He came over here yesterday and pulled six feathers out of Ginger's tail, before I could get in from the barn. The poor bird has been moping ever since, 
Those children must be a sight of trouble to you folks. Everything that's worth having is some trouble, said Anne, secretly resolving to forgive Davy's next offense, whatever it might be, since he had avenged her on Ginger. Mr. Roger Pye brought the hall paint home that night, and Mr. Joshua Pye, a surly, taciturn man, began painting the next day. He was not disturbed in his task. The hall was situated on what was called the Lower Road. In late autumn this road was always muddy and wet, and people going to Carmody travelled by the longer Upper Road. The hall was so closely surrounded by fir woods that it was invisible unless you were near it. Mr. Joshua Pye painted away in the solitude and independence that were so dear to his unsociable heart. Friday afternoon he finished his job and went home to Carmody. Soon after his departure Mrs. Rachel Lynde drove by, having braved the mud of the lower road out of curiosity to see what the hall looked like in its new coat of paint. When she rounded the spruce curve she saw. The sight affected Mrs. Lynde oddly. She dropped the reins, held up her hands, and said, "'Gracious Providence!' She stared as if she could not believe her eyes. Then she laughed almost hysterically. <laughs> "'There must be some mistake. There must. I knew those pies would make a mess of things.' Mrs. Lynde drove home, meeting several people on the road and stopping to tell them about the hall. The news flew like wildfire. Gilbert Blythe, poring over a textbook at home, heard about it from his father's hired boy at sunset, and rushed breathlessly to Green Gables, joined on the way by Fred Wright. They found Diana Berry, Jane Andrews, and Anne Shirley, despair personified, at the yard gate of Green Gables, under the big leafless willows. "'It isn't true, surely, Anne!' exclaimed Gilbert. "'It is true,' answered Anne, looking like the muse of tragedy. "'Mrs. Lynde called on her way from Carmody to tell me, Oh, it is simply dreadful! What is the use of trying to improve anything?" "'What is dreadful?' asked Oliver Sloane, arriving at this moment with a bandbox he had brought from town for Marilla. "'Haven't you heard?' said Jane wrathfully. "'Well, it's simply this. Joshua Pye has gone and painted the hall blue instead of green. A deep, brilliant blue, the shade they use for painting carts and wheelbarrows. And Mrs. Lynde says it's the most hideous color for a building, especially when combined with a red roof, that she ever saw or imagined. You could simply have knocked me down with a feather when I heard it. It's heartbreaking after all the trouble we've had. How on earth could such a mistake have happened? wailed Diana. The blame of this unmerciful disaster was eventually narrowed down to the pies. The improvers had decided to use Morton Harris paints, and the Morton Harris paint cans were numbered according to a color card. A purchaser chose his shade on the card and ordered by the accompanying number. Number 147 was the shade of green desired, and when Mr. Roger Pye sent word to the improvers by his son, John Andrew, that he was going to town and would get their paint for them, the improvers told John Andrew to tell his father to get 147. John Andrew always averred that he did so. But Mr. Roger Pye as stanchly declared that John Andrew told him 157, and there the matter stands to this day. That night there was blank dismay in every Avonlea house where an improver lived. The gloom at Green Gables was so intense that it quenched even Davy. Anne wept and would not be comforted. "'I must cry, even if I am almost seventeen, Marilla,' she sobbed. "'It is so mortifying and it sounds the death knell of our society. 
will simply be laughed out of existence. In life, as in dreams, however, things often go by contraries. The Avonlea people did not laugh, they were too angry. Their money had gone to paint the hall, and consequently they felt themselves bitterly aggrieved by the mistake. Public indignation centered on the pies. Roger Pye and John Andrew had bungled the matter between them, and as for Joshua Pye, he must be a born fool not to suspect there was something wrong when he opened the cans and saw the color of the paint. Joshua Pye, when thus anadmadverted upon, retorted that the Avonlea taste in colors was no business of his, whatever his private opinion might be. He had been hired to paint the hall, not to talk about it, and he meant to have his money for it. The improvers paid him his money in bitterness of spirit, after consulting Mr. Peter Sloane, who was a magistrate. "'You'll have to pay it,' Peter told them. "'You can't hold him responsible for the mistake, since he claims he was never told what the color was supposed to be, but just given the cans and told to go ahead. But it's a burning shame, and that hall certainly does look awful.' The luckless improvers expected that Avonlea would be more prejudiced than ever against them, but instead public sympathy veered around in their favor. People thought the eager, enthusiastic little band who had worked so hard for their object had been badly used. Mrs. Lynde told them to keep on and show the pies that there really were people in the world who could do things without making a muddle of them. Mr. Major Spencer sent them word that he would clean out all the stumps along the road front of his farm and seed it down with grass at his own expense. And Mrs. Hiram Sloane called at the school one day and beckoned Anne mysteriously out into the porch to tell her that if the society wanted to make a geranium bed at the crossroads in the spring, they needn't be afraid of her cow, for she would see that the marauding animal was kept within safe bounds. Even Mr. Harrison chuckled, if he chuckled at all, in private, and was all sympathy outwardly. Never mind, Anne. Most paints fade uglier every year, but that blue is as ugly as it can be to begin with, so it's bound to fade prettier, and the roof is shingled and painted all right. Folks will be able to sit in the hall after this without being leaked on. You've accomplished so much anyhow. But Avonlea's blue hall will be a byword in all the neighboring settlements from this time out, said Anne bitterly. And it must be confessed that it was. End of chapter 9「Chapter 10 of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 10 Davy in Search of a Sensation. Anne, walking home from school through the birch path one November afternoon, felt convinced afresh that life was a very wonderful thing. The day had been a good day, all had gone well in her little kingdom. St. Clair Donnell had not fought any of the other boys over the question of his name. Prilly Rogerson's face had been so puffed up from the effects of toothache that she did not once try to coquette with the boys in her vicinity. Barbara Shaw had met with only one accident, spilling a dipper of water over the floor, and Anthony Pye had not been in school at all. "'What a nice month this November has been,' said Anne, who had never quite got over her childish habit of talking to herself. November is usually such a disagreeable month, as if the year had suddenly found out that she was growing old and could do nothing but weep and fret over it. This year is growing old gracefully, just like a stately old lady who knows she can be charming even with gray hair and wrinkles. 
we've had lovely days and delicious twilights. This last fortnight has been so peaceful, and even Davy has been almost well-behaved. I really think he is improving a great deal. How quiet the woods are today! Not a murmur except that soft wind purring in the treetops. It sounds like surf on a faraway shore. How dear the woods are! You beautiful trees! I love every one of you as a friend." Anne paused to throw her arm about a slim young birch and kiss its cream-white trunk. Diana, rounding a curve in the path, saw her and laughed. <laughs> Anne, Shirley, you're only pretending to be grown up. I believe when you're alone you're as much a little girl as you ever were. Well, one can't get over the habit of being a little girl all at once, said Anne gaily. You see, I was little for fourteen years and I've only been grown-uppish for scarcely three. I'm sure I shall always feel like a child in the woods. These walks home from school are almost the only time I have for dreaming, except the half hour or so before I go to sleep. I'm so busy with teaching and studying and helping Marilla with the twins that I haven't another moment for imagining things. You don't know what splendid adventures I have for a little while after I go to bed in the East Gable every night. I always imagine I'm something very brilliant and triumphant and splendid—a great prima donna, or a Red Cross nurse, or a queen. Last night I was a queen. It's really splendid to imagine you are a queen. You have all the fun of it without any of the inconveniences, and you can stop being a queen whenever you want to, which you couldn't in real life. But here in the woods I like best to imagine quite different things. I'm a dryad living in an old pine, or a little brown wood elf hiding under a crinkled leaf. That white birch you caught me kissing is a sister of mine. The only difference is, she's a tree and I'm a girl, but that's no real difference. Where are you going, Diana? Down to the Dixons. I promised to help Alberta cut out her new dress. Can't you walk down in the evening, Anne, and come home with me? I might, since Fred Wright is away in town," said Anne, with a rather too innocent face. Diana blushed, tossed her head, and walked on. She did not look offended, however. Anne fully intended to go down to the Dixons that evening, but she did not. When she arrived at Green Gables, she found a state of affairs which banished every other thought from her mind. Marilla met her in the yard—a wild-eyed Marilla. "'Anne, Dora is lost!' "'Dora? Lost?' Anne looked at Davy, who was swinging on the yard gate, and detected merriment in his eyes. "'Davy, do you know where she is?' "'No, I don't.' said Davy stoutly. I haven't seen her since dinner-time, cross my heart. I've been away ever since one o'clock, said Marilla. Thomas Lynde took sick all of a sudden, and Rachel sent up for me to go at once. When I left here, Dora was playing with her doll in the kitchen, and Davy was making mud-pies behind the barn. I only got home half an hour ago, and no Dora to be seen. Davy declares he never saw her since I left. Neither I did avowed Davy solemnly. "'She must be somewhere around,' said Anne. "'She would never wander far away alone. You know how timid she is. Perhaps she has fallen asleep in one of the rooms.' Marilla shook her head. "'I've hunted the whole house through. But she may be in some of the buildings.' A thorough search followed. Every corner of house, yard, and outbuildings was ransacked by those two distracted people. Anne roved the orchards in the haunted wood, calling Dora's name. Marilla took a candle and explored the cellar. Davy accompanied each of them in turn, and was fertile in thinking of places where Dora could possibly be. Finally they met again in the yard. 
Oh, it's a most mysterious thing, groaned Marilla. Where can she be? said Anne miserably. Maybe she's tumbled into the well, suggested Davy cheerfully. Anne and Marilla looked fearfully into each other's eyes. The thought had been with them both through their entire search, but neither had dared to put it into words. She, she might have, whispered Marilla. Anne, feeling faint and sick, went to the well box and peered over. The bucket sat on the shelf inside. Far down below was a tiny glimmer of still water. The Cuthbert well was the deepest in Avonlea. If Dora, but Anne could not face the idea. She shuddered and turned away. Run across for Mr. Harrison," said Marilla, wringing her hands. Mr. Harrison and John Henry are both away. They went to town today. I'll go for Mr. Barry. Mr. Barry came back with Anne, carrying a coil of rope to which was attached a claw-like instrument that had been the business end of a grubbing fork. Marilla and Anne stood by, cold and shaken with horror and dread, while Mr. Barry dragged the well, and Davy, astride the gate, watched the group with a face indicative of huge enjoyment. Finally Mr. Barry shook his head with a relieved air. She can't be down there. It's a mighty curious thing where she could have got to, though. Look here, young man, are you sure you've no idea where your sister is? I've told you a dozen times that I haven't, said Davy with an injured air. Maybe a tramp came and stole her. Nonsense, said Marilla sharply, relieved from her horrible fear of the well. And do you suppose she could have strayed over to Mr. Harrison's? She has always been talking about his parrot ever since that time you took her over. I can't believe Dora would venture so far alone, but I'll go over and see," said Anne. Nobody was looking at Davy just then, or it would have been seen that a very decided change came over his face. He quietly slipped off the gate and ran, as fast as his fat legs could carry him, to the barn. Anne hastened across the fields to the Harrison establishment in no very hopeful frame of mind. The house was locked, the window shades were down, and there was no sign of anything living about the place. She stood on the veranda and called Dora loudly. Ginger, in the kitchen behind her, shrieked and swore with sudden fierceness, but between his outbursts Anne heard a plaintive cry from the little building in the yard which served Mr. Harrison as a tool-house. Anne flew to the door, unhasped it, and caught up a small mortal with a tear-stained face who was sitting forlornly on an upturned nail-keg. "'Oh, Dora! Dora, what a fright you have given us! How came you to be here?' <laughs> Davy and I came over to see Ginger," sobbed Dora. <laughs> but we couldn't see him after all. Only Davy made him swear by kicking the door. <laughs> and, and then Davy brought me here and run out and shut the door. And I couldn't get out. <laughs> I cried and cried. I was frightened. And oh, I'm so hungry and cold. And I thought you'd never come, Anne. Davy? But Anne could say no more. She carried Dora home with a heavy heart. Her joy at finding the child safe and sound was drowned out in the pain caused by Davy's behavior. The freak of shutting Dora up might easily have been pardoned. But Davy had told falsehoods, downright cold-blooded falsehoods about it. That was the ugly fact, and Anne could not shut her eyes to it. She could have sat down and cried with sheer disappointment. She had grown to love Davy dearly—how dearly she had not known until this minute. 
and it hurt her unbearably to discover that he was guilty of deliberate falsehood. Marilla listened to Anne's tale in a silence that boded no good Davyward. Mr. Barry laughed and advised that Davy be summarily dealt with. When he had gone home, Anne soothed and warmed the sobbing, shivering Dora, got her her supper and put her to bed. Then she returned to the kitchen, just as Marilla came grimly in, leading, or rather pulling, the reluctant, cobwebby Davy, whom she had just found hidden away in the darkest corner of the stable. She jerked him to the mat on the middle of the floor and then went and sat down by the east window. Anne was sitting limply by the west window. Between them stood the culprit. His back was toward Marilla, and it was a meek, subdued, frightened back. But his face was toward Anne, and although it was a little shamefaced, there was a gleam of comradeship in Davy's eyes, as if he knew he had done wrong and was going to be punished for it, but could count on a laugh over it all with Anne later on. But no half-hidden smile answered him in Anne's gray eyes, as there might have done had it been only a question of mischief. There was something else, something ugly and repulsive. "'How could you behave so, Davy?' she asked sorrowfully. Davy squirmed uncomfortably. "'I just did it for fun. Things have been so awful quiet here for so long that I thought it would be fun to give you folks a big scare. It was, too.' In spite of fear and a little remorse, Davy grinned over the recollection. "'But you told a falsehood about it, Davy,' said Anne, more sorrowfully than ever. Davy looked puzzled. "'What's a falsehood? Do you mean a whopper?' "'I mean a story that was not true.' "'Course I did,' said Davy frankly. "'If I hadn't, you wouldn't have been scared. I had to tell it.' Anne was feeling the reaction from her fright and exertions. Davy's impenitent attitude gave the finishing touch. Two big tears brimmed up in her eyes. "'Oh, Davy, how could you?' she said with a quiver in her voice. "'Don't you know how wrong it was?' Davy was aghast. Anne crying. He had made Anne cry. A flood of real remorse rolled like a wave over his warm little heart and engulfed it. He rushed to Anne, hurled himself into her lap, flung his arms around her neck, and burst into tears. <laughs> I didn't know it was wrong to tell whoppers, he sobbed. How did you expect me to know it was wrong? All Mr. Spratt's children told them regular every day, and crossed their hearts, too. I suppose Paul Irving never tells whoppers, and here I've been trying awful hard to be as good as him. But now I suppose you'll never love me again. But I think you might have told me it was wrong. I'm awful sorry I've made you cry, Anne, and I'll never tell a whopper again. Davy buried his face in Anne's shoulder and cried stormily. Anne, in a sudden glad flash of understanding, held him tight and looked over his curly thatch at Marilla. He didn't know it was wrong to tell falsehoods, Marilla. I think we must forgive him for that part of it this time, if he will promise never to say what isn't true again. I never will, now that I know it's bad, asseverated Davy between sobs. If you ever catch me telling a whopper again, you can— Davy groped mentally for a suitable penance. You can skim me alive, Anne. Don't say whopper, Davy. Say falsehood, said the schoolma'am. Why? queried Davy, settling comfortably down and looking up with a tear-stained, investigating face. Why ain't whopper as good as falsehood? 
I want to know. It's just as big a word. It's slang, and it's wrong for little boys to use slang. There's an awful lot of things it's wrong to do, said Davy with a sigh. I never supposed there was so many. I'm sorry it's wrong to tell what falsehoods, cause it's awful handy. But since it is, I'm never going to tell any more. What are you going to do to me for telling them this time? I want to know. Anne looked beseechingly at Marilla. I don't want to be too hard on the child, said Marilla. I dare say nobody ever did tell him it was wrong to tell lies, and those sprot children were no fit companions for him. Poor Mary was too sick to train him properly, and I presume you couldn't expect a six-year-old child to know things like that by instinct. I suppose we'll just have to assume he doesn't know anything right and begin at the beginning. But he'll have to be punished for shutting Dora up, and I can't think of any way except to send him to bed without his supper, and we've done that so often. Can't you suggest something else, Anne? I should think you ought to be able to, with that imagination you're always talking of. But punishments are so horrid, and I like to imagine only pleasant things," said Anne, cuddling Davy. There are so many unpleasant things in the world already that there is no use in imagining any more. In the end Davy was sent to bed, as usual, there to remain until noon next day. He evidently did some thinking, for when Anne went up to her room a little later, she heard him calling her name softly. Going in, she found him sitting up in bed, with his elbows on his knees and his chin propped on his hands. "'Anne,' he said solemnly, "'is it wrong for everybody to tell what falsehoods? I want to know.' "'Yes, indeed.' "'Is it wrong for a grown-up person?' "'Yes.' "'Then,' said Davy decidedly, "'Marilla is bad, for she tells them, and she's worse than me, for I didn't know it was wrong, but she does.' Davy Keith, Marilla never told a story in her life," said Anne indignantly. She did so. She told me last Tuesday that something dreadful would happen to me if I didn't say my prayers every night. And I haven't said them for over a week, just to see what would happen. And nothing has," concluded Davy in an aggrieved tone. Anne choked back a mad desire to laugh with the conviction that it would be fatal and then earnestly set about saving Marilla's reputation. "'Why, Davy Keith,' she said solemnly, "'something dreadful has happened to you this very day.' Davy looked skeptical. "'I suppose you mean being sent to bed without any supper,' he said scornfully. "'But that isn't dreadful. Course I don't like it, but I've been sent to bed so much since I came here that I'm getting used to it.' And you don't save anything by making me go without supper, either, for I always eat twice as much for breakfast." "'I don't mean you're being sent to bed. I mean the fact that you told a falsehood today. And Davy—' Anne leaned over the footboard of the bed and shook her finger impressively at the culprit. For a boy to tell what isn't true is almost the worst thing that could happen to him—almost the very worst. So you see Marilla told you the truth. But I thought the something bad would be exciting," protested Davy in an injured tone. Marilla isn't to blame for what you thought. Bad things aren't always exciting. They're very often just nasty and stupid. It was awful funny to see Marilla and you looking down the well, though," said Davy, hugging his knees. Anne kept a sober face until she got downstairs, and then she collapsed on the sitting-room lounge and laughed until her sides ached. I wish you'd tell me the joke," said Marilla, a little grimly. 
I haven't seen much to laugh at today. You'll laugh when you hear this, assured Anne. And Marilla did laugh, which showed how much her education had advanced since the adoption of Anne. But she sighed immediately afterwards. I suppose I shouldn't have told him that, although I heard a minister say it to a child once. But he did aggravate me so. It was that night you were at the Carmody concert and I was putting him to bed. He said he didn't see the good of praying until he got big enough to be of some importance to God. Anne, I do not know what we are going to do with that child. I never saw his beat. I'm feeling clean discouraged. Oh, don't say that, Marilla. Remember how bad I was when I came here. Anne, you were never bad. Never. I see that now, when I've learned what real badness is. You were always getting into terrible scrapes, I'll admit, but your motive was always good. Davy is just bad from sheer love of it. Oh, no, I don't think it is real badness with him, either, pleaded Anne. It's just mischief. And it is rather quiet for him here, you know. He has no other boys to play with, and his mind has to have something to occupy it. Dora is so prim and proper she is no good for a boy's playmate. I really think it would be better to let them go to school, Marilla. No said Marilla resolutely. My father always said that no child should be cooped up in the four walls of a school until it was seven years old, and Mr. Allen says the same thing. The twins can have a few lessons at home, but go to school they shan't till they're seven. Well, we must try to reform Davy at home, then, said Anne cheerfully. With all his faults he's really a dear little chap. I can't help loving him. Marilla, it may be a dreadful thing to say, but honestly, I like Davy better than Dora, for all she's so good. I don't know but that I do myself," confessed Marilla. And it isn't fair, for Dora isn't a bit of trouble. There couldn't be a better child, and you'd hardly know she was in the house. Dora is too good, said Anne. She'd behave just as well if there wasn't a soul to tell her what to do. She was born already brought up, so she doesn't need us. And I think, concluded Anne, hitting on a very vital truth that we always love best the people who need us. Davy needs us badly." "'He certainly needs something,' agreed Marilla. Rachel Lynde would say it was a good spanking." End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 11 Facts and Fancies. Teaching is really very interesting work, wrote Anne to a Queen's Academy chum. Jane says she thinks it is monotonous, but I don't find it so. Something funny is almost sure to happen every day, and the children say such amusing things. Jane says she punishes her pupils when they make funny speeches, which is probably why she finds teaching monotonous. This afternoon little Jimmy Andrews was trying to spell speckled and couldn't manage it. Well, he said finally, I can't spell it, but I know what it means. What? I asked. St. Clair Donnell's face, miss. St. Clair is certainly very much freckled, although I try to prevent the others from commenting on it, for I was freckled once and well do I remember it. But I don't think St. Clair minds. It was because Jimmy called him St. Clair that St. Clair pounded him on the way home from school. I heard of the pounding, but not officially, so I don't think I'll take any notice of it. 
Yesterday I was trying to teach Lottie Wright to do addition. I said, if you had three candies in one hand and two in the other, how many would you have altogether? A mouthful, said Lottie. And in the nature study class, when I asked them to give me a good reason why toads shouldn't be killed, Benji Sloane gravely answered, Because it would rain the next day. It's so hard not to laugh, Stella. I have to save up all my amusement until I get home, and Marilla says it makes her nervous to hear wild shrieks of mirth proceeding from the east gable without any apparent cause. She says a man in Grafton went insane once and that was how it began. Did you know that Thomas a Becket was canonized as a snake? Rose Bell says he was. Also that William Tyndale wrote the New Testament. Claude White says a glacier is a man who puts in window frames. I think the most difficult thing in teaching, as well as the most interesting, is to get the children to tell you their real thoughts about things. One stormy day last week I gathered them around me at dinner hour and tried to get them to talk to me just as if I were one of themselves. I asked them to tell me the things they most wanted. Some of the answers were commonplace enough—dolls, ponies, and skates. Others were decidedly original. Hester Bolter wanted to wear her Sunday dress every day and eat in the sitting-room. Hannah Bell wanted to be good without having to take any trouble about it. Marjorie White, aged ten, wanted to be a widow. Questioned why, she gravely said that if you weren't married people called you an old maid, and if you were your husband bossed you, but if you were a widow there'd be no danger of either. The most remarkable wish was Sally Bell's. She wanted a honeymoon. I asked her if she knew what it was and she said she thought it was an extra nice kind of bicycle, because her cousin in Montreal went on a honeymoon when he was married and he had always had the very latest in bicycles. Another day I asked them all to tell me the naughtiest thing they had ever done. I couldn't get the older ones to do so, but the third class answered quite freely. Eliza Bell had set fire to her aunt's carded rolls. Asked if she meant to do it, she said, not altogether. She just tried a little end to see how it would burn, and the whole bundle blazed up in a jiffy. Emerson Gillis had spent ten cents for candy when he should have put it in his missionary box. Annetta Bell's worst crime was eating some blueberries that grew in the graveyard. Willie White had slid down the sheephouse roof a lot of times with his Sunday trousers on. But I was punished for it because I had to wear patched pants to Sunday school all summer. And when you're punished for a thing, you don't have to repent of it declared Willie. I wish you could see some of their compositions. So much do I wish it that I'll send you copies of some written recently. Last week I told the fourth class I wanted them to write me letters about anything they pleased, adding by way of suggestion that they might tell me of some place they had visited or some interesting thing or person they had seen. They were to write the letters on real notepaper, seal them in an envelope, and address them to me, all without any assistance from other people. Last Friday morning I found a pile of letters on my desk, and that evening I realized afresh that teaching has its pleasures as well as its pains. Those compositions would atone for much. Here is Ned Clay's, address, spelling, and grammar as originally penned. Miss Teacher Shirley, Green Gables, P.E. Island Can, Birds. Dear Teacher, I think I will write you a composition about birds. Birds is very useful animals. My cat catches birds. His name is William, but Pa calls him Tom. He is old striped, and he got one of his ears froze off last winter. Only for that he would be a good-looking cat. 
My uncle has adopted a cat. It come to his house one day and wouldn't go away, and uncle says it has forgot more than most people ever knowed. He lets it sleep on his rocking chair, and my aunt says he thinks more of it than he does of his children. That is not right. We ought to be kind to cats and give them new milk, but we ought not be better to them than to our children. This is all I can think of, so no more at present. From Edward Blake Clay. St. Clair Donnell's is, as usual, short and to the point. St. Clair never wastes words. I do not think he chose his subject or added the postscript out of malice aforethought. It is just that he has not a great deal of tact or imagination. Dear Miss Shirley, you told us to describe something strange we have seen. I will describe the Avonlea Hall. It has two doors, an inside one and an outside one. It has six windows and a chimney. It has two ends and two sides. It is painted blue. That is what makes it strange. It is built on the lower Carmody Road. It is the third most important building in Avonlea. The others are the church and the blacksmith shop. They hold debating clubs and lectures in it and concerts. Yours truly, Jacob Donnell. P.S. The hall is a very bright blue. Annetta Bell's letter was quite long, which surprised me, for writing essays is not Annetta's forte, and hers are generally as brief as St. Clair's. Annetta is a quiet little puss and a model of good behavior, but there isn't a shadow of originality in her. Here is her letter. Dearest teacher, I think I will write you a letter to tell you how much I love you. I love you with my whole heart and soul and mind, with all there is of me to love, and I want to serve you forever. It would be my highest privilege. That is why I try so hard to be good in school and learn my lessons. You are so beautiful, my teacher. Your voice is like music, and your eyes are like pansies when the dew is on them. You are like a tall, stately queen. Your hair is like rippling gold. Anthony Pye says it is red, but you needn't pay any attention to Anthony. I have only known you for a few months, but I cannot realize that there was ever a time when I did not know you, when you had not come into my life to bless and hallow it. I will always look back to this year as the most wonderful in my life, because it brought you to me. Besides, it's the year we moved to Avonlea from Newbridge. My love for you has made my life very rich, and it has kept me from much of harm and evil. I owe this all to you, my sweetest teacher. I shall never forget how sweet you looked the last time I saw you in that black dress with flowers in your hair. I shall see you like that forever, even when we are both old and gray. You will always be young and fair to me, dearest teacher. I am thinking of you all the time, in the morning and at the noontide and at the twilight. I love you when you laugh and when you sigh, even when you look disdainful. I never saw you look cross, though Anthony Pye says you always look so, but I don't wonder you look cross at him, for he deserves it. I love you in every dress. You seem more adorable in each new dress than the last. Dearest teacher, good night. The sun has set, and the stars are shining, 
stars that are as bright and beautiful as your eyes. I kiss your hands and face, my sweet. May God watch over you and protect you from all harm. Your affectionate pupil, Annetta Bell. This extraordinary letter puzzled me not a little. I knew Annetta couldn't have composed it any more than she could fly. When I went to school the next day, I took her for a walk down to the brook at recess and asked her to tell me the truth about the letter. Annetta cried and fessed up freely. She said she had never written a letter and she didn't know how to or what to say. But there was a bundle of love letters in her mother's top bureau drawer which had been written to her by an old beau. "'It wasn't father,' sobbed Annetta. "'It was someone who was studying for a minister and so he could write lovely letters. But Ma didn't marry him after all. She said she couldn't make out what he was driving at half the time. But I thought the letters were sweet, and that I'd just copy things out of them here and there to write you. I put teacher where he put lady, and I put in something of my own when I could think of it, and I changed some words. I put dress in place of mood. I didn't know just what a mood was, but I supposed it was something to wear. I didn't suppose you'd know the difference. I don't see how you found out it wasn't all mine. You must be awful clever, teacher. I told Annetta it was very wrong to copy another person's letter and pass it off as her own. But I'm afraid that all Annetta repented of was being found out. And <laughs> I do love you, teacher, she sobbed. It was all true, even if the minister wrote it first. I do love you with all my heart. It's very difficult to scold anybody properly under such circumstances. Here is Barbara Shaw's letter. I can't reproduce the blots of the original. Dear teacher, you said we might write about a visit. I never visited but once. It was at my Aunt Mary's last winter. My Aunt Mary is a very particular woman and a great housekeeper. Well, the first night I was there we were at tea. I knocked over a jug and broke it. Aunt Mary said she had had that jug ever since she was married and nobody had ever broken it before. When we got up I stepped on her dress and all the gathers tore out of the skirt. The next morning when I got up I hit the pitcher against the basin and cracked them both and I upset a cup of tea on the tablecloth at breakfast. When I was helping Aunt Mary with the dinner dishes I dropped a china plate and it smashed. That evening I fell downstairs and sprained my ankle and had to stay in bed for a week. I heard Aunt Mary tell Uncle Joseph it was a mercy or I'd have broken everything in the house. When I got better, it was time to go home. I don't like visiting very much. I like going to school better, especially since I came to Avonlea. Yours respectfully, Barbara Shaw. Willie Whites began. Respected Miss. I want to tell you about my very brave aunt. She lives in Ontario, and one day she went out to the barn and saw a dog in the yard. The dog had no business there, so she got a stick and whacked him hard and drove him into the barn and shut him up. Pretty soon a man came, looking for an imaginary lion. Query, did Willie mean a menagerie lion? That had run away from a circus, and it turned out that the dog was a lion and my very brave aunt had drove him into the barn with a stick. It was a wonder she was not et up, but she was very brave. Emerson Gillis says if she thought it was a dog, she wasn't any braver 
than if it really was a dog. But Emerson is jealous, because he hasn't got a brave aunt himself. Nothing but uncles. I have kept the best for last. You laugh at me because I think Paul is a genius, but I am sure his letter will convince you that he is a very uncommon child. Paul lives away down near the shore with his grandmother, and he has no playmates, no real playmates. You remember our school management professor told us that we must not have favorites among our pupils, but I can't help loving Paul Irving the best of all mine. I don't think it does any harm, though, for everybody loves Paul, even Mrs. Lynde, who says she could never have believed she'd get so fond of a Yankee. The other boys in school like him, too. There is nothing weak or girlish about him in spite of his dreams and fancies. He is very manly and can hold his own in all games. He fought St. Clair Donnell recently, because St. Clair said the Union Jack was away ahead of the Stars and Stripes as a flag. The result was a drawn battle and a mutual agreement to respect each other's patriotism henceforth. St. Clair says he can hit the hardest, but Paul can hit the oftenest. Paul's Letter My dear teacher, you told us we might write you about some interesting people we knew. I think the most interesting people I know are my rock people, and I mean to tell you about them. I have never told anybody about them except Grandma and Father, but I would like to have you know about them, because you understand things. There are a great many people who do not understand things, so there is no use in telling them. My rock people live at the shore. I used to visit them almost every evening before the winter came. Now I can't go till spring, but they will be there, for people like that never change. That is the splendid thing about them. Nora was the first one of them I got acquainted with, and so I think I love her the best. She lives in Andrew's Cove, and she has black hair and black eyes, and she knows all about the mermaids and the water kelpies. You ought to hear the stories she can tell. Then there are the twin sailors. They don't live anywhere. They sail all the time, but they often come ashore to talk to me. They are a pair of jolly tars, and they have seen everything in the world, and more than what is in the world. Do you know what happened to the youngest twin sailor once? He was sailing, and he sailed right into a moonglade. A moonglade is the track the full moon makes on the water when it is rising from the sea, you know, teacher. Well, the youngest twin sailor sailed along the moonglade till he came right up to the moon, and there was a little golden door in the moon, and he opened it and sailed right through. He had some wonderful adventures in the moon, but it would make the letter too long to tell them. Then there is the golden lady of the cave. One day, I found a big cave down the shore, and I went away in, and after a while, I found the golden lady. She has golden hair right down to her feet, and her dress is all glittering and glistening like gold that is alive. And she has a golden harp and plays on it all day long. You can hear the music any time along shore if you listen closely, but most people would think it was only the wind among the rocks. I've never told Nora about the Golden Lady. I was afraid it might hurt her feelings. It even hurt her feelings if I talked too long with the twin sailors. I always met the twin sailors at the Stripe Rocks. The youngest twin sailor is very good-tempered, but the oldest twin sailor can look dreadfully fierce at times. I have my suspicions about that oldest twin. I believe he'd be a pirate if he dared. There's really something very mysterious about him. He swore once, and I told him if he ever did it again, he needn't come ashore to talk to me, because I promised Grandmother I'd never associate with anyone that swore. 
He was pretty well scared, I can tell you, and he said if I would forgive him, he would take me to the sunset. So the next evening, when I was sitting on the striped rocks, the oldest twin came sailing over the sea in an enchanted boat, and I got in her. The boat was all pearly and rainbowy, like the inside of the mussel shells, and her sail was like moonshine. Well, we sailed right across to the sunset. Think of that, teacher. I've been in the sunset. What do you suppose it is? The sunset is a land all flowers. We sailed into a great garden, and the clouds are beds of flowers. We sailed into a great harbor, all the color of gold. And I stepped right out of the boat on a big meadow, all covered with buttercups as big as roses. I stayed there for ever so long. It seemed nearly a year, but the oldest twin says it was only a few minutes. You see, in the sunset land, the time is ever so much longer than it is here. Your loving pupil, Paul Irving. P.S. Of course, this letter isn't really true, teacher. P.I. End of chapter 11「Chapter Twelve of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Twelve A Jonah Day. It really began the night before with a restless, wakeful vigil of grumbling toothache. When Anne arose in the dull, bitter winter morning, she felt that life was flat, stale, and unprofitable. She went to school in no angelic mood. Her cheek was swollen and her face ached. The schoolroom was cold and smoky, for the fire refused to burn and the children were huddled about it in shivering groups. Anne sent them to their seats with a sharper tone than she had ever used before. Anthony Pye strutted to his with his usual impertinent swagger, and she saw him whisper something to his seatmate and then glance at her with a grin. Never, so it seemed to Anne, had there been so many squeaky pencils as there were that morning, and when Barbara Shaw came up to the desk with a sum, she tripped over the coal scuttle with disastrous results. The coal rolled to every part of the room, her slate was broken into fragments, and when she picked herself up, her face, stained with coal dust, sent the boys into roars of laughter. Anne turned from the second reader class which she was hearing. "'Really, Barbara,' she said icily, "'if you cannot move without falling over something, you'd better remain in your seat. It is positively disgraceful for a girl of your age to be so awkward.' Poor Barbara stumbled back to her desk, her tears combining with the coal dust to produce an effect truly grotesque. Never before had her beloved, sympathetic teacher spoken to her in such a tone or fashion, and Barbara was heartbroken. Anne herself felt a prick of conscience, but it only served to increase her mental irritation, and the second reader class remember that lesson yet, as well as the unmerciful infliction of arithmetic that followed. Just as Anne was snapping the sums out, St. Clair Donnell arrived breathlessly. "'You are half an hour late, St. Clair,' Anne reminded him frigidly. Why is this? Please, miss, I had to help Ma make a pudding for dinner because we're expecting company and Clarice Almira's sick. Was St. Clair's answer, given in a perfectly respectful voice but nevertheless provocative of great mirth among his mates. Take your seat and work out the six problems on page 84 of your arithmetic for punishment, said Anne. 
St. Clair looked rather amazed at her tone, but he went meekly to his desk and took out his slate. Then he stealthily passed a small parcel to Joe Sloane across the aisle. Anne caught him in the act and jumped to a fatal conclusion about that parcel. Old Mrs. Hiram Sloane had lately taken to making and selling nut cakes by way of adding to her scanty income. The cakes were specially tempting to small boys, and for several weeks Anne had had not a little trouble in regard to them. On their way to school the boys would invest their spare cash at Mrs. Hiram's, bring the cakes along with them to school, and, if possible, eat them and treat their mates during school hours. Anne had warned them that if they brought any more cakes to school they would be confiscated, and yet here was St. Clair Donnell coolly passing a parcel of them, wrapped up in the blue and white striped paper Mrs. Hiram used, under her very eyes. "'Joseph,' said Anne quietly, "'bring that parcel here.' Joe, startled and abashed, obeyed. He was a fat urchin who always blushed and stuttered when he was frightened. Never did anybody look more guilty than poor Joe at that moment. "'Throw it into the fire,' said Anne. Joe looked very blank. "'P-p-p-please, miss,' he began. "'Do as I tell you, Joseph, without any words about it.' "'P-p-p-p-p-miss, there—there—' gasped Joe in desperation. "'Joseph, are you going to obey me, or are you not?' said Anne. A bolder and more self-possessed lad than Joe Sloane would have been overawed by her tone and the dangerous flash of her eyes. This was a new Anne whom none of her pupils had ever seen before. Joe, with an agonized glance at St. Clair, went to the stove, opened the big square front door, and threw the blue and white parcel in, before St. Clair, who had sprung to his feet, could utter a word. Then he dodged back just in time. For a few moments the terrified occupants of Avonlea School did not know whether it was an earthquake or a volcanic explosion that had occurred. The innocent-looking parcel which Anne had rashly supposed to contain Mrs. Hiram's nutcakes really held an assortment of firecrackers and pinwheels, for which Warren Sloane had sent to town by St. Clair Donnell's father the day before, intending to have a birthday celebration that evening. The crackers went off in a thunderclap of noise, and the pinwheels bursting out of the door spun madly around the room, hissing and spluttering. Anne dropped into her chair white with dismay, and all the girls climbed shrieking upon their desks. Joe Sloane stood as one transfixed in the midst of the commotion, and St. Clair, helpless with laughter, rocked to and fro in the aisle. Prilly Rogerson fainted and Annetta Bell went into hysterics. It seemed a long time, although it was really only a few minutes, before the last pinwheel subsided. Anne, recovering herself, sprang to open doors and windows and let out the gas and smoke which filled the room. Then she helped the girls carry the unconscious Prilly into the porch, where Barbara Shaw, in an agony of desire to be useful, poured a pailful of half-frozen water over Prilly's face and shoulders before anyone could stop her. It was a full hour before quiet was restored but it was a quiet that might be felt. Everybody realized that even the explosion had not cleared the teacher's mental atmosphere. Nobody, except Anthony Pye, dared whisper a word. Ned Clay accidentally squeaked his pencil while working a sum, caught Anne's eye, and wished the floor would open and swallow him up. The geography class were whisked through a continent with a speed that made them dizzy. The grammar class were parsed and analyzed within an inch of their lives. 
Chester Sloane, spelling odiferous with two Fs, was made to feel that he could never live down the disgrace of it, either in this world or that which is to come. Anne knew that she had made herself ridiculous, and that the incident would be laughed over that night at a score of tea-tables, but the knowledge only angered her further. In a calmer mood she could have carried off the situation with a laugh, but now that was impossible, so she ignored it in icy disdain. When Anne returned to the school after dinner, all the children were as usual in their seats, and every face was bent studiously over a desk except Anthony Pye's. He peered across his book at Anne, his black eyes sparkling with curiosity and mockery. Anne twitched open the drawer of her desk in search of chalk, and under her very hand a lively mouse sprang out of the drawer, scampered over the desk, and leaped to the floor. Anne screamed and sprang back as if it had been a snake, and Anthony Pye laughed aloud. Then a silence fell—a very creepy, uncomfortable silence. Annetta Bell was of two minds whether to go into hysterics again or not, especially as she didn't know just where the mouse had gone. But she decided not to. Who could take any comfort out of hysterics with a teacher so white-faced and so blazing-eyed standing before one? "'Who put that mouse in my desk?' said Anne. Her voice was quite low, but it made a shiver go up and down Paul Irving's spine. Joe Sloane caught her eye, felt responsible from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, but stuttered out wildly, "'Not, not, not me, t -t teacher, not me?' Anne paid no attention to the wretched Joseph. She looked at Anthony Pye, and Anthony Pye looked back unabashed and unashamed. "'Anthony, was it you?' "'Yes, it was,' said Anthony insolently. Anne took her pointer from her desk. It was a long, heavy, hardwood pointer. "'Come here, Anthony.' It was far from being the most severe punishment Anthony Pye had ever undergone. Anne, even the stormy-souled Anne she was at that moment, could not have punished any child cruelly. But the pointer nipped keenly, and finally Anthony's bravado failed him. He winced, and the tears came to his eyes. Anne, conscience-stricken, dropped the pointer and told Anthony to go to his seat. She sat down at her desk feeling ashamed, repentant, and bitterly mortified. Her quick anger was gone, and she would have given much to have been able to seek relief in tears. So all her boasts had come to this. She had actually whipped one of her pupils. How Jane would triumph, and how Mr. Harrison would chuckle. But worse than this, bitterest thought of all, she had lost her last chance of winning Anthony Pye. Never would he like her now. Anne, by what somebody has called a Herculaneum effort, kept back her tears until she got home that night. Then she shut herself in the East Gable room and wept all her shame and remorse and disappointment into her pillows. Wept so long that Marilla grew alarmed, invaded the room, and insisted on knowing what the trouble was. "'The trouble is I've got things the matter with my conscience,' sobbed Anne. "'Oh, this has been such a Jonah day, Marilla. I'm so ashamed of myself. I lost my temper and whipped Anthony Pye.' "'I'm glad to hear it.' said Marilla with decision. It's what you should have done long ago. Oh, no, no, Marilla. And I don't see how I can ever look those children in the face again. I feel that I have humiliated myself to the very dust. You don't know how cross and hateful and horrid I was. I can't forget the expression in Paul Irving's eyes. He looked so surprised and disappointed. 
Oh, Marilla, I have tried so hard to be patient and to win Anthony's liking, and now it has all gone for nothing. Marilla passed her hard, work-worn hand over the girl's glossy, tumbled hair with a wonderful tenderness. When Anne's sobs grew quieter, she said, very gently for her, You take things too much to heart, Anne. We all make mistakes, but people forget them, and Jonah days come to everybody. As for Anthony Pye, why need you care if he does dislike you? He's the only one. I can't help it. I want everybody to love me, and it hurts me so when anybody doesn't. And Anthony never will now. Oh, I just made an idiot of myself today, Marilla. I'll tell you the whole story. Marilla listened to the whole story, and if she smiled at certain parts of it, Anne never knew. When the tale was ended, she said briskly, Well, never mind. This day's done, and there's a new one coming tomorrow, with no mistakes in it yet, as you used to say yourself. Just come downstairs and have your supper. You'll see if a good cup of tea and those plum puffs I made today won't hearten you up." "'Plum puffs won't minister to a mind diseased,' said Anne disconsolately. But Marilla thought it a good sign that she had recovered sufficiently to adapt a quotation. The cheerful supper-table, with the twins' bright faces and Marilla's matchless plum puffs, of which Davy ate four, did hearten her up considerably after all. She had a good sleep that night and awakened in the morning to find herself and the world transformed. It had snowed softly and thickly all through the hours of darkness, and the beautiful whiteness, glittering in the frosty sunshine, looked like a mantle of charity cast over all the mistakes and humiliations of the past. Every morn is a fresh beginning, every morn is the world made new, sang Anne as she dressed. Owing to the snow she had to go around by the road to school, and she thought it was certainly an impish coincidence that Anthony Pye should come plowing along just as she left the Green Gables Lane. She felt as guilty as if their positions were reversed, but to her unspeakable astonishment Anthony not only lifted his cap, which he had never done before, but said easily, "'Kinda bad walkin', ain't it? Can I take those books for you, teacher?' Anne surrendered her books and wondered if she could possibly be awake. Anthony walked on in silence to the school, but when Anne took her books she smiled down at him, not the stereotyped, kind smile she had so persistently assumed for his benefit, but a sudden outflashing of good comradeship. Anthony smiled. No, if the truth must be told, Anthony grinned back. A grin is not generally supposed to be a respectful thing, yet Anne suddenly felt that if she had not yet won Anthony's liking, she had, somehow or other, won his respect. Mrs. Rachel Lynde came up the next Saturday and confirmed this. Well, Anne, I guess you've won over Anthony Pye, that's what. He says he believes you are some good after all, even if you are a girl. Says that whipping you gave him was just as good as a man's. I never expected to win him by whipping him, though, said Anne a little mournfully, feeling that her ideals had played her false somewhere. It doesn't seem right. I'm sure my theory of kindness can't be wrong. No, but the pies are an exception to every known rule, that's what," declared Mrs. Rachel with conviction. Mr. Harrison said, "'Thought you'd come to it,' when he heard it, and Jane rubbed it in rather unmercifully. End of chapter 12Chapter 13 of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery Chapter 13 A Golden Picnic Anne, on her way to Orchard Slope, met Diana, bound for Green Gables, just where the mossy old log bridge spanned the brook below the haunted wood, and they sat down by the margin of the dryad's bubble, where tiny ferns were unrolling like curly-headed green pixie folk wakening up from a nap. "'I was just on my way over to invite you to help me celebrate my birthday on Saturday,' said Anne. "'Your birthday? But your birthday was in March.' "'That wasn't my fault,' laughed Anne. "'If my parents had consulted me it would never have happened then. I should have chosen to be born in spring, of course. It must be delightful to come into the world with the mayflowers and violets. You would always feel that you were their foster sister. But since I didn't, the next best thing is to celebrate my birthday in the spring. Priscilla is coming over Saturday and Jane will be home. We'll all four start off to the woods and spend a golden day making the acquaintance of the spring. We none of us really know her yet, but we'll meet her back there as we never can anywhere else. I want to explore all those fields and lonely places anyhow. I have a conviction that there are scores of beautiful nooks there that have never really been seen, although they may have been looked at. We'll make friends with wind and sky and sun and bring home the spring in our hearts." "'It sounds awfully nice,' said Diana, with some inward distrust of Anne's magic of words. "'But won't it be very damp in some places yet?' "'Oh, we'll wear rubbers,' was Anne's concession to practicalities. And I want you to come over early Saturday morning and help me prepare lunch. I'm going to have the daintiest things possible. Things that will match the spring, you understand. Little jelly tarts and lady fingers and drop cookies frosted with pink and yellow icing and buttercup cake. And we must have sandwiches, too, though they're not very poetical. Saturday proved an ideal day for a picnic. A day of breeze and blue, warm, sunny, with a little rollicking wind blowing across meadow and orchard. Over every sunlit upland and field was a delicate, flower-starred green. Mr. Harrison, harrowing at the back of his farm and feeling some of the spring witch-work even in his sober middle-aged blood, saw four girls, basket-laden, tripping across the end of his field where it joined a fringing woodland of birch and fir. Their blithe voices and laughter echoed down to him. "'It's so easy to be happy on a day like this, isn't it?' Anne was saying, with true Annish philosophy. Let's try to make this a really golden day, girls, a day to which we can always look back with delight. We're to seek for beauty and refuse to see anything else. Be gone, dull care. Jane, you are thinking of something that went wrong in school yesterday. How do you know? gasped Jane, amazed. Oh, I know the expression. I've felt it often enough on my own face. But put it out of your mind, there's a dear. It will keep till Monday. Or if it doesn't, so much the better. Oh, girls, girls, see that patch of violets. There's something for memory's picture gallery. When I'm eighty years old, if I ever am, I shall shut my eyes and see those violets just as I see them now. That's the first good gift our day has given us. If a kiss could be seen, I think it would look like a violet, said Priscilla. Anne glowed. I'm so glad you spoke that thought, Priscilla, instead of just thinking it and keeping it to yourself. This world would be a much more interesting place, although it is very interesting anyhow, if people spoke out their real thoughts. It would be too hot to hold some folks, quoted Jane sagely. I suppose it might be, but that would be their own faults for thinking nasty things. 
Anyway, we can tell all our thoughts today because we are going to have nothing but beautiful thoughts. Everybody can say just what comes into her head. That is conversation. Here's a little path I never saw before. Let's explore it. The path was a winding one, so narrow that the girls walked in single file, and even then the fir boughs brushed their faces. Under the firs were velvety cushions of moss, and further on, where the trees were smaller and fewer, the ground was rich in a variety of green growing things. "'What a lot of elephant's ears!' exclaimed Diana. "'I'm going to pick a big bunch. They're so pretty!' How did such graceful feathery things ever come to have such a dreadful name? asked Priscilla. Because the person who first named them either had no imagination at all or else far too much, said Anne. Oh, girls, look at that! That was a shallow woodland pool in the center of a little open glade where the path ended. Later on in the season it would be dried up and its place filled with a rank growth of ferns, but now it was a glimmering placid sheet round as a saucer and clear as crystal. A ring of slender young birches encircled it, and little ferns fringed its margin. "'How sweet!' said Jane. "'Let us dance around it like wood-nymphs,' cried Anne, dropping her basket and extending her hands. But the dance was not a success, for the ground was boggy and Jane's rubbers came off. "'You can't be a wood-nymph if you have to wear rubbers,' was her decision. "'Well, we must name this place before we leave it,' said Anne, yielding to the indisputable logic of facts. "'Everybody suggest a name and we'll draw lots. Diana?' "'Birch Pool,' suggested Diana promptly. "'Crystal Lake,' said Jane. Anne, standing behind them, implored Priscilla with her eyes not to perpetrate another such name, and Priscilla rose to the occasion with Glimmer Glass. Anne's selection was The Fairy's Mirror.' The names were written on strips of birch bark with a pencil schoolma'am Jane produced from her pocket and placed in Anne's hat. Then Priscilla shut her eyes and drew one. Crystal Lake, read Jane triumphantly. Crystal Lake it was, and if Anne thought that chance had played the pool a shabby trick, she did not say so. Pushing through the undergrowth beyond, the girls came out to the young green seclusion of Mr. Silas Sloane's back pasture. Across it they found the entrance to a lane striking up through the woods, and voted to explore it also. It rewarded their quest with a succession of pretty surprises. First, skirting Mr. Sloane's pasture, came an archway of wild cherry trees all in bloom. The girls swung their hats on their arms and wreathed their hair with the creamy, fluffy blossoms. Then the lane turned at right angles, and plunged into a spruce wood so thick and dark that they walked in a gloom as of twilight with not a glimpse of sky or sunlight to be seen. "'This is where the bad wood-elves dwell,' whispered Anne. "'They are impish and malicious, but they can't harm us, because they are not allowed to do evil in the spring. There was one peeping at us around that old twisted fir, and didn't you see a group of them on that big freckly toadstool we just passed? The good fairies always dwell in the sunshiny places.' "'I wish there really were fairies,' said Jane. Wouldn't it be nice to have three wishes granted you? Or even only one? What would you wish for, girls, if you could have a wish granted? I'd wish to be rich and beautiful and clever. I'd wish to be tall and slender, said Diana. I would wish to be famous, said Priscilla. Anne thought of her hair and then dismissed the thought as unworthy. 
"'I'd wish it might be spring all the time and in everybody's heart and all our lives,' she said. "'But that,' said Priscilla, "'would be just wishing this world were like heaven.' "'Only like a part of heaven. In the other parts there would be summer and autumn. Yes, and a bit of winter, too. I think I want glittering snowy fields and white frost in heaven sometimes. Don't you, Jane?' "'I—I I don't know,' said Jane uncomfortably. Jane was a good girl, a member of the church, who tried conscientiously to live up to her profession and believed everything she had been taught. But she never thought about heaven any more than she could help, for all that. "'Minnie May asked me the other day if we would wear our best dresses every day in heaven,' laughed Diana. "'And didn't you tell her we would?' asked Anne. "'Mercy, no. I told her we wouldn't be thinking of dresses at all there.' "'Oh, I think we will. A little.' said Anne earnestly. There'll be plenty of time in all eternity for it without neglecting more important things. I believe we'll all wear beautiful dresses, or I suppose raiment would be a more suitable way of speaking. I shall want to wear pink for a few centuries at first. It would take me that long to get tired of it, I feel sure. I do love pink so, and I can never wear it in this world. Past the spruces the lane dipped down into a sunny little open where a log bridge spanned a brook, and then came the glory of a sunlit beechwood where the air was like transparent golden wine, and the leaves fresh and green, and the wood floor a mosaic of tremulous sunshine. Then more wild cherries, and a little valley of lissom firs, and then a hill so steep that the girls lost their breath climbing it, but when they reached the top and came out into the open, the prettiest surprise of all awaited them. Beyond were the back fields of the farms that ran out to the upper Carmody Road, just before them, hemmed in by beeches and firs but open to the south, was a little corner and in it a garden, or what had once been a garden. A tumble-down stone dyke, overgrown with mosses and grass, surrounded it. Along the eastern side ran a row of garden cherry trees, white as a snowdrift. There were traces of old paths still, and a double line of rose bushes through the middle, but all the rest of the space was a sheet of yellow and white narcissi, in their airiest, most lavish, wind-swayed bloom above the lush green grasses. Oh, how perfectly lovely. lovely! Three of the girls cried. Anne only gazed in eloquent silence. How in the world does it happen that there ever was a garden back here? said Priscilla in amazement. It must be Hester Gray's garden, said Diana. I've heard Mother speak of it, but I never saw it before, and I wouldn't have supposed that it could be in existence still. You've heard the story, Anne? No, but the name seems familiar to me. Oh, you've seen it in the graveyard. She is buried down there in the poplar corner. You know the little brown stone with the opening gates carved on it and sacred to the memory of Hester Gray, aged twenty-two. Jordan Gray is buried right beside her, but there's no stone to him. It's a wonder Marilla never told you about it, Anne. To be sure, it happened thirty years ago and everybody has forgotten. Well, if there's a story, we must have it, said Anne. Let's sit right down here among the Narcissi, and Diana will tell it. Why, girls, there are hundreds of them. They've spread over everything. It looks as if the garden were carpeted with moonshine and sunshine combined. This is a discovery worth making. To think that I've lived within a mile of this place for six years and have never seen it before. Now, Diana. Long ago, began Diana. This farm belonged to old Mr. David Gray. He didn't live on it. He lived where Silas Sloane lives now. 
he had one son jordan and he went up to boston one winter to work and while he was there he fell in love with a girl named hester murray she was working in a store and she hated it she'd been brought up in the country and she always wanted to get back when jordan asked her to marry him she said she would if he'd take her away to some quiet spot where she'd see nothing but fields and trees so he brought her to avonlea mrs lynde said he was taking a fearful risk in marrying a yankee and it's certain that hester was very delicate and a very poor housekeeper but mother says she was very pretty and sweet and jordan just worshipped the ground she walked on well mr gray gave jordan this farm and he built a little house back here and jordan and hester lived in it for four years she never went out much and hardly anybody went to see her except mother and mrs lynde jordan made her this garden and she was crazy about it and spent most of her time in it she wasn't much of a housekeeper but she had a knack with flowers and then she got sick mother says she thinks she was in consumption before she ever came here she never really laid up but just grew weaker and weaker all the time jordan wouldn't have anybody to wait on her he did it all himself and mother says he was as tender and gentle as a woman every day he'd wrap her in a shawl and carry her out to the garden and she'd lie there on a bench quite happy they say she used to make jordan kneel down by her every night and morning and pray with her that she might die out in the garden when the time came and her prayer was answered one day jordan carried her out to the bench and then he picked all the roses that were out and heaped them over her and she just smiled up at him and closed her eyes and that concluded diana softly was the end oh what a dear story sighed anne wiping away her tears what became of jordan asked priscilla he sold the farm after hester died and went back to boston mr jabez sloane bought the farm and hauled the little house out to the road jordan died about ten years after and he was brought home and buried beside hester i can't understand how she could have wanted to live back here away from everything said jane oh i can easily understand that said anne thoughtfully i wouldn't want it myself for a steady thing because although i love the fields and woods i love people too but i can understand it in hester she was tired to death of the noise of the big city and the crowds of people always coming and going and caring nothing for her she just wanted to escape from it all to some still green friendly place where she could rest and she got just what she wanted which is something very few people do i believe she had four beautiful years before she died four years of perfect happiness so i think she was to be envied more than pitied and then to shut your eyes and fall asleep among roses with the one you loved best on earth smiling down at you oh i think it was beautiful she set up those cherry trees over there said diana she told mother she'd never lived to eat their fruit but she wanted to think that something she had planted would go on living and helping to make the world beautiful after she was dead i'm so glad we came this way said anne the shining-eyed this is my adopted birthday you know and this garden and its story is the birthday gift it has given me did your mother ever tell you what hester gray looked like diana no only just that she was very pretty 
I'm rather glad of that, because I can imagine what she looked like without being hampered by facts. I think she was very slight and small, with softly curling dark hair and big, sweet, timid brown eyes, and a little wistful pale face. The girls left their baskets in Hester's garden and spent the rest of the afternoon rambling in the woods and fields surrounding it, discovering many pretty nooks and lanes. When they got hungry they had lunch in the prettiest spot of all, on the steep bank of a gurgling brook where white birches shot up out of long, feathery grasses. The girls sat down by the roots and did full justice to Anne's dainties, even the unpoetical sandwiches being greatly appreciated by hearty, unspoiled appetites sharpened by all the fresh air and exercise they had enjoyed. Anne had brought glasses and lemonade for her guests, but for her own part drank cold brook water from a cup fashioned out of birch bark. The cup leaked, and the water tasted of earth, as brook water is apt to do in spring, but Anne thought it more appropriate to the occasion than lemonade. "'Look, do you see that poem?' she said, suddenly, pointing. "'Where?' "'Where?' Jane and Diana stared, as if expecting to see runic rhymes on the birch trees. "'There, down in the brook, that old green mossy log with the water flowing over it, in those smooth ripples that look as if they'd been combed, and that single shaft of sunshine falling right athwart it, far down into the pool. Oh, it's the most beautiful poem I ever saw. I should rather call it a picture, said Jane. A poem is lines and verses. Oh, dear me, no. Anne shook her head with its fluffy wild cherry coronal positively. The lines and verses are only the outward garments of the poem, and are no more really it than your ruffles and flounces are you, Jane. The real poem is the soul within them, and that beautiful bit is the soul of an unwritten poem. It is not every day one sees a soul, even of a poem. I wonder what a soul, a person's soul, would look like, said Priscilla dreamily. Like that, I should think, answered Anne, pointing to a radiance of sifted sunlight streaming through a birch tree. Only with shape and features, of course. I like to fancy souls as being made of light, and some are all shot through with rosy stains and quivers, and some have a soft glitter like moonlight on the sea, and some are pale and transparent like mist at dawn. I read somewhere once that souls were like flowers, said Priscilla. Then your soul is a golden narcissus, said Anne, and Diana's is like a red-red rose. Jane's is an apple blossom, pink and wholesome and sweet. And your own is a white violet with purple streaks in its heart, finished Priscilla. Jane whispered to Diana that she really could not understand what they were talking about. Could she? The girls went home by the light of a calm golden sunset, their baskets filled with narcissus blossoms from Hester's garden, some of which Anne carried to the cemetery next day and laid upon Hester's grave. Minstrel robins were whistling in the firs, and the frogs were singing in the marshes. All the basins among the hills were brimmed with topaz and emerald light. "'Well, we have had a lovely time, after all,' said Diana, as if she had hardly expected to have it when she set out. Oh, "'It has been a truly golden day,' said Priscilla. "'I'm really awfully fond of the woods myself,' said Jane. Anne said nothing. She was looking afar into the western sky and thinking of little Hester Gray. End of chapter 13
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 14 A Danger Averted. Anne, walking home from the post office one Friday evening, was joined by Mrs. Lynde, who was, as usual, cumbered with all the cares of church and state. I've just been down to Timothy Cotton's to see if I could get Alice Louise to help me for a few days, she said. I had her last week, for though she's too slow to stop quick, she's better than nobody. But she's sick and can't come. Timothy's sitting there, too, coughing and complaining. He's been dying for ten years, and he'll go on dying for ten more. That kind can't even die and have done with it. They can't stick to anything, even to being sick, long enough to finish it. They're a terrible, shiftless family, and what is to become of them I don't know. But perhaps Providence does. <sighs> Mrs. Lynde sighed as if she rather doubted the extent of providential knowledge on the subject. Marilla was in about her eyes again Tuesday, wasn't she? What did the specialist think of them? She continued. He was much pleased, said Anne, brightly. He says there is a great improvement in them, and he thinks the danger of her losing her sight completely is past. But he says she'll never be able to read much or do any fine handwork again. How are your preparations for your bazaar coming on? The Ladies' Aid Society was preparing for a fair and supper, and Mrs. Lynde was the head and front of the enterprise. Pretty well. And that reminds me. Mrs. Allen thinks it would be nice to fix up a booth like an old-time kitchen and serve a supper of baked beans, doughnuts, pie, and so on. We're collecting old-fashioned fixins everywhere. Mrs. Simon Fletcher is going to lend us her mother's braided rugs, and Mrs. Levi Bolter some old chairs, and Aunt Mary Shaw will lend us her cupboard with the glass doors. I suppose Marilla will let us have her brass candlesticks? And we want all the old dishes we can get. Mrs. Allen is specially set on having a real blue willow-ware platter, if we can find one. But nobody seems to have one. Do you know where we could get one? Miss Josephine Berry has one. I'll write and ask her if she'll lend it for the occasion, said Anne. Well, I wish you would. I guess we'll have the supper in about a fortnight's time. Uncle Abe Andrews is prophesying rain and storms for about that time, and that's a pretty sure sign we'll have fine weather. The said Uncle Abe, it may be mentioned, was at least like other prophets in that he had small honor in his own country. He was, in fact, considered in the light of a standing joke, for few of his weather predictions were ever fulfilled. Mr. Elisha Wright, who labored under the impression that he was a local wit, used to say that nobody in Avonlea ever thought of looking in the Charlottetown dailies for weather probabilities. No, they just asked Uncle Abe what it was going to be tomorrow and expected the opposite. Nothing daunted, Uncle Abe kept on prophesying. We want to have the fair over before the election comes off, continued Mrs. Lynde. For the candidates will be sure to come and spend lots of money. The Tories are bribing right and left, so they might as well be given a chance to spend their money honestly for once. Anne was a red-hot conservative, out of loyalty to Matthew's memory, but she said nothing. She knew better than to get Mrs. Lynde started on politics. She had a letter for Marilla, postmarked from a town in British Columbia. "'It's probably from the children's uncle,' she said excitedly when she got home. "'Oh, Marilla, I wonder what he says about them.' "'The best plan might be to open it and see,' said Marilla curtly. A close observer might have thought that she was excited also, but she would rather have died than show it. Anne tore open the letter and glanced over the somewhat untidy and poorly written contents. 
He says he can't take the children this spring. He's been sick most of the winter and his wedding is put off. He wants to know if we can keep them till the fall and he'll try and take them then. We will, of course, won't we, Marilla? I don't see that there is anything else for us to do," said Marilla rather grimly, although she felt a secret relief. Anyhow, they're not so much trouble as they were. Or else we've got used to them. Davy has improved a great deal. His manners are certainly much better," said Anne cautiously, as if she were not prepared to say as much for his morals. Anne had come home from school the previous evening to find Marilla away at an aid meeting, Dora asleep on the kitchen sofa, and Davy in the sitting-room closet, blissfully absorbing the contents of a jar of Marilla's famous yellow plum preserves—company jam, Davy called it—which he had been forbidden to touch. He looked very guilty when Anne pounced on him and whisked him out of the closet. "'Davy Keith, don't you know that it is very wrong of you to be eating that jam when you were told never to meddle with anything in that closet?' "'Yes, I knew it was wrong,' admitted Davy uncomfortably. But plum jam is awful nice, Anne. I just peeped in and it looked so good, I thought I'd take just a weeny taste. I stuck my finger in, Anne groaned, and licked it clean. And it was so much gooder than I'd ever thought that I got a spoon and just sailed in. Anne gave him such a serious lecture on the sin of stealing plum jam that Davy became conscience-stricken and promised with repentant kisses never to do it again. Anyhow, there'll be plenty of jam in heaven, that's one comfort," he said complacently. Anne nipped a smile in the bud. Perhaps there will, if we want it, she said. But what makes you think so? Why, it's in the catechism, said Davy. Oh, no, there is nothing like that in the catechism, Davy. But I tell you there is, persisted Davy. It was in that question Marilla taught me last Sunday. Why should we love God? It says, because he makes preserves and redeems us. Preserves is just a holy way of saying jam. I must get a drink of water, said Anne hastily. When she came back it cost her some time and trouble to explain to Davy that a certain comma in the said catechism question made a great deal of difference in the meaning. Well, I thought it was too good to be true, he said at last with a sigh of disappointed conviction. And besides, I didn't see when he'd find time to make jam if it's one endless Sabbath day, as the hymn says. I don't believe I want to go to heaven. Won't there ever be any Saturdays in heaven, Anne? Yes, Saturdays and every other kind of beautiful days. And every day in heaven will be more beautiful than the one before it, Davy," assured Anne, who was rather glad that Marilla was not by to be shocked. Marilla, it is needless to say, was bringing the twins up in the good old ways of theology and discouraged all fanciful speculations thereon. Davy and Dora were taught a hymn, a catechism question, and two Bible verses every Sunday. Dora learned meekly and recited like a little machine, with perhaps as much understanding or interest as if she were one. Davy, on the contrary, had a lively curiosity and frequently asked questions which made Marilla tremble for his fate. Chester Sloane says we'll do nothing all the time in heaven but walk around in white dresses and play on harps, and he says he hopes he won't have to go till he's an old man, because maybe he'll like it better then. And he thinks it will be horrid to wear dresses, and I think so too. Why can't men angels wear trousers, Anne? 
Chester Sloan is interested in those things, cause they're going to make a minister of him. He's got to be a minister, cause his grandmother left the money to send him to college, and he can't have it unless he is a minister. She thought a minister was such a spectable thing to have in a family. Chester says he doesn't mind much, though he'd rather be a blacksmith. But he's bound to have all the fun he can before he begins to be a minister, cause he doesn't expect to have much afterwards. I ain't going to be a minister. I'm going to be a storekeeper like Mr. Blair, and keep heaps of candy and bananas. But I'd rather like going to your kind of a heaven, if they'd let me play a mouth organ instead of a harp. Do you suppose they would? Yes, I think they would if you wanted it, was all Anne could trust herself to say. The AVIS met at Mr. Harmon Andrews that evening, and a full attendance had been requested, since important business was to be discussed. The AVIS was in a flourishing condition, and had already accomplished wonders. Early in the spring Mr. Major Spencer had redeemed his promise, and had stumped, graded, and seeded down all the road front of his farm. A dozen other men, some prompted by a determination not to let a Spencer get ahead of them, others goaded into action by improvers in their own households, had followed his example. The result was that there were long strips of smooth velvet turf where once had been unsightly undergrowth or brush. The farm fronts that had not been done looked so badly by contrast that the owners were secretly shamed into resolving to see what they could do another spring. The triangle of ground at the crossroads had also been cleared and seeded down, and Anne's bed of geraniums, unharmed by any marauding cow, was already set out in the center. Altogether the improvers thought that they were getting on beautifully, even if Mr. Levi Bolter, tactfully approached by a carefully selected committee in regard to the old house on his upper farm, did bluntly tell them that he wasn't going to have it meddled with. At this especial meeting they intended to draw up a petition to the school trustees, humbly praying that a fence be put around the school grounds, and a plan was also to be discussed for planting a few ornamental trees by the church, if the funds of the society would permit of it, for, as Anne said, there was no use in starting another subscription as long as the hall remained blue. The members were assembled in the Andrews parlor, and Jane was already on her feet to move the appointment of a committee, which should find out and report on the price of said trees, when Gertie Pye swept in, pompadoured and frilled within an inch of her life. Gertie had a habit of being late, to make her entrance more effective, spiteful people said. Gertie's entrance in this instance was certainly effective, for she paused dramatically on the middle of the floor, threw up her hands, rolled her eyes, and exclaimed, "'I've just heard something perfectly awful. What do you think? Mr. Jetson Parker is going to rent all the road fence of his farm to a patent medicine company to paint advertisements on!' For once in her life Gertie Pye made all the sensation she desired. If she had thrown a bomb among the complacent improvers she could hardly have made more. "'It can't be true,' said Anne blankly. "'That's just what I said when I heard it first, don't you know?' said Gertie, who was enjoying herself hugely. "'I said it couldn't be true, that Jetson Parker wouldn't have the heart to do it, don't you know? But Father met him this afternoon and asked him about it, and he said it was true. Just fancy! His farm is side on to the Newbridge Road, and how perfectly awful it will look to see advertisements of pills and plasters all along it, don't you know?' The improvers did know, all too well. 
even the least imaginative among them could picture the grotesque effect of half a mile of board fence adorned with such advertisements. All thought of church and school grounds vanished before this new danger. Parliamentary rules and regulations were forgotten, and Anne, in despair, gave up trying to keep minutes at all. Everybody talked at once, and fearful was the hubbub. "'Oh, let us keep calm,' implored Anne, who was the most excited of them all, "'and try to think of some way of preventing him.' "'I don't know how you're going to prevent him,' exclaimed Jane bitterly. "'Everybody knows what Judson Parker is. He'd do anything for money. He hasn't a spark of public spirit or any sense of the beautiful.' The prospect looked rather unpromising. Judson Parker and his sister were the only Parkers in Avonlea, so that no leverage could be exerted by family connections. Martha Parker was a lady of all too certain age, who disapproved of young people in general and the improvers in particular. Judson was a jovial, smooth-spoken man, so uniformly good-natured and bland that it was surprising how few friends he had. Perhaps he had gotten the better in too many business transactions, which seldom makes for popularity. He was reputed to be very sharp, and it was the general opinion that he hadn't much principle. If Judson Parker has a chance to turn an honest penny, as he says himself, he'll never lose it, declared Fred Wright. Is there nobody who has any influence over him? asked Anne despairingly. He goes to see Louisa Spencer at White Sands, suggested Carrie Sloane. Perhaps she could coax him not to rent his fences. Not she, said Gilbert emphatically. I know Louisa Spencer well. She doesn't believe in village improvement societies, but she does believe in dollars and cents. She'd be more likely to urge Judson on than to dissuade him. The only thing to do is to appoint a committee to wait on him and protest, said Julia Bell. And you must send girls, for he'd hardly be civil to boys. But I won't go, so nobody need nominate me. Better send Anne alone, said Oliver Sloane. She can talk Judson over if anybody can. Anne protested. She was willing to go and do the talking, but she must have others with her for moral support. Diana and Jane were therefore appointed to support her morally, and the improvers broke up, buzzing like angry bees with indignation. Anne was so worried that she didn't sleep until nearly morning, and then she dreamed that the trustees had put a fence around the school and painted tri-purple pills all over it. The committee waited on Judson Parker the next afternoon. Anne pleaded eloquently against his nefarious design, and Jane and Diana supported her morally and valiantly. Judson was sleek, suave, flattering, paid them several compliments of the delicacy of sunflowers, felt real bad to refuse such charming young ladies, but business was business, couldn't afford to let sentiment stand in the way these hard times. "'But I'll tell you what I will do,' he said, with a twinkle in his light, full eyes. "'I'll tell the agent he must use only handsome, tasty colours, red and yellow and so on. I'll tell him he mustn't paint the ads blue on any account.' The vanquished committee retired, thinking things not lawful to be uttered. "'We have done all we can do, and must simply trust the rest to Providence.' said Jane, with an unconscious imitation of Mrs. Lynde's tone and manner. "'I wonder if Mr. Allen could do anything,' reflected Diana. Anne shook her head. "'No, it's no use to worry Mr. Allen, especially now when the baby's so sick. Judson would slip away from him as smoothly as from us, although he has taken to going to church quite regularly just now. 
That is simply because Louisa Spencer's father is an elder and very particular about such things. Judson Parker's the only man in Avonlea who would dream of renting his fences, said Jane indignantly. Even Levi Boulter or Lorenzo White would never stoop to that, tight-fisted as they are. They would have too much respect for public opinion. Public opinion was certainly down on Judson Parker when the facts became known, but that did not help matters much. Judson chuckled to himself and defied it, and the improvers were trying to reconcile themselves to the prospect of seeing the prettiest part of the Newbridge Road defaced by advertisements, when Anne rose quietly at the President's call for reports of committees on the occasion of the next meeting of the Society, and announced that Mr. Judson Parker had instructed her to inform the Society that he was not going to rent his fences to the Patent Medicine Company. Jane and Diana stared as if they found it hard to believe their ears. Parliamentary etiquette, which was generally very strictly enforced in the AVIS, forbade them giving instant vent to their curiosity, but after the society adjourned Anne was besieged for explanations. Anne had no explanation to give. Judson Parker had overtaken her on the road the preceding evening and told her that he had decided to humor the AVIS in its peculiar prejudice against patent medicine advertisements. That was all Anne would say, then or ever afterwards, and it was the simple truth. But when Jane Andrews, on her way home, confided to Oliver Sloane her firm belief that there was more behind Judson Parker's mysterious change of heart than Anne Shirley had revealed, she spoke the truth also. Anne had been down to old Mrs. Irving's on the shore road the preceding evening, and had come home by a shortcut which led her first over the low-lying shore fields, and then through the beechwood below Robert Dixon's, by a little footpath that ran out to the main road just above the Lake of Shining Waters, known to unimaginative people as Barry's Pond. Two men were sitting in their buggies, reined off to the side of the road, just at the entrance of the path. One was Judson Parker, the other was Jerry Corcoran, a Newbridge man against whom, as Mrs. Lynde would have told you in eloquent italics, nothing shady had ever been proved. He was an agent for agricultural implements and a prominent personage in matters political. He had a finger—some people said all his fingers—in every political pie that was cooked. And as Canada was on the eve of a general election, Jerry Corcoran had been a busy man for many weeks, canvassing the county in the interests of his party's candidate. Just as Anne emerged from under the overhanging beech boughs, she heard Corcoran say, "'If you'll vote for Amesbury, Parker, well, I've a note for that pair of harrows you've got in the spring. I suppose you wouldn't object to having it back, eh?' "'We, ah, uh, since you put it in that way,' drawled Judson with a grin, "'I reckon I might as well do it. A man must look out for his own interest in these hard times.' Both saw Anne at this moment, and conversation abruptly ceased. Anne bowed frostily and walked on, with her chin slightly more tilted than usual. Soon Judson Parker overtook her. "'I'm a lift, Anne?' he inquired genially. "'Thank you, no,' said Anne politely, but with a fine, needle-like disdain in her voice that pierced even Judson Parker's none-too-sensitive consciousness. His face reddened and he twitched his reins angrily but the next second prudential considerations checked him. He looked uneasily at Anne as she walked steadily on, glancing neither to the right nor to the left. Had she heard Corcoran's unmistakable offer and his own too plain acceptance of it? Confound Corcoran! 
If he couldn't put his meaning into less dangerous phrases he'd get into trouble some of these Longcombe shorts. And confound red-headed schoolmams with a habit of popping out of beechwoods where they had no business to be. If Anne had heard, Judson Parker, measuring her corn in his own half-bushel, as the country saying went, and cheating himself thereby, as such people generally do, believed that she would tell it far and wide. Now Judson Parker, as has been seen, was not overly regardful of public opinion, but to be known as having accepted a bribe would be a nasty thing. And if it ever reached Isaac Spencer's ears, farewell forever to all hope of winning Louisa Jane, with her comfortable prospects as the heiress of a well-to-do farmer. Judson Parker knew that Mr. Spencer looked somewhat askance at him as it was. He could not afford to take any risks. <clears throat> Anne, I've been wanting to see you about that little matter we were discussing the other day. I've decided not to let my fences to that company after all. A society with an aim like yours ought to be encouraged. Anne thought out the merest trifle. Thank you, she said. And, and, you needn't mention that little conversation of mine with Jerry. I have no intention of mentioning it in any case, said Anne icily, for she would have seen every fence in Avonlea painted with advertisements before she would have stooped to bargain with a man who would sell his vote. Just so, just so, agreed Judson, imagining that they understood each other beautifully. I didn't suppose you would. Of course, I was only stringing Jerry. He thinks he's so old-fired, cute, and smart. I have no intention of voting for Amesbury. I'm going to vote for Grant, as I've always done. You'll see that when the election comes off. I just led Jerry on to see if he would commit himself. And it's all right about the fence. You can tell the improvers that. It takes all sorts of people to make a world, as I've often heard, but I think there are some who could be spared, Anne told her reflection in the East Gable mirror that night. I wouldn't have mentioned the disgraceful thing to a soul anyhow, so my conscience is clear on that score. I really don't know who or what is to be thanked for this. I did nothing to bring it about and it's hard to believe that Providence ever works by means of the kind of politics men like Judson Parker and Jerry Corcoran have. End of chapter 14
At the foot of the hill, a boy was sitting on the fence in the shadow of the spruces, a boy with big, dreamy eyes and a beautiful, sensitive face. He swung down and joined Anne, smiling, but there were traces of tears on his cheeks. "'I thought I'd wait for you, teacher, because I knew you were going to the graveyard,' he said, slipping his hand into hers. "'I'm going there, too. I'm taking this bouquet of geraniums to put on Grandpa Irving's grave for Grandma. And look, teacher, I'm going to put this bunch of white roses beside Grandpa's grave in memory of my little mother, because I can't go to her grave to put it there. But don't you think she'll know about it just the same?' "'Yes, I am sure she will, Paul.' "'You see, teacher, it's just three years today since my little mother died. It's such a long, long time, but it hurts just as much as ever.' and I miss her just as much as ever. Sometimes it seems to me that I just can't bear it. It hurts so." Paul's voice quivered and his lip trembled. He looked down at his roses, hoping that his teacher would not notice the tears in his eyes. "'And yet,' said Anne very softly, "'you wouldn't want it to stop hurting. You wouldn't want to forget your little mother even if you could.' "'No, indeed, I wouldn't. That's just the way I feel. You're so good at understanding, teacher. Nobody else understands so well, not even Grandma, although she's so good to me. Father understood pretty well, but still I couldn't talk much to him about Mother, because it made him feel so bad. When he put his hand over his face, I always knew it was time to stop. Poor Father, he must be dreadfully lonesome without me. But you see, he has nobody but a housekeeper now, and he thinks housekeepers are no good to bring up little boys, especially when he has to be away from home so much on business. Grandmothers are better, next to mothers. Some day, when I'm brought up, I'll go back to father, and we're never going to be parted again." Paul had talked so much to Anne about his mother and father that she felt as if she had known them. She thought his mother must have been very like what he was himself, in temperament and disposition, and she had an idea that Stephen Irving was a rather reserved man, with a deep and tender nature which he kept hidden scrupulously from the world. Father's not very easy to get acquainted with, Paul had said once. I never got really acquainted with him until after my little mother died. But he's splendid when you do get to know him. I love him the best in all the world, and Grandma Irving next, and then you, teacher. I'd love you next to my father if it wasn't my duty to love Grandma Irving best, because she's doing so much for me. You know, teacher, I wish you would leave the lamp in my room till I go to sleep, though. She takes it right out as soon as she tucks me up, because she says I mustn't be a coward. I'm not scared, but I'd rather have a light. My little mother used to always sit beside me and hold my hand till I went to sleep. I expect she spoiled me. Mothers do sometimes, you know." No, Anne did not know this, although she might imagine it. She thought sadly of her little mother, the mother who had thought her so perfectly beautiful, and who had died so long ago and was buried beside her boyish husband in that unvisited grave far away. Anne could not remember her mother, and for this reason she almost envied Paul. "'My birthday is next week,' said Paul, as they walked up the long red hill, basking in the June sunshine. "'And Father wrote me that he is sending me something that he thinks I'll like better than anything else he could send. I believe it has come already, for Grandma is keeping the bookcase drawer locked, and that is something new.' And when I asked her why, she just looked mysterious and said little boys mustn't be too curious. It's very exciting to have a birthday, isn't it? I'll be eleven. You'd never think it to look at me, would you? Grandma says I'm very small for my age. 
and that it's all because I don't eat enough porridge. I do my very best, but Grandma gives such generous platefuls. There's nothing mean about Grandma, I can tell you. Ever since you and I had that talk about praying going home from Sunday school that day, teacher, when you said we ought to pray about all our difficulties, I'd prayed every night that God would give me enough grace to enable me to eat every bit of my porridge in the mornings. But I've never been able to do it yet, and whether it's because I have too little grace or too much porridge, I really can't decide. Grandma says father was brought up on porridge, and it certainly did work in his case, for you ought to see the shoulders he has. But sometimes, concluded Paul with a sigh and a meditative air, I really think porridge will be the death of me. Anne permitted herself a smile, since Paul was not looking at her. All Avonlea knew that old Mrs. Irving was bringing her grandson up in accordance with the good old-fashioned methods of diet and morals. Let us hope not, dear she said cheerfully. How are your rock people coming on? Does the oldest twin still continue to behave himself? He has to, said Paul emphatically. He knows I won't associate with him if he doesn't. He is really full of wickedness, I think. And has Nora found out about the golden lady yet? No, but I think she suspects. I'm almost sure she watched me the last time I went to the cave. I don't mind if she finds out. It is only for her sake I don't want her to, so that her feelings won't be hurt. But if she is determined to have her feelings hurt, it can't be helped. If I were to go to the shore some night with you, do you think I could see your rock people too? Paul shook his head gravely. No, I don't think you could see my rock people. I'm the only person who can see them. But you could see rock people of your own. You're one of the kind that can. We're both that kind. You know, teacher he added, squeezing her hand chummily. Isn't it splendid to be that kind, teacher? Splendid, Anne agreed, gray shining eyes looking down into blue shining ones. Anne and Paul both knew how fair the realm imagination opens to the view, and both knew the way to that happy land. There the rose of joy bloomed immortal by dale and stream. Clouds never darkened the sunny sky, Sweet bells never jangled out of tune, and kindred spirits abounded. The knowledge of that land's geography, east of the sun, west of the moon, is priceless lore, not to be bought in any marketplace. It must be the gift of the good fairies at birth, and the years can never deface it or take it away. It is better to possess it, living in a garret, than to be the inhabitant of palaces without it. The Avonlea graveyard was as yet the grass-grown solitude it had always been. To be sure, the improvers had an eye on it, and Priscilla Grant had read a paper on cemeteries before the last meeting of the society. At some future time, the improvers meant to have the lichened, wayward old board fence replaced by a neat wire railing, the grass mown, and the leaning monuments straightened up. Anne put on Matthew's grave the flower she had brought for it, and then went over to the little poplar-shaded corner where Hester Gray slept. Ever since the day of the spring picnic, Anne had put flowers on Hester's grave when she visited Matthew's. The evening before she had made a pilgrimage back to the little deserted garden in the woods and brought therefrom some of Hester's own white roses. "'I thought you would like them better than any others, dear,' she said softly. Anne was still sitting there when a shadow fell over the grass, and she looked up to see Mrs. Allen. They walked home together. Mrs. Allen's face was not the face of the girl bride whom the minister had brought to Avonlea five years before. 
It had lost some of its bloom and youthful curves, and there were fine, patient lines about eyes and mouth. A tiny grave in that very cemetery accounted for some of them, and some new ones had come during the recent illness, now happily over, of her little son. But Mrs. Allen's dimples were as sweet and sudden as ever, her eyes as clear and bright and true, and what her face lacked of girlish beauty was now more than atoned for in added tenderness and strength. "'I suppose you are looking forward to your vacation, Anne,' she said as they left the graveyard. Anne nodded. "'Yes, I could roll the word as a sweet morsel under my tongue. I think the summer is going to be lovely. For one thing, Mrs. Morgan is coming to the island in July, and Priscilla is going to bring her up. I feel one of my old thrills at the mere thought.' "'I hope you'll have a good time, Anne. You've worked very hard this past year, and you have succeeded.' "'Oh, I don't know. I've come so far short in so many things. I haven't done what I meant to do when I began to teach last fall. I haven't lived up to my ideals.' Oh, "'None of us ever do,' said Mrs. Allen, with a sigh. "'But then, Anne, you know what Lowell says. Not failure, but low aim is crime. We must have ideals and try to live up to them, even if we never quite succeed.' Life would be a sorry business without them. With them it's grand and great. Hold fast to your ideals, Anne." "'I shall try. But I have to let go most of my theories,' said Anne, laughing a little. I had the most beautiful set of theories you ever knew when I started out as a school ma'am, but every one of them has failed me at some pinch or another." "'Even the theory on corporal punishment?' teased Mrs. Allen. But Anne flushed. "'I shall never forgive myself for whipping Anthony.' "'Nonsense, dear. He deserved it. And it agreed with him. You have had no trouble with him since, and he has come to think there's nobody like you. Your kindness won his love after the idea that a girl was no good was rooted out of his stubborn mind.' "'He may have deserved it, but that is not the point. If I had calmly and deliberately decided to whip him, because I thought it a just punishment for him, I would not feel over it as I do.' But the truth is, Mrs. Allen, that I just flew into a temper and whipped him because of that. I wasn't thinking whether it was just or unjust. Even if he hadn't deserved it, I'd have done it just the same. That is what humiliates me." "'Well, we all make mistakes, dear, so just put it behind you. We should regret our mistakes and learn from them, but never carry them forward into the future with us. There goes Gilbert Blythe on his wheel. Home for his vacation, too, I suppose. How are you and he getting on with your studies?" "'Pretty well. We plan to finish the Virgil tonight. There are only twenty lines to do. Then we are not going to study any more until September." "'Do you think you will ever get to college?' "'Oh, I don't know.' Anne looked dreamily afar to the opal-tinted horizon. "'Marilla's eyes will never be much better than they are now, although we are so thankful to think that they will not get worse. And then there are the twins. Somehow I don't believe their uncle will ever really send for them. Perhaps college may be around the bend in the road, but I haven't got to the bend yet, and I don't think much about it lest I might grow discontented." "'Well, I should like to see you go to college, Anne. But if you never do, don't be discontented about it. We make our own lives wherever we are, after all. College can only help us to do it more easily. They are broad or narrow according to what we put into them, not what we get out. Life is rich and full here, everywhere if we can only learn how to open our whole hearts to its richness and fullness." "'I think I understand what you mean,' said Anne thoughtfully. And I know I have so much to feel thankful for—oh, so much—my work, and Paul Irving, and the dear twins, and all my friends. 
Do you know, Mrs. Allen, I'm so thankful for friendship. It beautifies life so much. True friendship is a very helpful thing indeed, said Mrs. Allen. And we should have a very high ideal of it. Never sully it by any failure in truth and sincerity. I fear the name of friendship is often degraded to a kind of intimacy that has nothing of real friendship in it. Yes, like Gertie Pye's and Julia Bell's. They are very intimate and go everywhere together. But Gertie is always saying nasty things of Julia behind her back, and everybody thinks she is jealous of her because she is always so pleased when anybody criticizes Julia. I think it is desecration to call that friendship. If we have friends, we should look only for the best in them, and give them the best that is in us, don't you think? Then friendship would be the most beautiful thing in the world. Friendship is very beautiful, smiled Mrs. Allen. But some day— Then she paused abruptly. In the delicate, white-browed face beside her, with its candid eyes and mobile features, there was still far more of the child than of the woman. Anne's heart so far harbored only dreams of friendship and ambition, and Mrs. Allen did not wish to brush the bloom from her sweet unconsciousness. So she left her sentence for the future years to finish. End of chapter 15《Chapter Sixteen of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Sixteen The Substance of Things Hoped For. Anne said Davy appealingly scrambling up on the shiny, leather-covered sofa in the Green Gables kitchen, where Anne sat reading a letter. "'Anne, I'm awful hungry. You've no idea.' "'I'll get you a piece of bread and butter in a minute,' said Anne absently. Her letter evidently contained some exciting news, for her cheeks were as pink as the roses on the big bush outside, and her eyes were as starry as only Anne's eyes could be. "'But I ain't bread and butter hungry,' said Davy in a disgusted tone. I'm plum cake hungry. Oh, laughed Anne, laying down her letter and putting her arm about Davy to give him a squeeze. That's a kind of hunger that can be endured very comfortably, Davy boy. You know it's one of Marilla's rules that you can't have anything but bread and butter between meals. Well, give me a piece then, please. Davy had been at last taught to say please, but he generally tacked it on as an afterthought. He looked with approval at the generous slice Anne presently brought to him. You always put such a nice lot of butter on it, Anne. Marilla spreads it pretty thin. It slips down a lot easier when there's plenty of butter. The slice slipped down with tolerable ease, judging from its rapid disappearance. Davy slid head first off the sofa, turned a double somersault on the rug, and then sat up and announced decidedly, Anne, I've made up my mind about heaven. I don't want to go there. Why not? asked Anne gravely. "'Cause heaven is in Simon Fletcher's garret, and I don't like Simon Fletcher.' "'Heaven in Simon Fletcher's garret?' gasped Anne, too amazed even to laugh. "'Davy Keith, whatever put such an extraordinary idea into your head?' "'Milty Bolters says that's where it is. It was last Sunday in Sunday school. The lesson was about Elijah and Elisha, and I up and asked Miss Rogerson where heaven was. Miss Rogerson looked awful offended.' She was cross, anyhow, because when she'd asked us what Elijah left Elisha when he went to heaven, Milty Bolter said, his old clothes, and us fellows all laughed before we thought. 
I wish you could think first and do things afterwards, cause then you wouldn't do them. But Milty didn't mean to be disrespectful. He just couldn't think of the name of the thing. Miss Rogerson said heaven was where God was, and I wasn't to ask questions like that. Milty nudged me and said in a whisper, Heaven's in Uncle Simon's garret, and I'll explain about it on the road home. So when we was going home, he explained. Milty's a great hand at explaining things. Even if he don't know anything about a thing, he'll make up a lot of stuff, and so you get it explained all the same. His mother is Mrs. Simon's sister, and she went with her to the funeral when his cousin, Jane Ellen, died. The minister said she'd gone to heaven, though Milty says she was lying right before them in the coffin. But he supposed they carried the coffin to the garret afterwards. Well, when Milty and his mother went upstairs after it was all over to get her bonnet, he asked where heaven was that Jane Ellen had gone to, and she pointed right to the ceiling and said, up there. Milty knew there wasn't anything but the garret over the ceiling, so that's how he found out and he's been awful scared to go to his Uncle Simon's ever since. Anne took Davy on her knee and did her best to straighten out this theological tangle also. She was much better fitted for the task than Marilla, for she remembered her own childhood and had an instinctive understanding of the curious ideas that seven-year-olds sometimes get about matters that are, of course, very plain and simple to grown-up people. She had just succeeded in convincing Davy that heaven was not in Simon Fletcher's garret, when Marilla came in from the garden, where she and Dora had been picking peas. Dora was an industrious little soul, and never happier than when helping in various small tasks suited to her chubby fingers. She fed chickens, picked up chips, wiped dishes, and ran errands galore. She was neat, faithful, and observant. She never had to be told how to do a thing twice and never forgot any of her little duties. Davy, on the other hand, was rather heedless and forgetful but he had the born knack of winning love, and even yet Anne and Marilla liked him the better. While Dora proudly shelled the peas and Davy made boats of the pods, with masts of matches and sails of paper, Anne told Marilla about the wonderful contents of her letter. "'Oh, Marilla, what do you think? I've had a letter from Priscilla, and she says that Mrs. Morgan is on the island, and that if it is fine Thursday they are going to drive up to Avonlea and will reach here about twelve. They will spend the afternoon with us and go to the hotel at White Sands in the evening, because some of Mrs. Morgan's American friends are staying there. Oh, Marilla, isn't it wonderful? I can hardly believe I'm not dreaming." "'I dare say Mrs. Morgan is a lot like other people,' said Marilla dryly, although she did feel a trifle excited herself. Mrs. Morgan was a famous woman, and a visit from her was no commonplace occurrence. "'They'll be here to dinner, then?' "'Yes, and oh, Marilla, may I cook every bit of the dinner myself? I want to feel that I can do something for the author of The Rosebud Garden, if it is only to cook a dinner for her. You won't mind, will you?" "'Goodness, I'm not so fond of stewing over a hot fire in July that it would vex me very much to have someone else do it. You're quite welcome to the job." "'Oh, thank you,' said Anne, as if Marilla had just conferred a tremendous favor. I'll make out the menu this very night." "'You'd better not try to put on too much style,' warned Marilla a little alarmed by the high-flown sound of menu. You'll likely come to grief if you do. Oh, I'm not going to put on any style if you mean trying to do or have things we don't usually have on festal occasions, assured Anne. That would be affectation, 
and although I know I haven't as much sense and steadiness as a girl of seventeen and a schoolteacher ought to have, I'm not so silly as that. But I want to have everything as nice and dainty as possible. Davy boy, don't leave those peapods on the back stairs. Someone might slip on them. I'll have a light soup to begin with. You know I can make lovely cream of onion soup. And then a couple of roast fowls. I'll have the two white roosters. I have real affection for those roosters, and they've been pets ever since the gray hen hatched out just the two of them, little balls of yellow down. But I know they would have to be sacrificed sometime, and surely there couldn't be a worthier occasion than this. But, oh, Marilla, I cannot kill them, not even for Mrs. Morgan's sake. I'll have to ask John Henry Carter to come over and do it for me. I'll do it, volunteered Davy. If Marilla'll hold em by the legs, cause I guess it'd take both my hands to manage the axe. It's awful jolly fun to see them hopping about after their heads are cut off. Then I'll have peas and beans and cream potatoes and a lettuce salad for vegetables, resumed Anne. And for dessert, lemon pie with whipped cream and coffee and cheese and ladyfingers. I'll make the pies and ladyfingers tomorrow and do up my white muslin dress. And I must tell Diana tonight for she'll want to do up hers. Mrs. Morgan's heroines are nearly always dressed in white muslin, and Diana and I have always resolved that that was what we would wear if we ever met her. It will be such a delicate compliment, don't you think? Davy dear, you mustn't poke peapods into the cracks of the floor. I must ask Mr. and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy to dinner, too, for they're all very anxious to meet Mrs. Morgan. It's so fortunate she's coming while Miss Stacy is here. Davy dear, don't sail the peapods in the water bucket. Go out to the trough. Oh, I do hope it will be fine Thursday, and I think it will, for Uncle Abe said last night when he called at Mr. Harrison's that it was going to rain most of this week. That's a good sign, agreed Marilla. Anne ran across to Orchard Slope that evening to tell the news to Diana, who was also very much excited over it, and they discussed the matter in the hammock swung under the big willow in the berry garden. Oh, Anne, mayn't I help you cook the dinner? implored Diana. You know I can make a splendid lettuce salad. Indeed you may, said Anne unselfishly, and I shall want you to help me decorate, too. I mean to have the parlor simply a bower of blossoms, and the dining table is to be adorned with wild roses. Oh, I do hope everything will go smoothly. Mrs. Morgan's heroines never get into scrapes or are taken at a disadvantage, and they are always so self-possessed and such good housekeepers. They seem to be born good housekeepers. You remember that Gertrude in Edgewood Days kept house for her father when she was only eight years old. When I was eight years old I hardly knew how to do a thing except bring up children. Mrs. Morgan must be an authority on girls when she has written so much about them, and I do want her to have a good opinion of us. I've imagined it all out a dozen different ways—what she'll look like, and what she'll say, and what I'll say. And I'm so anxious about my nose. There are seven freckles on it, as you can see. They came at the AVIS picnic when I went around in the sun without my hat. I suppose it's ungrateful of me to worry over them, when I should be thankful they're not spread all over my face as they once were, but I do wish they hadn't come. All Mrs. Morgan's heroines have such perfect complexions. I can't recall a freckled one among them. Yours are not very noticeable, comforted Diana. Try a little lemon juice on them tonight. The next day Anne made her pies and ladyfingers, did up her muslin dress, and swept and dusted every room in the house. A quite unnecessary proceeding, for Green Gables was, as usual, in the apple-pie order dear to Marilla's heart. But Anne felt that a fleck of dust would be a desecration in a house that was to be honored by a visit from Charlotte E. Morgan.
She even cleaned out the catch-all closet under the stairs, although there was not the remotest possibility of Mrs. Morgan seeing its interior. "'But I want to feel that it is in perfect order, even if she isn't to see it,' Anne told Marilla. You know in her book Golden Keys she makes her two heroines Alice and Louisa take for their motto that verse of Longfellow's, "'In the elder days of art, builders wrought with greatest care, each minute and unseen part, for the gods see everywhere.' and so they always kept their cellar stairs scrubbed and never forgot to sweep under the beds. I should have a guilty conscience if I thought this closet was in disorder when Mrs. Morgan was in the house. Ever since we read Golden Keys last April, Diana and I have taken that verse for our motto, too. That night John Henry Carter and Davy between them contrived to execute the two white roosters, and Anne dressed them, the usually distasteful task glorified in her eyes by the destination of the plump birds. I don't like picking fowls, she told Marilla, but isn't it fortunate we don't have to put our souls into what our hands may be doing? I've been picking chickens with my hands, but in imagination I've been roaming the Milky Way. I thought you'd scattered more feathers over the floor than usual, remarked Marilla. Then Anne put Davy to bed and made him promise that he would behave perfectly the next day. If I'm as good as good can be all day tomorrow, will you let me be just as bad as I like all the next day? asked Davy. "'I couldn't do that,' said Anne discreetly. "'But I'll take you and Dora for a row in the flat right to the bottom of the pond, and we'll go ashore on the sandhills and have a picnic.' "'It's a bargain,' said Davy. "'I'll be good, you bet. I meant to go over to Mr. Harrison's and fire peas from my new popgun at Ginger, but another day'll do as well. I expect it will be just like Sunday, but a picnic at the shore'll make up for that.' End of chapter 16Anne woke three times in the night and made pilgrimages to her window to make sure that Uncle Abe's prediction was not coming true. Finally the morning dawned pearly and lustrous in a sky full of silver sheen and radiance, and the wonderful day had arrived. Diana appeared soon after breakfast, with a basket of flowers over one arm and her muslin dress over the other, for it would not do to don it until all the dinner preparations were completed. Meanwhile she wore her afternoon pink print and a lawn apron, fearfully and wonderfully ruffled and frilled, and very neat and pretty and rosy she was. "'You look simply sweet,' said Anne admiringly. Diana sighed. "'But I've had to let out every one of my dresses again. I weigh four pounds more than I did in July, Anne. Where will this end? Mrs. Morgan's heroines are all tall and slender.' "'Well, let's forget our troubles and think of our mercies,' said Anne gaily. "'Mrs. Allen says that whenever we think of anything that is a trial to us, we should also think of something nice that we can set over against it. If you are slightly too plump, you've got the dearest dimples. And if I have a freckled nose, the shape of it is all right. Do you think the lemon juice did any good?' "'Yes, I really think it did,' said Diana critically. And, much elated, Anne led the way to the garden, which was full of airy shadows and wavering golden lights. "'We'll decorate the parlor first. We have plenty of time, 
for Priscilla said they'd be here about twelve or half-past at the latest, so we'll have dinner at one. There may have been two happier and more excited girls somewhere in Canada or the United States at that moment, but I doubt it. Every snip of the scissors, as Rose and Peony and Bluebell fell, seemed to chirp, Mrs. Morgan is coming today. Anne wondered how Mr. Harrison could go on placidly mowing hay in the field across the lane, just as if nothing were going to happen. The parlor at Green Gables was a rather severe and gloomy apartment, with rigid horsehair furniture, stiff lace curtains, and white antimacassars that were always laid at a perfectly correct angle, except at such times as they clung to unfortunate people's buttons. Even Anne had never been able to infuse much grace into it, for Marilla would not permit any alterations. But it is wonderful what flowers can accomplish if you give them a fair chance. When Anne and Diana finished with the room you would not have recognized it. A great blue bowlful of snowballs overflowed on the polished table. The shining black mantelpiece was heaped with roses and ferns. Every shelf of the whatnot held a sheaf of bluebells. The dark corners on either side of the grate were lighted up with jars full of glowing crimson peonies, and the grate itself was aflame with yellow poppies. All this splendor and color, mingled with the sunshine falling through the honeysuckle vines at the windows in a leafy riot of dancing shadows over walls and floor, made of the usually dismal little room the veritable bower of Anne's imagination, and even extorted a tribute of admiration from Marilla, who came in to criticize and remained to praise. "'Now we must set the table,' said Anne, in the tone of a priestess about to perform some sacred rite in honor of a divinity. We'll have a big vase full of wild roses in the center, and one single rose in front of everybody's plate, and a special bouquet of rosebuds only by Mrs. Morgan's, an allusion to the rosebud garden, you know. The table was set in the sitting-room, with Marilla's finest linen and the best china, glass, and silver. You may be perfectly certain that every article placed on it was polished or scoured to the highest possible perfection of gloss and glitter. Then the girls tripped out to the kitchen, which was filled with appetizing odors emanating from the oven, where the chickens were already sizzling splendidly. Anne prepared the potatoes, and Diana got the peas and beans ready. Then, while Diana shut herself into the pantry to compound the lettuce salad, Anne, whose cheeks were already beginning to glow crimson, as much with excitement as from the heat of the fire, prepared the bread sauce for the chickens, minced her onions for the soup, and finally whipped the cream for her lemon pies. And what about Davy all this time? Was he redeeming his promise to be good? He was indeed. To be sure he insisted on remaining in the kitchen, for his curiosity wanted to see all that went on. But as he sat quietly in a corner, busily engaged in untying the knots in a piece of herring net he had brought home from his last trip to the shore, nobody objected to this. At half-past eleven the lettuce salad was made, the golden circles of the pies were heaped with whipped cream, and everything was sizzling and bubbling that ought to sizzle and bubble. "'We'd better go and dress now,' said Anne, "'for they may be here by twelve. We must have dinner at sharp one, for the soup must be served as soon as it's done.' Serious, indeed, were the toilet rites presently performed in the east gable. Anne peered anxiously at her nose, and rejoiced to see that its freckles were not at all prominent, thanks either to the lemon juice or to the unusual flush on her cheeks. When they were ready they looked quite as sweet and trim and girlish as ever did any of Mrs. Morgan's heroines. "'I do hope I'll be able to say something once in a while and not sit like a mute,' said Diana anxiously. 
all mrs morgan's heroines converse so beautifully but i am afraid i'll be tongue-tied and stupid and i'll be sure to say i seen i haven't often said it since miss stacy taught here but in moments of excitement it's sure to pop out anne if i were to say i seen before mrs morgan i'd die of mortification and it would be almost as bad to have nothing to say i'm nervous about a good many things said anne but i don't think there is much fear that i won't be able to talk and to do her justice there wasn't anne shrouded her muslin glories in a big apron and went down to concoct her soup marilla had dressed herself in the twins and looked more excited than she had ever been known to look before at half-past twelve the allens and miss stacy came everything was going well but anne was beginning to feel nervous it was surely time for priscilla and mrs morgan to arrive she made frequent trips to the gate and looked as anxiously down the lane as ever her namesake in the bluebeard story peered from the tower casement suppose they don't come at all she said piteously don't suppose it it would be too mean said diana who however was beginning to have uncomfortable misgivings on the subject anne said marilla coming out from the parlor miss stacy wants to see miss barry's willow-ware platter anne hastened to the sitting-room closet to get the platter she had in accordance with her promise to mrs lynde written to miss barry of charlottetown asking for the loan of it miss barry was an old friend of anne's and she promptly sent the platter out with a letter exhorting Anne to be very careful of it, for she had paid twenty dollars for it. The platter had served its purpose at the aid bazaar, and had then been returned to the Green Gables closet, for Anne would not trust anybody but herself to take it back to town. She carried the platter carefully to the front door, where her guests were enjoying the cool breeze that blew up from the brook. It was examined and admired. Then, just as Anne had taken it back into her own hands, a terrific crash and clatter sounded from the kitchen pantry. Marilla, Diana, and Anne fled out, the latter pausing only long enough to set the precious platter hastily down on the second step of the stairs. When they reached the pantry a truly harrowing spectacle met their eyes, a guilty-looking small boy scrambling down from the table, with his clean print blouse liberally plastered with yellow filling, and on the table the shattered remnants of what had been two brave becreamed lemon pies. Davy had finished raveling out his herring-net and had wound the twine into a ball. Then he had gone into the pantry to put it up on the shelf above the table, where he already kept a score or so of similar balls, which, so far as could be discovered, served no useful purpose save to yield the joy of possession. Davy had to climb on the table and reach over to the shelf at a dangerous angle, something he had been forbidden by Marilla to do, as he had come to grief once before in the experiment. The result in this instance was disastrous. Davy slipped and came sprawling squarely down on the lemon pies. His clean blouse was ruined for that time, and the pies for all time. It is, however, an ill wind that blows nobody good, and the pig was eventually the gainer by Davy's mischance. "'Davy Keefe,' said Marilla, shaking him by the shoulder. "'Didn't I forbid you to climb up on that table again? Didn't I?' "'I forgot,' whimpered Davy. You've told me not to do such an awful lot of things that I can't remember them all. Well, you march upstairs and stay there till after dinner. Perhaps you'll get them sorted out in your memory by that time. No, Anne, never you mind interceding for him. I'm not punishing him because he spoiled your pies. That was an accident. 
I'm punishing him for his disobedience. Go, Davy, I say. Ain't I to have any dinner? wailed Davy. You can come down after dinner is over and have yours in the kitchen. Oh, all right, said Davy, somewhat comforted. I know Anne'll save some nice bones for me, won't you, Anne? Cause you know I didn't mean to fall on the pies. Say, Anne, since they are spoiled, can't I take some of the pieces upstairs with me? No, no lemon pie for you, Master Davy, said Marilla, pushing him toward the hall. What shall we do for dessert? asked Anne, looking regretfully at the wreck and ruin. Get out a crock of strawberry preserves, said Marilla consolingly. There's plenty of whipped cream left in the bowl for it. One o'clock came, but no Priscilla or Mrs. Morgan. Anne was in an agony. Everything was done to a turn, and the soup was just what soup should be, but couldn't be depended on to remain so for any length of time. I don't believe they're coming after all, said Marilla crossly. Anne and Diana sought comfort in each other's eyes. At half-past one Marilla again emerged from the parlor. Girls, we must have dinner. Everybody is hungry and it's no use waiting any longer. Priscilla and Mrs. Morgan are not coming, that's plain, and nothing is being improved by waiting. Anne and Diana set about lifting the dinner, with all the zest gone out of the performance. I don't believe I'll be able to eat a mouthful, said Diana dolefully. Nor I, but I hope everything will be nice for Miss Stacy's and Mr. and Mrs. Allen's sakes, said Anne listlessly. When Diana dished the peas she tasted them, and a very peculiar expression crossed her face. Anne, did you put sugar in these peas? Yes, said Anne, mashing the potatoes with the air of one expected to do her duty. I put a spoonful of sugar in. We always do. Don't you like it? But I put a spoonful in too when I set them on the stove, said Diana. Anne dropped her masher and tasted the peas also. Then she made a grimace. How awful! I never dreamed you had put sugar in, because I knew your mother never does. I happen to think of it for a wonder. I'm always forgetting it. So I popped a spoonful in. It's a case of too many cooks, I guess," said Marilla, who had listened to this dialogue with a rather guilty expression. I didn't think you'd remember about the sugar, Anne, for I'm perfectly certain you never did before. So I put in a spoonful. The guests in the parlor heard peal after peal of laughter from the kitchen, but they never knew what the fun was about. There were no green peas on the dinner-table that day, however. Well, said Anne, sobering down again with a sigh of recollection, we have the salad anyhow and I don't think anything has happened to the beans. Let's carry the things in and get it over. It cannot be said that that dinner was a notable success socially. The Allens and Miss Stacy exerted themselves to save the situation, and Marilla's customary placidity was not noticeably ruffled. But Anne and Diana, between their disappointment and the reaction from their excitement of the forenoon, could neither talk nor eat. Anne tried heroically to bear her part in the conversation for the sake of her guests, but all the sparkle had been quenched in her for the time being, and, in spite of her love for the Allens and Miss Stacy, she couldn't help thinking how nice it would be when everybody had gone home and she could bury her weariness and disappointment in the pillows of the east gable. There is an old proverb that really seems at times to be inspired, it never rains but it pours. The measure of that day's tribulations was not yet full. Just as Mr. Allen had finished returning thanks, there arose a strange, ominous sound on the stairs, as of some hard, heavy object bounding from step to step, finishing up with a grand smash at the bottom. Everybody ran out into the hall. 
Anne gave a shriek of dismay. At the bottom of the stairs lay a big pink conch shell amid the fragments of what had been Miss Barry's platter, and at the top of the stairs knelt a terrified Davy, gazing down with wide open eyes at the havoc. Davy, said Marilla ominously, did you throw that conch down on purpose? No, I never did, whimpered Davy. I was just kneeling here, quiet as quiet, to watch you folks through the banisters, and my foot struck that old thing and pushed it off, and I'm awful hungry, and I do wish you'd lick a fellow and have done with it, instead of always sending him upstairs to miss all the fun. Don't blame Davy, said Anne, gathering up the fragments with trembling fingers. It was my fault. I set that platter there and forgot all about it. I am properly punished for my carelessness. But, oh, what will Miss Barry say? Well, you know she only bought it, so it isn't the same as if it was an heirloom, said Diana, trying to console. The guests went away soon after, feeling that it was the most tactful thing to do, and Anne and Diana washed the dishes, talking less than they had ever been known to do before. Then Diana went home with a headache, and Anne went with another to the East Gable, where she stayed until Marilla came home from the post office at sunset, with a letter from Priscilla written the day before. Mrs. Morgan had sprained her ankle so severely that she could not leave her room. "'And oh, Anne, dear,' wrote Priscilla, "'I'm so sorry, but I'm afraid we won't get up to Green Gables at all now, for by the time Auntie's ankle is well, she will have to go back to Toronto. She has to be there by a certain date.' Well, sighed Anne, laying the letter down on the red sandstone step of the back porch, where she was sitting, while the twilight rained down out of a dappled sky. I always thought it was too good to be true that Mrs. Morgan should really come. But there, that speech sounds as pessimistic as Miss Eliza Andrews, and I'm ashamed of making it. After all, it was not too good to be true. Things just as good and far better are coming true for me all the time. And I suppose the events of today have a funny side, too. Perhaps when Diana and I are old and gray we shall be able to laugh over them. But I feel that I can't expect to do it before then, for it has truly been a bitter disappointment. You'll probably have a good many more and worse disappointments than that before you get through life," said Marilla, who honestly thought she was making a comforting speech. It seems to me, Anne, that you are never going to outgrow your fashion of setting your heart so on things, and then crashing down into despair because you don't get them. I know I'm too much inclined that way," agreed Anne ruefully. When I think something nice is going to happen, I seem to fly right up on the wings of anticipation, and then the first thing I realize I drop down to earth with a thud. But really, Marilla, the flying part is glorious as long as it lasts. It's like soaring through a sunset. I think it almost pays for the thud. Well, maybe it does," admitted Marilla. I'd rather walk calmly along and do without both flying and thud. But everybody has her own way of living. I used to think there was only one right way. But since I've had you and the twins to bring up, I don't feel so sure of it. What are you going to do about Miss Barry's platter? Pay her back the twenty dollars she paid for it, I suppose. I'm so thankful it wasn't a cherished heirloom, because then no money could replace it. Maybe you could find one like it somewhere and buy it for her. I'm afraid not. Platters as old as that are very scarce. Mrs. Lynde couldn't find one anywhere for the supper. I only wish I could, for of course Miss Barry would just as soon have one platter as another, if both were equally old and genuine. 
Marilla, look at that big star over Mr. Harrison's maple grove, with all that holy hush of silvery sky about it. It gives me a feeling that is like a prayer. After all, when one can see stars and skies like that, little disappointments and accidents can't matter so much, can they? Where's Davy? said Marilla, with an indifferent glance at the star. In bed. I've promised to take him and Dora to the shore for a picnic tomorrow. Of course the original agreement was that he must be good. But he tried to be good, and I hadn't the heart to disappoint him. You'll drown yourself or the twins rowing about the pond in that flat," grumbled Marilla. I've lived here for sixty years and I've never been on the pond yet. Well, it's never too late to mend, said Anne roguishly. Suppose you come with us tomorrow. We'll shut Green Gables up and spend the whole day at the shore, daffing the world aside. No, thank you, said Marilla with indignant emphasis. I'd be a nice sight, wouldn't I, rowing down the pond in a flat. I think I hear Rachel pronouncing on it. There's Mr. Harrison driving away somewhere. Do you suppose there is any truth in the gossip that Mr. Harrison is going to see Isabella Andrews? No, I'm sure there isn't. He just called there one evening on business with Mr. Harmon Andrews, and Mrs. Lynde saw him and said she knew he was courting because he had a white collar on. I don't believe Mr. Harrison will ever marry. He seems to have a prejudice against marriage. Well, you never can tell about those old bachelors. And if he had a white collar on, I'd agree with Rachel that it looks suspicious, for I'm sure he never was seen with one before." "'I think he only put it on because he wanted to conclude a business deal with Harmon Andrews,' said Anne. "'I've heard him say that's the only time a man needs to be particular about his appearance, because if he looks prosperous the party of the second part won't be so likely to try to cheat him. I really feel sorry for Mr. Harrison. I don't believe he feels satisfied with his life. It must be very lonely to have no one to care about except a parrot, don't you think? But I notice Mr. Harrison doesn't like to be pitied. Nobody does, I imagine." "'There's Gilbert coming up the lane,' said Marilla. "'If he wants you to go for a row on the pond, mind you put on your coat and rubbers. There's a heavy dew tonight.'" End of chapter 17「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.